Well, greetings and welcome, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. This is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Tara and Rama's True History History of Nisera and Our Galactic Origins on <laughs> on BBS Radio Station 2. So thank you for joining us here. Uh, Cheryl usually does our med- opening meditation, and so she's recovering from her surgery on Wednesday. And I'd like to update that she's doing well. Her surgery went well, and she's at home, came home Friday, and she's adjusting to being at home, and she's very grateful for all of the prayers and energy that you have sent her. So, uh, and she said to share that. So, yes, I'm sharing her gratitude for sending healing prayers and energy. Um, And she'll be doing the meditation calls tomorrow night. So let's just see what the Kimi drum can bring us today as we call in the seven sacred directions. Uh, In the the Cherokee tradition and the toning is in the Navajo tradition uh, from Joseph Rael in in New Mexico. So we'll do some toning, and I'd like for you to join in on the toning. Uh, So let's get this started. Okay. With the Kimi drum. First, I want you to take a few gentle breaths and go into your heart space. Let go of that dross of the day. Now, there's a council fire in the center, so let us gather around that council fire. That good way we know how to do that virtual way. As we gather with our guides and guardians, coming close around that fire. All you spirit keepers of the East, come, look this way. We give gratitude for rising sun, for this new beginning, for that clarity of mind and openness of heart to learn and grow. We welcome you, eagle, condor, hawk, you high-flying ones, for your gifts of insight that ability to look at our lives with a benevolent eye. And we give thanks for this new day, this opportunity for beginner's mind to truly experience the joy and the humbleness of starting anew. And we invite you, divine masculinity, that solar energy power and power of protection, to be with us as we begin this journey. And I meant the tone first, but tone now. The tone for the East is awe, and it means purification. So 
what it's tone now. Now let us all look to the north. And the tone for the north is O, and it's for innocence. Keepers of the North, come, look this way. We give gratitude for all the ceremonies that sustain us. And for all the white-haired ones and the white bird ones, the snowy owl, the hare, the polar bear. Those who live in that place of the cold, hard truth, teaching us to embrace and be grateful for the truth. Give thanks to you, Buffalo people, for your medicine, abundance, gratitude, longevity. In the tall standing nations, for your teaching of endurance and how to stand in power, in, in our power without bending. We are grateful to you also in winds of change. Empowering us to resist complacency. So thank you, all you ones of the North, for joining us here. Oh. Let's turn to the West and look to the West. Let us turn. E for awareness. E. All you spirit keepers of the West, come, look this way. We give thanks to Bear for that good bear medicine of going within for discernment, for healing. We give thanks to the big cat, Jaguar, Panther, Cougar. For showing us how to live in two worlds, the intangible, invisible world, and the physical world. And we give thanks to Divine Feminine, that lunar energy, for your gifts of life, death, and rebirth. And we give thanks to that setting sun, twilight. For that sacred time and place between the worlds, be with us on our journey. Give us the strength to look deeply 
in our hearts, welcoming our hurts and our fears to set with us in order to be transformed. We give thanks to honor for your playfulness for women's medicine. Wado. Now let's turn towards the south. We will tone A for relationship. Thank you for our lives. 
worms and pin worms, four-legged worms, pollinators and regenerators with the lives. Many gratitudes for that diversity of life, for the interconnectedness of, of life, to that web of life, and the equality of each member of the planetary family. Thank you, Mother Earth, for teaching us how to take care of you, how to honor you in all life forms, and to walk gently upon you with love and respect. Thank you for joining us today. And now we're going to call in the center direction, the within direction. And with that, we give the tone, and it's for carrying. So tone with me. Everybody's here, all the directions, all the ancestors, Gaia. I'm going to change my hat as we are a listener support radio program. It's each of us that make it happen to where we can gather each week this way. And each week we incur expenses the PBS radio of $300 for their services for the week. And we're a week behind <laughs> right now. Um, so we're needing $600 this week to cover those expenses and be caught up. And so here's how we do it. We just go into your heart space and see what is yours to give and then go to bbsradio.com and click on the menu for Radio Station 2 or Radio Station 1. This program is on Radio Station 2, so you're looking for the uh, 1.30 hour on Radio Station 2. 
the true history, history, and it's there in our galactic wars and guitar and Rama. And as you click on the icon that's there, and these are this is in Pacific time, you want to, um, yeah, click on that icon, and then you can make a donation in any amount. That icon will take you, as you click on it, directly to our account with BBS Radio. We have two other accounts. They're on Radio Station 1, and they're on Thursday and Friday at the 6 o'clock hour each day, Pacific time. And so Thursday is a night at the round table with the panel, and you can click on that icon there. And also, you can access that account by clicking on the icon for the hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Lama at the 6 o'clock hour on Fridays on Radio Station 1. So those are the three sites that will connect you to our account. And we are so grateful for you making those contributions. We're a little behind. Uh, there have been emergencies and such. So uh, here's here's what how it all works out. And we're so grateful for all all of your gifts and all of the ways you show up in their lives. So thank you. And we're also assisting Tara and Rama in their needs. And Rama had a flat tire, and the tire is going to have to be replaced. The tow bill has to be taken care of. The uh, tire has to be taken care of. And quite possibly, they have to buy two tires, but we'll have to have that discussion with the, the mechanic and see what the possibilities are. And uh, as there are, might be possibilities that might that make things different, the, uh, but the upshot of it is that X money is needed uh, to cover the tire situation, the shuttlecraft. And uh, so he was asking for $300 for personal expenses that might be put up to four or five, depending on what happened. And uh, so, but the, there is a bill that's also due on Monday. So all this has to happen on Monday. So we're in an emergency situation, basically, <laughs> where we need donations right away to cover that that bill is 126. That has to be paid on Monday. It can't be paid later. And um, then the tire has to be taken care of in a good way. So. And furthermore, that 126 is part of $500 that is needed for bills that are due this week. So just letting you know that that um, is necessary to get those bills covered as well, but not as imminent as that one on Monday. So <laughs> here we go. Let's do what we can and pitch in. Here's how we do it. You want to? You can access Rama's PayPal account by asking at their website, and that web address is rainbowroundtable.net. And there, as you click on that menu grid, you'll see a donate link near the bottom of that list. Click on that. That takes you to Rama's PayPal account, where you can make a donation in any amount using your bank, your bank card. And then as you want to access the friends and family option, just go to paypal.com, put in Rama's email there for gifting, that email address, is as follows. Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. Uh, and then that gives you that friend's access. It, the, the only difference is the money goes a little further. It eliminates the commercial charges. And as I always say, either way is perfect. We're grateful for your donation. And as you're donating something, please let Rowan know that you've donated something 
and Wendy Sennett. So that address, email address for Rama Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 99939 at comcast.net. And there you have it. That's all the information. I'd like to give you the mailing address in case you need to wire something and want to do it that way. The mailing address is Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D, Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280-280. And that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, where the zip code is 87567. Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. And there you go. That's all the information. So thank you, thank you, thank you for reaching deep and making it happen. <laughs> We're so grateful. As as we all can contribute a little bit, we can get a lot done. So 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. Long life, no evil. And I'm passing this talking stick. And it is abundant talking stick. And it's abundant, has an abundance of truth. Oh, my goodness. So Quetzalcoatl is there and all kinds of fairies and feathers and little people. And then all the gems and all the rays of the universe and all the healing rays and the abundance rays. Uh, so here it comes. <laughs> Lots of, with all those little people with the Manahoonies and the gnomes and the, and the hobbits. So greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes the talking stick. Thank you for your service. Thank you, Rainbird. Thank you, Rainbird. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. We are so grateful. And uh, in this moment in time, we just want to keep remembering our sister Cheryl as she's recovering from a hip transplant. Hip replacement, I guess is what it's called. <laughs> and um, it's it does feel, to me anyway, like everything's up for grabs. <laughs> um, there's been a wheel turning to change the history of the past. And the major media are doing it. And... There's been um, a, a very intense downpour of higher energy frequencies coming in at the same time. Yes, the sun has two more holes in the corona, I mean, coronal holes. Yeah, I just wanted to say, because when I talked to you about that, Roma, it's not like there's something wrong with the sun. No. But it sounds like it. It sounds like if you've got a hole in your head, there's something wrong with you, you know? Just yeah. a hole in the sun? <laughs> what I, How do they form? They form with the electromagnetic fields that the sun is constantly fluctuating with. And what I believe that they're not telling us is those are portals opening. Because usually at the same time that a coronal hole happens, there are all kinds of craft coming in from 
another part of the galaxy, and I just have to kind of put it that way. I And then there's all these people that thinks that we got holes in our heads for even saying that. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, is that... The science... Yes, they are, they are hiding this. Yeah. They have all the science and the evidence, massive evidence, and it's been going on forever, yet it started more in earnest in the United States in the 1947 Roswell incident. The sun is a cold fusion reactor, and here we have uh, That's another places like Three Mile Island to boil water to make electricity. It doesn't sound right. You mean nuclear plants? Yes, they are so dangerous on this planet. It's you know, I mean, a comical story is the Simpsons. Homer Simpson working at a nuclear power plant. You get a little weird. Well, it was interesting because I was listening to a pirate television hour-long program intermittently between the news this morning on MSNBC, but um, uh, the scientist was saying that as you have a nuclear bomb, he described taking a piece of the sun and putting it in there. And then Rama said something that the sun's not hot. No, it's cold fusion. It's cold fusion. Yet if you sit too long in the sun in the middle of the summer on a beach, <laughs> you're going to burn your little self silly. Yeah. yeah. So this is what, what is this? Is, what? How do we describe this when you say it's cold on the surface? It's cold. Magnetic energy. But then it burns you if you get in the sun in the summer. It's the way that the sun interacts with our atmosphere and uh, the carbon, oxygen, nitrogen mix, all the different gases in our atmosphere combined with the sun's rays and the electromagnetic fields. Um... I, Are you guessing? It is more than I know. Okay. <laughs> but I do know that I miss what they have That's what I miss. Yeah. And it's like I have to redo basic physics into quantum physics because we didn't learn that in school. Nassim Haramin's been teaching it. Yeah. Like, where did heck, where did he go? Oh, he's doing his Science Academy, Resonance Science Academy. And he takes people to sacred sites around the planet and works with the Merkaba vehicle energy and, you know, portals and things happen. We saw as plain as day, wasn't it, last night? We saw a starship. It was physically separate from... The star Sirius, and it was moving around yeah. the star. And we saw it in plain English with our eyeballs. <laughs> there was no way to deny it. Yeah. You're sitting there going, oh, my God. 
So, and this has become a regular thing um, because, you know, starting in September, heading towards Christmas, uh, you can see the Syrian star and then you can see Orion's belt and then you can see the Pleiades. You gotta look yeah. really carefully to see the seven sisters. And if your eyes aren't so good, you get some, oh. And by the way, that, um, our brother Don was mentioning that his eyes were having some trouble because he's working with you know, computer screens, not, not one, 16 every day and for long hours during the day. And sometimes he's got to squint to see. So we sent you, Don, and I hope you're hearing us, but, um, we sent you this, uh, website which sells clip on a yellow tinted glasses. Yeah. Onto your regular glasses. Yeah, and it filters out this, the unwanted light from the computer screens. It filters out the excess blue light. Yeah. And that's very, very healing to the eyes. And it, it, it is a protection so that your eyes aren't going to go, make you go blind. Yeah. And so it's really important. So. We'll send you a little extra email tomorrow or something yes. about that. But, Rama, maybe you can uh, give the site out to Penny, and then she can put it in yeah, the notes and know. everybody can uh, learn about it. It's in the other room. Yeah. yeah, no, not right now. But that's really important because I know that as you're listening to this show, you're watching stuff like this too. Or not. You come here and just listen so that we can do it for you. <laughs> but uh it's you gotta use yours, dear. Yes. That would be helpful. Uh so that's really important. Um <coughs> uh this transition period brings up for me whether I have some issues or not in terms of our own literal our own physical mortality, uh, which I had a little discussion with Commander Don yesterday evening that that is not the goal. The goal is to literally master the the uh the five bodies actually that we have become the master of our physical body, our emotional body, our mental body, our spirit body, and then the cosmic light body. That's where there's only one of us here. Aligning with the cosmic light body has to do with aligning with higher conscious awareness. And I wanted to speak to that too because it requires... That we slow down. And of course the demand from the old system as it's still quack, quack, quacking for what we need to come up with in order to survive and be able to eat and have a roof over our heads and might be able to enjoy our family once in a while. It's just like, uh, I'm gonna say that the vitriol that's still amongst the population for being abused 
in so many ways by the old, let's leave it without names, but the old timeline. Yet, I would say that the actors who got power within the old timeline, <coughs> oh, there's somebody calling. Okay, Penny, you're on line two. Yes, uh, thanks. I just wanted to tell you when you were uh, describing seeing Sirius, the starship near Sirius last night, you didn't mention that that's where the New Jerusalem is parked. And instead, if you watch it, you'll see the lights go round and round and round. That's correct. So that was the New Jerusalem. Thank you very much, Lady Master. It's a very important fact because you can watch it every night and they do wink at you. I'm just saying, you know, just say, hi, I'm here. I have to I'm looking out my window tonight because it's too cold to stand on the balcony and you get a wink. <laughs> how, how? What was the temperature last night up there, Patty, in Alberta? Well, this morning I know it was minus 20-something in the mid-20s, and it's going to go up. Last night it was cold. That's all I can, I can't remember. It was freaking cold. Yeah, minus 28 or some stupid thing like that. I'll just look this up. Yeah, because I would like to know in the Fahrenheit. For all us United oh, States. Oh, of course you want to know. I always have to. Get, I've got my translation paper right here. Just let me find it. Edmonton. Here we go. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Ra Rama set up the uh, new printer that came last night. Oh, good. Awesome. You can't. He can't get it to get the color to work, so maybe we want to borrow Randy tomorrow or sometime and see if he knows how to help us with that. Yeah, well, that you can't get him between 11 and 5 because he's on the cash call. On Sunday? Um, I, I said he's on the cash call tomorrow. On Sunday from 11 to 5? Yes. Holy cow. Yes, that's, there's there's different kind of churches, Tara. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, I cannot help you with how cold it was yesterday because all that information has been dropped off. But I'm saying that tonight, it's see the temperature's going up again, right? It was minus 26. My neighbor was over who drives a truck, and he's been been hauling sand and gravel for the last while. And he said it was so cold on Friday they quit working. Now these are tough guys. Yeah. But, uh, but they were also another hour or so north of here. But they quit work at one o'clock in the Friday afternoon. It was that cold. <laughs> That's, uh, now these and these are tough dudes who ride bikes in the summertime and things like that. So yeah, it was cold. I think I remember when you told me it was minus twenty six. Was that yesterday? I think you told me that. Yeah, that's right. We were having trouble. Well, actually, minus 26 was getting close to, let's see, there's minus 25. That's close to minus 18 or minus 19 in Fahrenheit. Yes, below zero. Yeah, yeah. Enhanced, enhanced, yeah, below zero. Yeah, enhanced by wind. In other words, the farther into the minus you go, the closer... The Fahrenheit is to that minus in the Canadian temperature gauge. Yes, we're doing Celsius. 
And uh, at one point, at some point, at some point, I don't know whether it's minus 30 or minus somewhere down there, it starts to be the same. It's minus 40. (laughs) I remember that one. It's 40 below that becomes the same. That's 40 below. No matter which way you cut it, it's still 40 below. Yes. But at any rate, that's not why I called. I just called to say that the New Jerusalem is parked in front of Sirius unless it's changed. And the only person who can answer that question is Rama. Rama. Rama? Yeah, as far as I know, it hasn't changed. So was that right. the uh, Jerusalem that we were looking at last night? Yes. Why, y'all be darned. Uh, yeah, it's a big deal. That's an intentional move, the way that was moving. It was moving so it's completely distinct from the star series. It wasn't parked. It was moving. And it was completely yeah. se- separate from the the star series, and it was moving around the whole star they, system. Yeah, yeah, they have uh, they have ways of letting you know that uh, they're seeing you watch them, <laughs> right? The yeah. other thing that was very, very, very clear last night was my friends from the east. They were there, uh, close to the moon again, um, and I think when I went to bed, finally about twelve o'clock. I looked out the window, and uh, the friends to the east were west of the moon, and the moon, and they'd all gone around more to the southwest, but they're still as clear as can be. So you can start looking for them and see if if you can see them. And even through the clouds, I went out earlier in the night, you know, while during one of the, during the Friday night call, I slipped out a couple of times to check. And they were there, and even through the cloud, a very thin cloud cover, I could see the aura around that body. It's that bright, even through the clouds, a thin layer of clouds. So you might want to keep an eye out for them, too. I was going to say that the star Sirius with the New Jerusalem, when we were looking, it was high in the sky, but it was pretty much southwest. Mm, Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, maybe... Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I just want you to know that's what you're looking at. Yes, thank you. And that's good to have everybody be reminded to. Thank you so much. And whether, you know, we all know this one, that you can't really convince someone that's not there. Uh, you are right, Penny? What are you talking about? I lost a thread there. I, uh, you can't really convince somebody else who thinks you've got a screw loose talking like this that this stuff exists. Ah, okay. Yeah, well, yeah, there's that to it. Yeah, there's that too. But I just say, yeah, toodaloo, you know. <laughs> I know it's there. <laughs> toodaloo. I know it's yes. there. Yes. And and, mm-hmm. and it's coming soon enough. I know that what's I'm a, I mean, and you can maybe see what you think about this too. But you can get a little bit closer to what's going on with neighbors. I don't know if that's a hundred percent true, but certain neighbors at least. And. Uh, what I'm saying is that's, that... That's like describing certain members of your family. You know, you put the certain in front of it. And yeah, okay, it's a principle I can agree with. <laughs> exactly. 
And, uh, <laughs> and if you try to push, then they're going to give you another one back. It's like a billy goat. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, well, there comes a point, you know, when you just like, okay, tell me what you make of this. Yeah, yesterday I was sitting working here at the computer in the office, and I heard my name being called as clear as day. And it sounded like it was coming from downstairs. But the troll in the basement didn't make any noise. It wasn't him at all. (laughs) And then um, a little while later, uh, like three-quarters of an hour later, I was hearing sounds that were kind of like, ooh, ooh, again, coming from somewhere. Like, am I losing it or what? You know? <laughs> Did you ever one figure day. out what it was, Penny? No, it isn't. It isn't anything that I can, that I can put my finger on. The only other thing that I can say is that when I came upstairs this morning, the fairy, or yesterday morning, the fairy lights were on. So, and somebody else didn't turn them on. So there's only one other person I can point a finger. Well, I don't know about pointing a finger, but still, you know, there's only other, only one other entity I always accuse when strange things happen. So, and, and I use the word it. entity advisably. <laughs> <laughs> so, so somebody or some energy being. From another dimension, did it? Yeah. And I and is that Claire audience that, that's happening too? Have yeah. I been drinking yeah. enough gams? Yeah. Have I been drinking yeah. enough gams? When you're hearing things as Claire audience, that it's not of this normal world, and when you see other things like the fairy lights on, that's called Claire sentience, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the fairy lights were on. I could see that. And I know you're, a, you're absolutely, this is part of your life. You turn them off before you go to bed at night. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the troll in the basement does not touch that switch. He knows enough <laughs> not to touch it. Mm-hmm. God bless the troll. Yeah, that's right. God bless that troll. Yeah, exactly. But there are certain things he knows very well. Don't you dare touch that. You know, <laughs> you'll screw up my system. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, all this being said, there are more and more incidents that are occurring in more and more people's lives because more and more people are having conversations that that's not normal for them to have and they're starting to have experiences and i'm just saying of course as you seek out this kind of information then you'll get some and as you yes, not and, and it, i hope it helps other people you know not to to doubt themselves either because this has been going on here for years as you very well know all yeah. the things that have happened here, even before Len decided to change form, you know. So, mm-hmm. so there's been so many things happen. So anyway, oh, I'm going to have to start my own list, not just keep a list about him. Yeah. That's anyway, true. that's all I wanted. It was only about Sirius and the New Jerusalem, basically. 
Thank and the you. weather is the the weather is going from minus twenty six to my on Monday it'll be minus sixteen in the for the most of the day and minus twenty nine at night. But in the meantime, we get two days where the temperature is like close to zero. So this it's just going up and down. It isn't a wave motion at all. It's like straight up and straight down like a lightning bolt. That's the way these weathers are. This is the way the weather's changing right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had we had a turn for the warmer. Yeah, it's supposed mm-hmm. to be uh, 30, 38 tonight and rain. That's like 38 is. That's six. about six or seven degrees Celsius. Yeah, it's rain weather or sleet weather, depending. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. six degrees. Six degrees above freezing in the in, in the in the uh, United States um, Fahrenheit system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's just about um, yeah, and it's a few degrees above uh, above zero in the Celsius as well. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Whatever. We'll we'll survive this. Like All we right. have so many so, other things. Yep. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Ta-ta for now. Ta-ta, Penny. Now stay. <laughs> okay. So, Rama, you want to start? Yeah. I mean, in general, the news is that things are moving and more and more people are becoming more open to the awareness of these um, interdimensional activities between the physical existence of things that are considered normal in a third-dimensional context on Earth and things that are not so normal, like uh, other beings flipping switches and turning lights on and off. Uh, And that's a very good example. It's very physical. An easy way for me to describe it is that the multiverse or multi multiverses are intersecting, overlapping, overlighting our universe here, and it's all interconnected. Nassim talks about this, but I haven't really found anything late, you know, recent about it. I think that he's going to find the right time to show that. Yeah. In the meantime, we're going to start with Greg Braden. Yes. From Surviving to Thriving with Greg Braden. This is an hour and three minutes. So let's see what our brother has to say. Here we go. is an international spiritual movement whose purpose is to communicate and demonstrate the timeless truth that we are all one with the divine and all life caring for each other and the world we share so that people's actions reflect this profound understanding within our generation we believe that living this truth is essential to resolving the most chronic and acute world challenges and vital to creating a flourishing world of peace harmony and happiness We offer transformative education programs and 
personal and spiritual development, and we host an annual event called Global Oneness Day. Similar to Earth Day, which galvanized the global environmental movement, Global Oneness Day has become a catalyst for spiritual activism and an integral part of the present-day global oneness movement, which represents a profound new paradigm in human culture. Humanities Team is the only global nonprofit organization working in transformational education. Since we are a nonprofit, there is no focus on growing profits or satisfying shareholders, and 100% of all revenue goes toward our work supporting conscious evolution, planetary awakening, and flourishing at every level of life. If you'd like to learn more about us or want to support our mission directly through donation or volunteering some of your time, please visit us online at humanitiesteam.org. And lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, we'd be grateful if you'd leave us a review. Good day, everybody. Woo. Uh, I'm Steve Farrell, the uh, a co-founder, executive director of Humanities Team. You you see who uh, is here with me today. Yes, uh, Greg Braden coming in live from his home uh, down in New Mexico. I'm coming to you live from Boulder, Colorado. I'm going to introduce Greg here in a moment. But, uh, Greg, thanks for joining me this morning. Hey, Steve, I'm very much alive today on this uh, this beautiful pre-Thanksgiving day here in the, in the U.S. And um, I am coming to you from our, our studio just uh, outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. This is an unscripted program. It's, uh, it's you and I together, and I'm going to follow your lead, Steve. I'm looking forward to what we do today. So our theme here today is twofold. It's from surviving to thriving. So, and you know, in today's day and age, from surviving to thriving, we can certainly understand that theme and and its application. But we're also going to talk to a five year guide to your future. So, which is how we go from surviving to thriving. These are the amazing new programs we've been working on with Greg Braden since the beginning of the year. So, about ten months here uh, that uh, these programs have been in development. It's all baked. It's all done. The cohort is. Uh, free program is roaring now. The, the cohort for a five-year guide to your future is starting Tuesday. There's a virtual fireside chat day after tomorrow, Friday. Uh, so this whole thing is breaking big, and that's what we're going to talk to you about here today. Greg and I will be discussing how you can go from surviving to thriving and the technologies that are going to shape your future. Greg has recently collaborated with Humanities Team to create this an amazing free online video program. It's a 60-minute program called From Surviving to Thriving. It's available now. We'll tell you how you can uh, how you can register for that, as well as this amazing eight-week masterclass. It's called A Five-Year Guide to Your Future. This is the one launching next Tuesday uh, with the virtual fireside chat in 48 hours on Friday morning. So we're going to talk about all of that and more. And uh, Greg, again, uh, so good to be with you. The shoehorn, by the way, is uh, Greg got back not that long ago from Paris, uh, you know, a big tour over there. And then Sunday, he's off for this Holy Land tour. Probably some of you are going to go over and join him on the Holy Land with Bruce Lipton over there. Uh, so he's he's shoehorned all of this in here. And uh, we're grateful to, to have you, uh, Greg, before you fly out of town again on Sunday. Uh, well, thank you, Steve, so much. First, I want to say thank you and welcome to our community, everyone that's tuning in uh, live right now, sharing part of your, your day with us. Steve, I want to thank Humanity's team, and and it is a team behind the scenes that um, makes 
this kind of program and these kinds of courses possible. And, uh, Steve, it is a tight schedule. And I'm going to be honest, it, uh, it was tighter than we thought it was going to be <laughs> because we're still dealing with, um, cancellations and postponements of events over the COVID shutdowns that have been kicked down the road year after year after year. So that's why we have uh, so many events jammed up in such a, a short period of time here. But this is an important conversation, Steve, and that's why I felt it was worth uh, certainly the time and the energy to make this content possible. And I'm, this is an unscripted program we're doing today. Steve, can I talk a little bit about why I feel like this this program is important and, and what it means to us there? Are you okay if I do that now? Boy, please do, because I'm, I'm sure – you know, the, the, what, what's happening all over the world is the hand-wringing thing of, my God, we've got all these things going on. Is there any, any path that navigates to a beautiful future, which is, which is what has been created here? So, yes, please, please uh, tell us about it, Greg. Well, I'm, I'm going to begin. I was doing an interview recently, and I was talking about this program, and the interviewer just looked at me and said, Greg, why can't you just stick with one topic, you know, like everybody else? Why can't you zero in on one topic of – you know, health and healing or spirituality or, you know, heart-brain coherence or whatever. And uh, and I was a little surprised when I, I heard the question, but it was, it was a good question. And my answer surprised the interviewer because what I said is every, every facet of, uh, of all the topics I talk about, they represent a part of our lives. One facet of our lives uh, so the truth is I am sticking to one topic. It's just a really big one. It's us, and it's our relationship to the world. So, Steve, I think it's no secret to anyone with us today uh, that the, the world is changing. I mean, we all know that now, that there are multiple competing ideas about what the world should look like and what our society should look like, and there are multiple competing agendas behind those ideas. And what is different now from any time in our history is that, is that now we have a convergence of not only the ideas and the organizations and the corporations that want to change society and the world, but now we have the technology that is available. And these are all coming together. And the bottom line is that you, myself, our community, our global family, we're seeing more change in the shortest period of time that we've ever seen in recorded human history, certainly in our lifetimes. And the world is changing now and is about to change in even grander ways uh, than we have been prepared to accept uh, psychically, emotionally, spiritually, physiologically, emotionally. So this program was designed to cover the many facets of our lives and our world that are changing and to do so from the perspective of science, the new discoveries that give us options that we're simply not being told about in the mainstream. I'm describing discoveries that empower us with options that you're not going to hear on mainstream television, mainstream documentaries. You're not going to hear it in mainstream public schools, classrooms, or textbooks on the one hand. And then on the other hand, Steve, it makes all the difference in the world when it comes to to what our world is about to look like. There is a new world emerging. It's going to happen, and we can't stop it. And in many instances, I think we probably wouldn't want to stop it, Steve, because when we look at the world around us and we look at the systems that are buckling, and some of the systems are now collapsing, uh, the financial systems, for example, 
uh, energy systems, that uh, food production systems, supply chains, things like that. It can be overwhelming. But if you look close, Steve, what's really interesting is the only things that are buckling and collapsing are the things that are unsustainable. So when you see a lot of buckling and collapsing, it means we got a lot of unsustainability around us. Uh, so it could happen slowly, gradually over a long period of time. And because of global events, including COVID, it is now being compressed into a briefer period of time. So there's a new world emerging. It's going to happen with or without us. And we have a rare and precious opportunity. This little window of time, it's not going to last forever, where we have the opportunity to participate uh, in a number of ways in uh, sharing our voice, offering our voice in terms of what we now know is possible. But here's the catch, Steve. You can only do that. If you know that there are options, you can only uh, vote with your with your pocketbook, with where you buy your food, with what kind of energy you use, uh, your finances. You can only cast that vote uh, and even politically, literally cast the vote if you know that we have options. And, and many people simply don't know about the options. So I put this it's a 16 module course. It, it covers the, the, the big pieces from uh, from health and healing, certainly uh, we talk about that because that's the inner world that's changing and our ability to create resilience uh, in a healthy way to thrive, not just survive, but to thrive in, in this emerging new world emotionally, psychically, physically, physiologically. But also there are forms of energy that have been available to us for over 70 years that solve the problems that we're told that we have right now, including greenhouse gases and expensive Forms of energy. There are new new ways of growing food that uh, that are solving the problems created by climate change. Where soil based farming is a very risky business. It always has been. I have friends in my community that do this. With climate change, it's even riskier. And uh, and we want food security in the world. And we have technologies, healthy technologies, that help us to do that. A lot of people don't know about those. And they're not limited to farmers. They're things that you can do in, in your own. You can do it in your garage. You can do it in your living room. Uh, and a lot of people don't know that these things exist. We have new financial systems. And I'm making a distinction between finances and economy. The global economy is changing. Our financial systems are tied into the global economy. We have new financial systems that now uh, make it possible for us to create a parallel secure, transparent financial system, uh, not maybe 100%. We're all still in both of those systems, the, the legacy systems and the new systems emerging. But the new systems are being, or the old systems, the legacy systems are, are being manipulated, Steve, and we all know that. Uh, our currencies are being devalued. It costs more to buy the same things. Things haven't changed. It's just taking more of our currencies to, to buy those. And we have alternatives in terms of how we go about uh, building the financial systems, all of this is now available and, and much, much more. So what I've found from my live audiences around the world is, is I'll ask people, I'll say, who wants, who wants a new world? And everybody will raise their hand and I'll say, what would that world look like? And nobody's raising their hand. Or if they do, here's what they do, Steve. They take the world that we have now and the systems we have now, some of them were broken to begin with. They were corrupt. They're based on greed. They take those ideas and they try to build on what are what were bad ideas to begin with. And I'm, I'm, I'm contrasting that to the possibility we have now of imagining and creating 
what does this new world look like? What does localized living really mean? Localized food, localized economy, localized finances, localized sources of energy, and how do we implement those? And uh, and we can only do that. We can only hold the vision for the beautiful world that we know in our hearts is possible. We can only hold that vision in our reality if we know what it is that's possible. And that's why we put this program together. So we can talk about specifics of so the module, Steve. I'm happy to do that. But in general, uh, I wanted to say that this is a very healing program for me to bring together the opportunity to bring so many seemingly disparate uh, pieces of information together to weave it into a meaningful story for our lives with direct applications uh, and resources that we can use uh, immediately. So that's why I feel it was important, and um, uh, I hope that people enjoy this work as much as I've enjoyed putting it together for them. So oh, I'll stop there, Steve, and we can dive into the modules. Yeah, you know, yes, like we will. That. We're going to go look at a couple of, uh, uh, of added cuts from the master class here in just a second, so you're going to actually see uh, Greg in action. But let me first share some things Um the uh, th- this truly it's such a massive and powerful masterclass, uh, Greg. Thank you for kind of sharing the arc of what is covered here. Uh, so you know another way of kind of looking at this is as you know Ken Wilber's work is looking at these big turns in history as you go uh, from one uh, section of history to another to another. Uh, so in the Renaissance, of course, was one of those uh, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, others were involved in that big turn. And then Civil War was another big turn where there was this huge shift in in uh, kind of worldview and how we live our lives. Uh, so uh, and he shares, you know, we're now right at this other big, massive uh, turn where we're raising consciousness. Uh, so that that's one element of what is here. Another element is Barbara Marks Hubbard. I like to talk about the practical applications. She would talk about the spheres of life where she wanted to go down into healthcare, into finance, into uh, all of these different dimensions of life of what does it look like when we elevate consciousness? How, uh, what are we doing? What are the practical applications? So that's what's here. Uh, this is mm-hmm. what Greg has designed that it's the big massive U-turn right now where consciousness is being raised. It's the, the inner technology and the outer technology you mentioned finance, uh, mentioned agriculture. There are all of these different spheres of life where he's actually going right down into the practical application of what we can do living our lives in our home, in our communities, around the world right now as we navigate into this beautiful new future. Thus, thus the program is called A Five-Year Guide to Your Future. And it, it said, uh, you know, where it's just really putting it right there, the vision, the action steps, all of it on the ground, uh, so big, so powerful, so timely. Because, again, uh, there's so many people, uh, including in my own family, uh, with my brothers and sisters and things, where there's just really a lot of hand-wringing of how in the heck did we journey from here? Well, yeah. you know, here, here we, here you see it. So let's go to a cut now. I just got to chime in on something you said. Uh, this is unscripted, so I, yeah. I don't know if there's another place for me to do this. You know, I, uh, right before COVID, I was doing a presentation in uh, the Washington, D.C. area. And you never know who's going to come to a D.C. program. And and we have a lot of uh, political people that come to these programs, I think, more out of curiosity. They just want to check it out and see, you know, what's going on. So during one of the breaks, one of uh, one of these people came to me and asked if they could talk to me behind the stage. 
And so we went and we had a little conversation and it was a man. And what he said was really interesting. He said that there was a time, he, these are his words. He said there was a time that we thought we understood what was happening. So we being whoever the powers that be are looking at change in the world. And they have modeled and gamed out scenarios that they believed uh, that our society would move through and that uh, the world would move through as we go through these changes. But this is what he said to me. He goes, something has gone horribly awry is the term that he used. And he said, Greg, I'm uh, because our models aren't working. The ideas that we had, uh, the, the gaming theory has, has failed to account for something. Something is not working, and we'd like your input on what you think that might be. And I said, I don't even have to give that a second thought. I said, your models, unless they have accounted for human consciousness, cannot be accurate. Because consciousness and everything we're doing in these modules, Steve, knowledge is power. Our, our dear friend Bruce Lipton says that so eloquently. And everything that we're doing in these modules empowers us to think of ourselves in new and, and different and beautiful and powerful ways. And I, as a scientist, know it's possible to raise the standard of living and uplift humanity, every woman, every child, every man on the face of the earth, without depleting the resources and without taxing the environment the way that we've been told is going to happen and justifies so many of the policies that are causing the suffering today. So... It's consciousness, and that's why I wanted to jump on to what you just said. We are elevating consciousness, certainly in many ways. Meditation is certainly a big part of that. But the knowledge of how we express our spiritual energy, our imagination, our creativity in the world through the things that we need every day in life, food, energy, water, medicine, finances, communication, those are deeply spiritual principles and they all speak to the consciousness that now is emerging that they, whoever they are, they did not factor into their models. Now, I think it's fascinating. I think it's exciting. Uh, I think it's powerful. I, I would, I can't imagine a more exciting time to be on the planet. So no, I just wanted boy. to throw that in before we get into the specifics. Yeah, here. yeah, thank you. I mean, it's so much, uh, this really is an awakening is one way to frame it where we're, where, where there's this, uh, uplifting of consciousness where we're, we're, our consciousness is evolving into these whole new levels where our worldview, our applications, our way of living, you know, even in our homes is changing. And we were, as you mentioned, there are these legacy systems are breaking down, which is what always needs to happen when there's this kind of change. You have to get breakdown, doors need to close in order to get uh, doors, create the room for doors to open and these beautiful new ways to to live our lives, which is what this uh, masterclass is about. So again, it's called a five-year guide to your future. Uh, it's uh, on the Humanity Stream Plus platform. It's just just being brought there. The on Tuesday is the very first uh, day where this cohort goes through all of Humanity's team. Lots of people are signed up. There's still an opportunity to sign up uh, for Humanity Stream Plus and and Greg's other programs. He's got three other programs on the platform too: the Science of Self Empowerment. Technology, Consciousness, and Evolution, uh, Forbidden Science. This was a year ago, you might remember, with Nassim Harriman. In uh, this one, yeah. this is a Greg Bray masterclass. <clears throat> Nassim Harriman is a guest. Bruce Lipton is a guest, and John Peterson are guests. So <clears throat> unbelievably powerful. Uh, there's, again, we're actually going to share the names of the modules with you. He, there are two 
live recorded mentoring sessions, which Humanities Team always provides. So we'll get to all of that here in just a moment. Let's go to a cut, though, uh, from the masterclass, and then Greg and I are going to come back and talk about it. I'm just going to begin with change itself. You know, the we are the product of uh, a number of generations and a philosophy, a way of thinking that doesn't like change. We have been conditioned to believe that we live in a world that's static, that once uh, we find something that works, we, we create this perfect balance and everything stays just the way it is. And the truth is uh, anything but the truth is what we're living in because we live in a world of constant change. Nature actually abhors balance. And a lot of people are surprised when they hear me say that. Uh, but if you think about balance and perfect balance, if you think of scales that are perfectly balanced or an ecosystem that is perfectly balanced, if it's perfectly balanced, absolutely nothing is happening. It cannot happen because there is no impetus to achieve balance. The balance prevents the change. What we're seeking, Steve, is not balance. It's harmony. We're looking for harmony. This is harmony versus balance. We're looking for harmony in our lives with the changes, harmony in the choices that we make in balancing work and personal lives and finances. It's all about harmony. So I'm, I'm just going to begin by saying the world is always in harmony, but it may not look like what we have been conditioned to expect because we're expecting uh, a static world and we live in a dynamic world, a dynamic system. So the change is natural. The change is healthy. The question is, how do we respond to that change? And that's really what, what this program is all about. Okay. And such a profound point. Not not balance, harmony. Uh, going to go to Greg here in just one second, because uh, th this is one. There are many, many. Uh, the, the whole thing is profound. You know, when we talk about a five-year guide to your future, again, to weave together current research, current science, current applications. Uh, wow. You know, this was... Uh, uh, this was a massive job, and we're we're just incredibly grateful to be partnered with Greg. Greg Braden, uh, with his research, offers these beautiful, powerful uh, uh, paths, journeys to that mountaintop, which is why we we just really love partnering with Greg. I'm going to come over to you, Greg. So that was one, you know, very profound. This notion: people are looking for harmony, and you're saying, <laughs> you know, hey, uh, I'm sorry, they're looking for balance, and you're saying. Let's look at harmony, not balance. Yeah, well, first, I didn't know we were going to show a clip, so it's, it's always pretty weird to see yourself on a clip from, from an, another another uh, time, you know, a few weeks ago. And uh, I appreciate you sharing that, Steve. And I, I think it's, it's important because that concept applies to so many things in our lives. We, the past few generations, we have been taught to embrace the world as uh, is a static world. And to expect that things to be the same. And the truth is we live in a dynamic world of nature, always seeking that harmony. So when things begin to change, we're conditioned to believe something is bad or something is broken or something is wrong. Climate is a perfect example of this as a geologist. We've been talking about climate change since uh, I was a geologist in the 1970s. And letting people know that we are we need to expect and we need to compensate in the way that we live our lives, where we build our homes, 
don't want to be building your homes, you know, near uh, in floodplains and waterways. It'd be good to bury the power lines in vulnerable areas uh, of ice storms and big snowstorms and in the cold winter months because we can expect it makes sense to expect more uh, more extreme weather for the fact that we are in climate change. Now, humans have added to it through industry, but the geologic record clearly shows that before humans existed on Earth, we only appeared 200,000 years ago. And we've got climate records going back twice that, over 420,000 years before present. The rhythms and the cycles were there, and we are in one of those right now. So uh, this is just one example uh, of where it makes sense to expect change, and it makes sense to expect uh, dynamic systems. When we talk about being resilient, Steve, you know, there are there's a, a new model of resilience that we talk about in some of our courses called adaptive resilience. The old model of resilience is where you live your life and then something comes along unexpected and it knocks you out of balance. And then your ability to regain that balance is, is your resilience, your resilience, you're, you're trying to get back to normal. That's the old way of thinking. The new way, the adaptive re- resilience is where we live our lives with awareness and consciousness of the systems that surround us, of the fact that financial systems are in chaos, uh, agricultural systems are in chaos. Um, you know, the, the, the weather systems, the climate systems, our health systems, our immune response to things that are happening in the world. All of these things are in, in uh, dynamic change right now. And so it makes sense to live our lives taking those factors into account to expect the unexpected. And the first principle of resilience is a principle called spare capacity. Uh, nature knows this very well. Every Every animal, uh, every bacteria knows how to create a buffer uh, of what it is that is required for them to, to, to be alive and for them to, to survive in their daily lives because of vulnerability. And for some reason, Steve, that has kind of been factored out of our society. We've been taught that there's this homeostasis uh, and and that things are going to be the way they always have, and when they're not, we blame other people or we blame other systems or we get angry and we protest. You can do all that, and that's fine. But the reality is that we are living this rare, precious moment in the history of the Earth for climate change and the history of civilization uh, for social change, and it's it's a time where we can really take a look at what works and what doesn't. The things that don't work, let's stop doing them. The things that do work, let's put our energy into doing more of those things. And if you take away uh, the judgments and the politics and the greed from corporate interests and uh, big tech companies, if you t- take all that away, we've got the answer, Steve. And you and I talked about this before. It's a good news program. We have the answers to all the big problems in our world, and we've had them uh, for many, many decades now. We have the technological solutions. Now what we're looking for is the leadership. That leadership can only come from a change of thinking, and that change of thinking happens with each of us because we're all the leaders. We're the ones making these choices in terms of what we'll accept uh, and the way we choose to live our lives. And, again, those choices can only be made if we know what's available to us so we can hold a new vision. We can anchor in in the world what we know is possible in our hearts. And, and that is really where it all begins, Steve. It begins with a, a shift in the thinking 
and uh, the ability to hold a vision of what is possible in our lives rather than holding the vision of the things that we don't like and that aren't working from the past. And that is a really powerful distinction when it comes to consciousness. Yeah, yeah, boy, thanks for thanks for bringing that in. Uh, and people, you know, you might have thought, uh, viewers, and boy, we've got a huge viewing audience here today. So thank you all for being here. And also, we're flooded with questions, so, which we'll get to here. So and thank you for those. Uh, but you may have thought when you came, oh, this is going to be nice. We'll kind of watch, you know, uh, Greg and Steve talk, but you know, <laughs> Greg's bringing in. No, this is this is a huge level playing field here, you know, which is called Earth, and we're all uh, inhabitants of the Earth. And man, this is as we this is the moment that this whole shift, this this paradigm shift, this pivot to a whole new way of living, it's happening right now. That's what this is. And notice when you pick up binoculars, you know, and you and you first put them to your head. Uh, it's kind of it's very fuzzy, and then you kind of turn the the uh, binoculars, the lenses, and then and then it comes right into focus, and you can see whatever it is that you're pointed at. That's what we're doing here with this masterclass. So we all kind of have a fuzzy uh, picturing of of what agriculture and finance and inner technologies and these various things might be. Uh, energy technology is kind of fuzzy, so we're going to put on our binoculars. <laughs> And just go right into cutting edge technologies, applications, ways of living our lives where where our lives become delicious, candidly, you know, which is what conscious living is, where they're delicious. And then, yes, the other beautiful uh, aspect is where we're doing this together. All of us viewers of this, what I'm calling level playing field, all of us Earth inhabitants, uh, we create this what Bruce Lipton likes to call heaven on Earth, where you know it's a beautiful, glorious, sustainable, flourishing planet. That's. That's why we're here. That's why we're all so passionate. That's why we love this masterclass because, boy, uh, Greg does this in a big way. So it's called a five-year guide to your future. Let's go look at a second. Uh, this is a cutout from uh, the masterclass. This is where Greg is bringing in Nassim Harriman, who's a special guest uh, in this masterclass. Here, we'll go take a look now. It actually is a misnomer uh, in the question, meaning that there is no such thing that we've been able to observe as empty space. Uh, and That's and so mean, nothing like that has ever been found, and we've looked. You know, um, like if, for instance, if you think of the largest vacuum we know of, for instance, the space between galaxies. Well, even in that space, you find there's particles every few centimeters, right? So, so it's actually quite full. Um, but if you, if you were to look at the quantum space, right? Like the space in the atom, for instance, where the atom is made out of 99.9999% space. So like all of your reality, all of the things you call things, are actually made out of space. Well, when you look at that space, it's not empty at all. It's full of energy. It's full of fluctuation, electromagnetic fluctuation. Okay, just a, t- a teeny, teeny little <laughs> taste of what that module on, on these future energy 
technologies are. And then as we mentioned also Bruce Lipton is is uh, in also this masterclass as a special guest of Greg's. And then John Peterson uh, in as a special guest of Greg's. So, um, Greg, I'm going to read the names of these modules because you really are going to get a get a sense for, you know, when I talk about getting bringing the binoculars and getting clarity, you're, you're going to feel that when I read these names here. Did you Steve, want to say something? Steve, I, something, I, I want to do that, but can I just give a little bit of context yeah. to what we just Please saw with, with the SIM? So we... We have a number of uh, modules talking about where the energy that powers our our lives and our Earth come from, the energies uh, and technologies available now, uh, new technologies that are available and are using, and ultimate technologies. And uh, Nassim is a physicist, many of you know, and we were having a conversation, and I was asking him about how how close are we? to actually bringing the energy from what we call the, the quantum vacuum uh, into commercial applications in our lives, in our home, and how that can come from what people call empty space. And what you heard was him clarifying that there is no empty space, and it's precisely because of that reason that this energy is available, that we're tapping. We, we now have and we have had the technology to tap uh, what is in what used to be called empty space, and so that was part of that conversation. I just want people to, to know that was a little context around where that where that was a small piece of a 30 minute conversation. that's part of the course. Yeah. I mean, mind blowing. Just just this one little snippet uh, where we say, no, there's no empty space and it's full of energy and we can tap that energy. I mean, you know, stop and sit with that one. I mean, is that a mind blowing concept or what? <laughs> Uh, it is, Steve. And then the other piece, you mentioned that the, the title of this course, The Five-Year Guide, and one of the questions people keep asking, you know, why five years? You know, why not 10 years or one year? And the reason is because there is a, a, a movement to remake our world and remake society by the year 2030. We hear that from uh, as goals in the United Nations and from some of the uh, economic forums and things like that, uh, uh, a lot of tech spaces, corporations, they're all looking at this year 2030 as the time to implement uh, this sweeping change, but they're not going to wait until the year 2029 <clears throat> to begin. <laughs> so it, it's happening now. And what's happening over these next five years is is going to set the stage and determine for all of us uh, what kind of world we live in, and that determines how we're able to express our love, our uh, our imagination, our creativity, our innovation, to express in the world what we know is true in our hearts. All that is, is happening over these next few years, and I, I wanted people to know that we have options uh, that we can we can anchor into that vision of that beautiful new world that Bruce calls heaven on earth and the honeymoon effect. We can create a honeymoon on earth. Uh, and and we have everything already at our fingertips to do that. So that was that's why a five year guide, Steve. I just wanted to, in case someone just tuning in and has not been involved in anything else we're doing, I wanted uh, just to, to have that context as well. Yeah, so thank yeah, you. beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, and Greg uh, shares in the there's a lead up program to this uh, 16 module masterclass, which I'm about to tell you about. It's called From Surviving to Thriving. Uh, and uh, Greg just spontaneously, unscripted, just right at the beginning. So this is the the good news program, which which it is. You know, do we love ourselves enough? You know, and where we're conscious, yes, we do. Right, we we love ourselves enough. We love 
the world enough. We love earth habitants enough. We love the earth enough, you know, to, to do this. This is, this is our basis. And we see this deep connection, even oneness, right? Uh, so, but now, you know, we're not just going to sit up here with abstract concepts. This, this masterclass is going right down into it of, uh, of, of what all of these applications are and how we can live with these applications today uh, and in the near future in our lives. That's why it's called a five-year guide to your future. Okay, so let me um, just share briefly. I'm just going to read uh, the names of these modules here for Greg's Masterclass, a five-year guide to your future. Module one, a, a new world at the speed of love, the foundation for life, healing, and innovation. Module two, how to thrive in our world of extremes from Polarity and fear to unity thinking. Module three, the untold story of green energy. Why solar panels and windmills cannot be the answer to the world's energy needs. Module four, the Manhattan Project revisited the the lost bridge to clean, reliable, and sustainable energy. Module five, tapping the power of empty space, the ultimate energy for the future. Module six, Bitcoin, the vision, the power, the potential Module 7, Blockchain Technology, the Foundation of a Truly Free Society. Module 8, Compassion Machines, Giving Human Values to Artificial Intelligence. Module 9, Pure Human, We Are the Technology We've Been Waiting For. Module 10, we are, the vi- are We the Victims of Genes or Masters of Our Biology? Module 11, The Battle for Our Humanness, the Slippery Slope of Transhumanism. Module 12, from human to superhuman, what are the limits of our potentials? Module 13, vertical crops, the new farming to feed a hungry world. Module 14, earth safe zone, the nine parameters that we must protect for a habitable planet and the three we have already crossed. Module 15, too many people, the facts of earth's carrying capacity and the danger of thinking we've exceeded it. Module 16 and the wrap up, thriving in the emerging world. Where do we go from here? Okay, good, good. So in the green room, Elizabeth says, I'd like to hear about new, secure, transparent financial systems and localization. And I'll, I'll just say, boy, that's a big one. This masterclass goes right down into it uh, in lots of depth and detail. Uh, but, but Greg, is there any, any little thing we could share here about this? Well, so let, let me just say, say this. Uh, I have, in general, the, I've mentioned that the, the, the technologies are now available to free humankind from the shackles and the burdens of the greed and the fear that has been so pervasive in our past that we've come to accept it in in our lives. Uh, That technology is playing out in many ways, in terms of energy, in terms of food, in terms of economies, and in terms of finances. When we talk about finances, there is a, a technology, blockchain technology, that is in the news a lot right now, uh, and I want to speak to that. Let me just say the blockchain technology itself is uh, is a reflection in our outer world of the way that information is transmitted and stored in our inner world. Blockchain technology mimics the way information is stored in the DNA of every cell in our bodies. As uh, so many other technologies out there are actually mimicking what we already do in our bodies, except we do it better. So, and I talk a lot about that in, in this course, but blockchain specifically, uh, in, in every strand of DNA in your cells right now is a record. It is a transparent, immutable record of every genetic transaction that has led up to the moment uh, that your genome is expressing right now. 
That principle is what is playing out in blockchain technology. It is transparent. It has unprecedented security. Uh, we've never seen anything like this before. It is immutable. Uh, it cannot, the information cannot be changed when it's out there. And that technology underlies of many applications. So the blockchain technology is what makes this possible to decentralize your financial world, to make it possible for you and another person to have a peer-to-peer financial transaction without having it centralized, without having manipulated, without having uh, it changed, or without having your, your the privilege of your trust being abused. Now, there are applications that are using blockchain that are in the news, like the collapse of, uh, of some big financial firms that have abused the power of the technology. So the technology is intact. None of the fundamentals have changed. It is human greed uh, and the lack of regulation that has allowed the, that abuse. And this is this is an emerging technology. It's new, uh, and you're seeing a shakeout of what works and what doesn't. But please do not let the greed of a handful of people uh, bias you to shy away from the freedom and the sovereignty that the underlying technology allows for. And I and I do talk about that uh, in two modules. Uh, I have one specific module talking about blockchain technology and uh, decentralized finance and, and what it means. So, Steve, I'm just going to add on to this. Here's why this is important, and I want to say this to my my community, my global community. We in the spiritual community and the new thought community have been encouraged to separate money from our lives for so long, and many people have demonized the, the ideas surrounding money. I'm going to offer a little bit different way to think about this. We are spiritual beings expressing our lives through these these physical bodies. Everything, the energy that we expend each day is our spiritual energy, and we typically put it into one of three things. We put our spiritual energy into producing goods that other people can use, services that other people need, or information that that other people are asking for. Goods, information, and services. We are compensated with something that represents our spiritual energy and uh, and we entrust our spiritual energy into this this compensation that we call money. Well, the idea of money has changed over the years. I talk about that in this um, in the course as well. And human greed has intervened, and we are now trusting our spiritual energy to systems uh, that have violated our trust. They betrayed our trust. And this is why I think it's important because your spiritual energy uh, is so precious and it's so valuable. You deserve to have your energy honored in ways that uh, reflect your heart's desire, your freedoms, uh, transparency, honesty, truth, truthfulness, and, and factual uh, information. That technology now is available to us, and it's going to happen in this generation. And, I mean, it's already happening right now. It holds such a threat to legacy systems that there are narratives being created so that people will shy away and be afraid of these new technologies. So I'm going to invite you. It's just not to to choose one way or another, right, wrong, good, or bad. I'm just going to invite you to do your due diligence 
and really look at the, the fundamentals of what we have uh, available to us today. Look at the fundamentals of the existing system. Look at the fundamentals of, uh, of what we now know is available to us through these new technologies. And then you can make reasonable and responsible, uh, mature and informed choices. And that's really uh, what this is, is all about, to know that we have those choices and to make them, this is really important, to make the choices from the love of what we know is possible rather than from the fear of what happens if we don't make those choices. That is a powerful, powerful shift in thinking. Making the choices from the love in our hearts of the joy and the freedom that we know is possible rather from the fear of competition and loss and scarcity that we've been conditioned to accept. So I'll stop there, Steve, but that uh, that is a kind of a... a, a umbrella answer to a very specific question, but it also applies to some other things that people are asking about. Yeah, boy, what a beautiful way to frame it. That was beautiful. <laughs> uh, you know, because we are, we, of course, you're watching, we know we're spiritual beings, right? That we're all of this interconnection, interdependence, we're actually, there's actually one or an emanation of one energy that's a living and breathing energy in the universe that uh, program that preceded this that uh, Greg and the Sim put together called Forbidden Science. They just come flat out and say we're sovereign to one body. You know, we're this spiritual energy. We're sovereign to this one body. And we can call in humanity's team. We call it the divine. Uh, though, you know, universe, uh, cosmos, life, love, creator, it works fine. <laughs> we choose our term. But but it's a loving energy. Its basis is love. Uh and uh, also the science is, is uh, says that it is, is non-dual. You know, even you look out at this James Webb telescope at the beautiful galaxies out there, uh, it's harmony, you know, not balance, but harmony. It's beautiful. <laughs> so science and spirituality are converging. And, uh, boy, Greg's research just picks up on all of it and brings it right into focus in terms of what this means in our daily lives. So, okay, we're going to go to another question here. Um, so this is another one in the green room. Uh, it says, uh, can Greg expand on his thoughts about population growth? Is it concerning or is there a greater purpose? So this is from uh, Bejet, uh, Greg. Well, this is a really good conversation, a really good question. I addressed this in uh, one of the modules. And what I will say to you right now is that the uh, the fear that has been generated over population growth on our planet uh, has been used to manipulate ideas, to manipulate uh, societies, and to cause tremendous suffering in people's lives in ways that, are, in my opinion, are not necessary and are not justified. When uh, when we look at population right now, well, while while we're building this course right now, November fifteenth, twenty twenty two, statistics say the eight billionth baby was born onto the planet. We know that's not exact. There's no way to, to tell exactly, but approximately 8, 8 billion people. When, uh, what the science is telling us, and um, the UN supports some of these, we have enough food. We, we do not have a problem with food production. We have more than enough food. We produce one and a half times the amount of food we need to feed every mouth of every child, woman, and man on the face of the earth. It's not the lack of food that's causing the suffering. It's the thinking that has yet to make it a priority to get that food where it is needed. That same principle applies to land mass. We have more than enough land. It applies when you exclude the mountains and the deserts that are difficult to live in. Uh, we have more than enough land for uh, for the population we have now. 
when you look at the water, uh, fresh water is, uh, is a rare and precious resource. We have more than enough fresh water if it were distributed and given the priority to get to the people it needs. UN says we've got this food through uh, the year 2050, which is an interesting year because the population statistics show that human population will peak right around the year 2050 at 10, 10 billion people, just a couple of billion more than we have right now. Here's where it gets alarming and what a lot of people are not talking about. Earth is actually in population decline. And the fertility rate of humans across the earth is alarmingly declining yes. for reasons that are surprising a lot of scientists. The uh, Just to maintain the population, every woman on earth would need to produce, uh, to, to have, have 2.1 babies. And that's what's called the replacement rate. We've already dropped below that. So more people are dying than are being born right now. We have the resources we need to support uh, every everyone on the earth that we have right now, the concern is what's going to happen, uh, you know, in, in the future. When I say fertility rates, it's both male and female. The, the sperm count for men in uh, 1975 was about 90 million per sperm per, uh, per milliliter, I believe is the unit that they're using, 90, 90 million. In uh, 2011, uh, it dropped... And in 2000, it dropped to 47 million. And in 2021, it dropped to 40 million uh, sperm pill per milliliter, 40 million uh, sperm per milliliter. This is alarming because that is right where conception becomes difficult. It's considered low sperm count, 40, 40 million. So we're now uh, at that point or below. And all of these are being attributed to environmental toxins, what are called anti-androgens. Uh, I talk about this in the, in the course. It's in our foods. It's in our water. It's in our cooking utensils. It's in our cosmetics. Uh, it's also being attributed to uh, to a number of other factors. Too too much to go into right here. So the the point is all to say that certainly population is always a concern. We have to be careful. The danger of sounding an alarmist bell. Uh, over a growing population and justifying policies that hurt people and cause suffering uh, is not supported by the evidence that's out there. And I'm going to invite people, again, do your due diligence. Don't fall prey to uh, to the alarmist policies that hurt our brothers and sisters. And uh, And we need to use common sense. But the statistics right now are showing that humankind actually is in danger. If this trend continues, uh, what we're finding is conception is going to become more and more difficult, and that opens the door to a very different vision of our, our future and of our world. So, Steve, it's, it's hard to do justice to this conversation in just a few brief moments, and I know some of the things I'm saying are counter to what we're hearing in the mainstream. Uh, they're counter to what my biology friends are writing to me about right now, but I have to be honest. Uh, this is what the statistics are showing right now. I was surprised when I saw them. And um, and I think it's something we need to take into consideration because policies are being written, laws are being created, and society is being asked to think in a certain way based on beliefs that right now are based in uh, information that's not supported by the data. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. So what a uh, a great encapsulation of, of just the wisdom here when we talk about 
population growth and where our concern should be. So thank you for that, Greg. Um, okay, the next question, there actually are many different permeations of this question being asked by many different people, including actually on our uh, on our Facebook page, the Humanities Team Worldwide Facebook page, there were a number of questions that were similar to this uh, earlier this week also. And, and the questions have to do with, uh, Greg, you make the statement that the solutions are here now. So, uh, and, and Harlan, I think, kind of frames this well. Harlan says, is it like anything else? We have the solutions. We simply don't want to act on them. So, so he's trying to, to, to guess where you say we have the solutions. What people are trying to understand, you know, do we really have them? What's this about? You know, uh, one of the things I was asked a few years ago at a, uh, at a, a, a conference, Someone asked me, Greg, why don't you bring together the, you know, the thinkers, the scientists, the engineers, the religious leaders, the political leaders, and, and get everybody together in a room and, and solve the problems of the world. And, and what I had to say is that's already, I didn't do it, but that has already happened. And it happened, uh, it's happened a couple of times in the 60s and the 70s when the solutions were, we've had the technology. Uh, unfortunately, there are other parameters. There's politics, there's greed, there are competing agendas from different groups and organizations and, um, and nations over what the future of Earth should look like. And the solutions, the technological solutions that have been chosen have been chosen to support certain uh, visions and, and agendas. Well, I'm just going to give you a perfect example. I was a, when I was working in the energy industry, uh, I was a geologist in the 1970s. In the 1970s, there was, uh, there were carburetors that were required on all gasoline internal combustion engines. There were carburetors that were designed to get uh, over 90 miles to the gallon. And those were not allowed to be made commercially available because of the impact to the energy industry. If your car back in the night, and if you've got a muscle car, you know, a, a Mustang GT or a, a Pontiac GTO or Dodge Challenger, I'm, I'm reliving my muscle car years. <laughs> but if you've got those, you know, and they're, they're getting 10 miles a gallon and that, that creates a demand for, for fuel. And all of a sudden we've got carburetors now that are getting 90 miles a gallon. What does that do to the demand of fuel? I'm using that as one specific example for what has happened in many different areas, the technologies are available. Uh, and for whatever reasons, typically they are economic or philosophical. And this is important because the technologies are adopted to support the philosophy of what we as a society claim that we want our world to look like. And uh, if we do not participate, it makes us vulnerable to the ideas and the visions and the philosophies of others who are more than willing to participate. And that's why it's so important that we become active participants now that we know about some of these technologies that, that are available uh, to replace, you know, fossil fuels for energy uh, while still producing zero greenhouse gases and honoring the environment. Or, or when it comes to the human body, Steve, it's something we can all do uh, is to understand that we are, we literally are a highly advanced, technologically sophisticated, soft technology, not computer chips and chemicals and wires and sensors. We are neurons and cell membranes. 
cell receptors and uh, crystalline structures in, in the blood and the bone. And we self-regulate and we upgrade and we identify and repair and heal and rejuvenate. Uh, we can do it on demand. And this changes the narrative of how we live our lives in the world. It frees us from living in the fear of what may happen to choosing uh, a way of living and a way of life that allows us to love without fear. And, and when we do that in here, Steve, those ideas and that philosophy are reflected in the way we think about society. They're reflected in the technologies that we uh, ask for, in the technologies that we demand, in the technologies that we embrace in the world around us, because our worldview has shifted from one of scarcity, lack, and fear to one of uh, abundance, one of innovation, creativity, imagination based in love. And it's hard to separate what's happening in here from the world out there. That world is a reflection of the way that we, it's our story, the way we've been taught to think of ourselves. And so now there's a new human story emerging. This course is just a small part of that, Steve. And there are a lot of people doing a lot of good work to, to help us to write the new human story. And it's a beautiful, powerful story of hope and possibility. Uh, and that's why it's the Good News Program. So that was a long answer to a short question, but I wanted to, to say those things uh, because I want to leave our community with with a sense. I'm an optimist, but I'm also a realist. And I'm, an, I'm optimistic about our future. Realistically, we're in the change. And the only way out of it is to go through it. The question is, do we go through it from a place of thriving or do we go through it from a place of just surviving? And knowledge is power. And the knowledge that we're sharing and, and other people, there are a lot of people sharing a lot of knowledge. It empowers us to choose love and to choose that thriving and, and to reflect that in our policies and our politics uh, that bring us together for the vital resources that we need every day in our lives. So, so that's where this all comes together, Steve, in a really beautiful way. Science, policy, politics, human potential, it all comes together as what we call life. And, uh, and so here we are. Yeah, here we are. It's uh, beautiful. And, and let me share, um, Greg often brings in, you know, the, the aspect of on demand. We can do it on demand. One of the examples, there are many examples he's, he, he brings in when he talks about how the on demand works. One was where he was bringing in the heart math research that of mother and, and baby, uh, 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 where there was a cohesion there between mother and baby that the heart math research uh, detected and brought in exactly what that cohesion was, how it worked, what was going on on demand, and and then applying that to other parts of our life, how we can, even now, like right now, there's uh, you you viewers and Greg and I, where there's a cohesion between us, an on-demand thing that's happening, where we can actually create this cohesion between any group or the whole of the earth or the whole of the cosmos. Uh, it extends to, to, to the smallest group and the largest group uh, that we can do on demand. So, But I love the way you bring in these examples of what that means because, of course, it sounds so appealing, uh, but then you go down into the research of, no, this is how the on-demand thing works. That's This is how the cohesion is created. Uh, so you'll you'll get that in this uh, master class. You'll get it in all of Greg's programs, actually in his books too and his tours. So, uh, so a five-year guide to your future – uh, we've just kind of gotten to a little taste of it here during this program. You know, again, uh, 
Uh, 48 hours from now, Greg is uh, is going to be doing this virtual fireside chat with people that register today or tomorrow. You can register. Uh, you really want to do it by tomorrow night because then you'll be given the link to this uh, program that starts, I think it's at 10 a.m. Pacific on uh, Friday. This is the virtual fireside chat. And then on Tuesday next week, the very first cohort, uh, all of humanity's team, all of these people that have already signed up, uh, those of you that desire to do so, will launch uh, the program Tuesday next week. And then it's an eight-week program. Though you could go through in a couple of weeks if you wanted uh, and come back through mm-hmm. as many times as you like. And, uh, and we encourage you to all of Greg's programs check out Forbidden Science in particular, uh, this most recent one with Nassim Harriman and Greg Braden. We'd encourage you to check that out because there's a basis there of science that really uh, nicely supports all of what Greg has put together here. So uh, with that, uh, there's so much more we could share, but we've, uh, again, given you a little taste. I, I thank you for being here with us. Happy Thanksgiving to you, uh, those of you in the U.S., uh, those of you over in Europe. Boy, maybe you're joining Greg for his Holy Land tour. I guess that's that's launching here next week. Uh, so thanks for being with us. Next week, we've got uh, uh, we're going to start an hour later. So at 10 a.m. Pacific on November 30th, Neil Donald Walsh, a special guest, Deborah Poneman, Jude Curvan, a bunch of others are coming in. We're uh, going to talk about this initiative that Humanities Team, Neil Donald Walsh, the Conversations with God Foundation, and many of our partners uh, support. It's called Changing Humanity's Future through Conscious Community and Transformational Education. It's an 18-year project to make conscious living, which is what we, we could be calling this, you know, where we talk about all of this aspect of, you know, that we are spiritual beings and navigating this journey to another way of living in our homes, in our communities, and in the world. So this, uh, we're going to bring it all together, bring into focus what this initiative is, what progress we've made, what steps are out in front of us. Uh, it uh, starts at 10 a.m., Pacific next uh, Wednesday, the 30th. Uh, it's live, uh, unscripted. Join us for that program. Uh, if you like the idea, it's going to be a really powerful, really important program. So uh, i come back to just to hope uh, you know a lot of viewers are here in the U.S. So enjoy your Thanksgiving. Uh, Greg, thank you so much for being with us here today. Uh, so, hey, with that, we better sign off and just offer you all love, peace, and blessings. We do love ourselves enough. And let's go do it. Let's go live this glorious lives in these next five years and beyond. All right. Let's go. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much. Happy Thanksgiving. Love you all. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. Love you all. Yeah. Thank you. If you'd like to receive all of our new podcast episodes, please click on the subscribe button. To find out more about Humanities Team Transformational Education Programs and about how you can help support our mission, please visit us online at humanitiesteam.org, where you can also sign up for our email list so we can let you know about our free online events and other news about what we're up to each week. And again, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Thank you. Okay, everybody. Humanities Team. Dot org. So, and Ram is going to sign up too, right? Mm-hmm. So, we're going to do the next thing here. And this is with our sister Barbara Walters. Sandra Walters. Excuse me, I say it every time. What a mistake. 
night and day. Excuse me. Please forgive me. Thank you. All right, Sandra Walters. And she's being interviewed by a gentleman named Alan Steinfield. And the topic is star beings, contact, and ascension. And this is an hour and 26 minutes. Am I right, Rama? Uh, hour, yeah. Uh-huh. All right. Let's do it. We'll just get it done before the break. Here we go. Did you hear any of that lecture there, Sandra? I certainly did, brother. Lovely. <laughs> I was like, ooh, can he stay on and we can have a conversation? Because yes, let's have a conversation because I, I, I always, I, I mean, I don't know you very well, but the times I've interacted with you, there's, you have, there's a vitality and even more so now than when I saw you last time. You're, you're tapping into something and you know, I know you teach ascension, but I've never really heard because I'm sure you've had, you don't just teach something because it's interesting. It's something's happened to you, Sandra. I want to know what it is. If you don't mind. <laughs> uh, precisely. Yeah. You, we don't teach anything that we, we can't comprehend or experience ourselves. You know, that's the way to stay in integrity and purity with this whole thing. But I have to say just this year, there has been an unshakable, deep, true uh, heart connection with source or the I am presence that even myself, somebody who has experienced multiple levels of activation throughout this process, this is just unprecedented. And the thing about... Um, Having a, a unified collective, you know, I have people that I work with and guide and students and everything. But when we start having collective activations, same day, same moment, that, that kind of thing, we can see how unity consciousness itself is really stepping forward into providing uh, more unified experiences. But the kind of purity, the new harmonic frequencies that are getting through because of the diminishment of the magnetosphere. And when we have geomagnetic storms, which no coincidence, we are in one in this now moment, this day, um, the, the veils, which are the magnetic fields, allow now new frequencies and new levels of information. And when that information comes into a prepared bio landscape or a prepared consciousness that's ready to interpret those frequencies on behalf of the collective, beautiful things start to occur. And I love that now that we're able to hold that frequency on behalf of any willing heart that wants to step into that experience, it kind of auto-corrects the realities around you so you start getting a different experience yes we're using different parts of the heart crystalline stargate function definitely different fields and um, and codes within the golden race dna but the most interesting thing to me is the experience itself it's really washing away the past washing away narratives that are just not applicable 
to that that level of consciousness. And the beautiful thing with having contact, if you want to call it that, or being a conduit for star family information or higher realm information, is that you start experiencing realities or levels of consciousness or experiences here in the way that our star families always have. So for me, somebody who's had contact since I was a child, it was always fascinating to me their perspective, right? That cosmic perspective that was unified and calm and wasn't concerned about drama and ill trajectories or anything like that. They were like, put your focus here, right? Put your focus here on the ascension. And that now is is unveiling just different ways of walking in these worlds, different ways of changing collective realities. And it really dissolves um, all the flotsam of the old paradigm very quickly. You know, I see when I see you, and I, have, I think I've seen you in person, yes, and you think you have an illumination. Something's happened to you, which... Is an accelerate. Can you talk about that a little bit personal, if you don't mind sharing? Because I see it in you. I see the energy, even on video here. Something's going on there with you. And it, you know, it sounds wonderful and it's lovely that you can witness that, but I have to say it's not a, it doesn't feel like a personal thing, right? It feels like the source is starting to create a different experience right through all these crystalline or Christed conduits and the, the path of the ascension that was laid out uh, for, for me to interpret and facilitate here always included this, this Christed, crystalline, unity, crystal, you know, it all means the same thing. But it included this frequency of consciousness that would unify the, the lower self, if you want to call it that, with infinite creator, with other aspects so suddenly you don't get the experience of separation. But another focus of the ascension process was the biophotonic metamorphosis that we're all going through, where it's like, look, in order for a divine human to express on this ascended planetary consciousness that already exists, right? We're just migrating realities to that already ascended planet in the perspective of, uh, of what I've received. So that already ascended planetary consciousness is a platform for beings that can exist in the old form. So all this emphasis on crystalline DNA and getting into the Christed state and activating that crystalline stardust within was purposeful. So you're literally going to express as a light being. And even though it seems like, you know, 20 years ago when I, 1999, when I first started receiving information about that, it seemed far-fetched. It was very hopeful. It was like, I don't know. And you follow and you walk the path. And the next thing you know, you've got sparkling skin, like literally, you know, there's like crystalline people call it God's glitter, you know, but literally you could see the crystalline particles and the crystalline structures that we've been calling forth for all these years, suddenly becoming very physical and then they become receiver generators of this new level of consciousness, but it's also light-based, right? It's a very light-based technology, a light intelligence 
it's coming into form. So to be able to witness it in my own journey is remarkable. But I have to say that um, the connection with star beings, since we're talking about star beings through this whole thing, um, becomes quite seamless. It uh, it takes away all of the sensationalism that was around uh, contact and and uh, extraterrestrials, if you want to call them that, of the early days. You know, you're just watching those stories kind of fade. You're like, yeah, that's was the old trajectory. That's interesting, right? So the parameters for our reality suddenly widen. You start getting a cosmic perspective, and that cosmic perspective does not include focusing on uh, drama or what went wrong. It's very much put your focus on creating the new. You have to learn how to be a creator being again within the parameters that Gaia is providing for that 5D, 9D, 12D, you know, ascended new earth realms. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense to me because I feel the reason we've incarnated is to be creator beings, to mm. emulate creation. And it's not about the old dramas. When you are creators, you're, you're making known the unknown, which is one of the teachers I had said. Mm. We're here to make known the unknown. That's not to recycle the ignorance and the dramas of the past, but to bring new experience to human civilization. Um, in the form of art, creativity. I and mean, that's my understanding as sharing your experiences or being a great teacher or a mother or whatever it is that activates your creative potential is adding to creation as creators. And what I see in you or I feel, and if you don't mind talking, that there's a quickening that's happening vibrationally as the biophotonic natures of the cells start to ignite. Can you talk about, not personally in a sense, but what's the quickening, what's the feeling? I want to understand what you're feeling. Yeah, yeah and the feeling, wow, on some days it's the, it's a trance-like blank mm. stare, right? Sometimes it's so much information, but it can't be interpreted with the mind. They always say, don't go to the mind, go to the heart. Right, because the heart is getting activated in in a very different way, and all of the gatekeeping that I've done, you know, I've done extensive work with with the organ restoration of the organic stargate system, and they were like, well, of course, you know, this organic stargate system that exists within the mm-hmm. spark of the creator that's within us is going to start being able to receive different frequencies, different information, and sometimes it feels overwhelming. And sometimes it feels, and not overwhelming in a dramatic sense, so I'm not pacing the floor and weeping. You know, it's not like that. It's a very, it's a very still kind of zero point calmness that, that again, you know, the, we were talking yesterday about, um, the inability to create distortion, like suddenly that level of the DNA starts kicking on and it just, it doesn't even cross your mind or your heart to create just personal distortion, any kind of conflict, you know, it's just not interesting. It's just, you know, it just, you lose your fascination with duality completely. It's beautiful. Right. 
Isn't it because, this is just my opinion, the personality starts to drop away, so there's no personal thing. And I, and let me ask you, Sandra Walter, the personality, <laughs> which is lovely, very nice person, but that is a fractal of the greater being you're becoming. You, you are, we think we are connected to archetypes, but we actually are a fractal of these, I wouldn't even call them archetypes, but these greater consciousness beings, we appear to be these individuals, but who we really are is an emanation of those divine aspects. Correct. Correct. And I feel like the um, positive dissociation that happens when you get into this uh, loss of identity crisis, if you want to call it that, um, it's just suddenly... You know, it's just the facade drops. You're not capable of holding personality constructs in the same way anymore. And for for me, you know, we're walking people through this with, uh, you know, with a lot of the teachings right now because it does. It kind of shocks people. They're like, well, because the, the mind still wants to go to the old neural pathway of who am I and what am I doing here, right? And when you kind of let go of that... Of course, you're going to use a, a placeholder, Sandra Walter, you know, and it just even speaking that that word just feels so foreign. You know, as we go through this, you're like, what? You know, even connecting with you, brother, I don't think we've ever met in person, but we've been talking for a long time. You know, I mean, that's it's just that kind of thing. We're like, of course, Alan, right? You know, quote unquote. Um, but that it's just again, you get into that creator state of consciousness and you really get the most beautiful thing for me is the sense, the direct sense of source having an experience of multiverse, of universe, of a planetary consciousness going through ascension, of a body going through ascension. And when and rather than a personal perspective on, oh my gosh, this is happening to me. And what about, you know, my body is going through all these changes, everything. It just kind of, you consistently get pulled up into this cosmic perspective of enjoying, right? Everything that's happening, not attached to the drama, but enjoying that. And a lot of, a lot of reminders from the higher realms. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about this. It's all getting taken care of. Just, you know, just follow this sensation and the sensation, especially when you're an active participant. And I do feel you have to be an active participant in the ascension process or you don't get the gold, right? (laughs) Have a good experience of, wow, this is really um, unfathomable to the person I was 10 years ago or whatever. It's just the, the expansion just kind of continues to snowball into something greater and you lose your attachment to, wow, what am I going to be in five years, 10 years? It just doesn't matter anymore. I think that's an important word to to use. It doesn't matter anymore. You're not creating uh, in the dense brick and mortar structures that you used to engage with. But this sense of connection to source, I am presence, it just kind of sweeps all the personal stuff out of the way. That said, embracing creativity at all costs, 
is uh, definitely part of our journey here that's been reemphasized. You know, I wrote a book back in 2004 called The Creator State, you know, just talking about artists, creative people who would then create at the same time and create shifts in reality. And here we are all these years later actually doing this, right? Because every time we engage with infinite possibility and just let the heart and the creativity expand a little bit more, even if you don't have the tools to create what it is that you envision or feel, just following that impulse from the heart, from the creator itself, creates more infinite possibilities, not just for your personal experience, but for all of us who are facilitating this ascension right now. I think all of, we're all creators because we've incarnated to be creators, to emulate the creator or creation. That is our mission. And it's innate in all of us until it's been programmed and conditioned and, you know, beaten out of you to be that. And then you kind of narrow the focus. But the creative aspect of being is the wave of ascension that we're coming into, I feel. The, that movement is to kind of be at the edge of each moment with with no anticipation but open. Mm-hmm. And that's how I see it. It's like surfing. You're at the edge of the board, surfing into the next moment, the next moment that has no prerequisite to the past. Yeah, correct. And there's been experiences like for um, the the groups that that I've created and and when we play with, even in like Crystalline Convergence, um, the last couple of years, a significant jump in our ability to hold zero point, to get everyone into that state and then use that fertile soil to plant our intentions. And then I noticed um just this year in uh back in May we got to a stage where we were in such complete silence complete harmony we do toning and invocations to get us there but once we had reached that and we have singing bowls playing we're all toning you know getting into a purer and purer and purer purer state of zero point together and then the entire event ended in silence Right. Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted to leave that field. And then we noticed that because collectively, right, we're doing things with our DNA, we're doing things with our consciousness, all of our trajectories changed. Mm-hmm. Right. All of our everyone was just in calmer states, more peaceful with their own journey. And if that's something that we can then disseminate out into the collective just by a few of us getting together and doing that, that to me is very exciting because it'll provide stability through the more intense um, ascension frequencies and and narrative shifts and changes in trajectory that we have coming over the next couple of years are unprecedented. I know that word's used a lot, but it's 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 true. You know, it's that's an accurate description of what's coming. Well, it's true because there's the density that of the old grid that's still holding on to some of the DNA, and I think it has to be shaken loose. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, that process is about shaking it loose, the, the past, the, 
the, the, the grid of limitation, whatever you want to call that, until we get to where you're leading people into a field of, of harmony and resonance that's at, at a maybe fifth dimension, whatever you want to call that ascension level. Mm. But we, and you're doing the work on yourself, I can feel it. So you're resonating the field mm. that people can then step into as well. So that's why I totally appreciate what you're doing. I did see the end of one of your conferences. I saw you at the Creative Life Center and I felt the energy of that field. So, um, yeah, and then more is coming to you. It's like you're just you're just opening up to those. I mean, not just, but I feel there's so much more coming in it as, you know, you call this placeholder. That's a great way to put it. The placeholder starts to dissolve and, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, you know, my, my motto was always let us show humanity what is possible with ascension because mm-hmm. when, um, when a soul is experiencing the kind of dreamlike density, um, it needs to, you know, a lot of people need to be shown what's possible in order for them to go, Oh, okay. Now it's safe to go in that direction. So I feel like the, all the collectives that are, working on demonstrating what's possible with not just human consciousness, but what's possible with um, the, the form being able to carry more source, more creator state of consciousness, the Christed state, that unity, trinitized beingness, um, the more people will trust it. Right. And it, but it does have to be a personal experience at first, right? Yeah. It all depends on choice. I think for you and what you're teaching, it's not just trusting. It is that, but you're emanating it. You're mm-hmm. actually transmitting it as, you know, because you're holding the space and, and you're creating the field as you walk into the field. You, if you're willing to be there, you let go in and it initiates that acceleration. That's what I'm feeling mm-hmm. as you emit the ascension possibilities. Um, have you heard of the term the assemblage point at all? Do you know what that means? Yes, I have. Right. So I think that's one way that the Toltecs use to turn their body into light. Mm-hmm. You know, to what they call burn from a fire from within. Right. Focus on that. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the assemblage point assembles realities and it feels like you are elevating people to these other realities. That well, that that's the beauty of contact or being a conduit is we've been talking about this for a long, long time, right? And it has been demonstrated on this planet before, kind of a one-off mastery or star beings coming in and going, this is what you can do. And then they depart, right? And there's all the stories and they get distorted. <laughs> so now... That it's a collective thing instead of kind of a one-off mastery kind of situation. Um, there's, there's definitely, um, a washing away of the barriers between, uh, our, ourselves as if you want to call us a human race. You know, there's definitely the creation of something new going on with the divine human genome, which a lot of star races seem to be interested in, but I feel the, the more like my relationship with star beings or higher levels or ancients of days or like my 
source spark coming through like paradise suns, which is a star consciousness. Um, there's, there's such an intimacy and this is something that if I could just wave a wand and grant everyone access, um, I would certainly do so, but there's an intimacy with higher levels of consciousness, even beyond form like paradise sun, just beyond form. Um, that is so beautiful and so gracious and provides a stability for for walking in these realms and walking through all of these energies that is so precious to me and and something that feels like if there's anything sacred that that would be it besides source itself is that intimacy that you start feeling with other forms of consciousness other realms of consciousness that then rather than it being kind of the uh, old-fashioned way of uh, here's a message from so-and-so here's a message from so-and-so like all of that just uh, that dissolved very quickly for me i was like i don't want to be that kind of channel channel period period like i'm not talking to you i know that's very mundane that's very what you're bringing it's in served right it's served i don't want to criticize it at all it's no judgment it's just it's served for a while and now we are we are open to levels of consciousness that kind of want nothing to do with I'm going to give you a message about what's going to happen next January. You know, it's just you know, it's it's oh, seamless. I know it's so old, and I mean because it's not about the personal anymore. And and yet I love what you said. It's intimate. It's intimate without the personal me, my my history, all that. It's. It's intimate in a way that's beyond our own personal self of ego. Maybe I'll say it that way. Or even the collective ego of thinking of us as like, oh, this planet is so important and the human race is so important. It's like, okay, what's really going on here, right? This is source having a beautiful dream, a beautiful experience. And if you can kind of resonate with that, even for short periods of time, you start getting a different perspective on this entire thing. And then it does. It becomes quite beautiful. Even the distortion and the dismantling of distortion is beautiful. It's not something to like push for, fight for. You're like, hmm, the vibration will handle it. If you put your focus on amplifying that higher vibration, it's a natural effect of the quantum of quantum physics, the higher vibration shakes apart the lower vibration and it either dissolves or it gets absorbed and pulled up into the higher thing. And if you can just put your perspective there and then treat your personal journey that way, you then start becoming part of this larger consciousness that's having this overhauling of the realities, right? Changing the entire paradigm of a universe, of a multiverse, you know, we're, we're very aware that things are happening across all realms, all parallel realities, seen and unseen. There is not one fractal untouched by what is happening right now within source itself, right? Within the multiverse itself. And yes, we kind of focus on our own little neighborhood, right? Because it's a corporeal experience. 
until it isn't anymore, right? It's the, it, you know, feels very physical. And then as it becomes much more non-physical, uh, you, it, it's beautiful that we've had so much contact because we have examples of like, how can my star family, you know, fade in and out of my reality and walk through my tent and land or, or whatever it is that's going on. Um, and I've always been curious about how, um, they, other aspects of self, if you want to call it that, um, were able to do all the beautiful things that, that they can do. And even like last night, like we're in the ultimate star beings conference, right? My bedroom's full of beings. And I'm like, Oh my goodness, you know, but it's become so second nature to me. You know, it doesn't even phase me anymore, but, um, but it's beautiful to have that experience of, uh, an intimacy with all these different levels of consciousness that then assist us because we're assisting ourselves, right? Assist us with Yes, and a little bit wider, a little bit more perspective, a little bit less density, a little bit less duality, stay on the path, and beautiful things will unfold. And I feel like um, the the experience, because it's been anchored by so many people this year, of that direct connection with that calm, beautiful presence um, and a, a level of heart coherence and and uh crystalline light body coming online that provides a, a different experience. I know it's going to be widespread, right? It's always domino. But I also do think there's a physicality to it, at least in my experience, from from the tips of your toes to your finger to all of it, it's it's a vibrational that is passing through the incarnation, the body mm-hmm. with an awareness of its acceleration oh, and that that's that's sort of exciting that's like the ignition igniting the you know the the light body because it's really mm-hmm. light that's being ignited and as the physical starts to transform we talked about the glittering skin and the glow and mm-hmm. and that's and i think it feels good you know i think that's <laughs> It does feel good, but I feel like, you know, if, if you want to put a label on us and call us star seeds or, you know, just the, the people who are here to facilitate, mm-hmm. right? That it, the simply here to facilitate, right? You gamble, you hope you can wake up in time and, and do your duty properly and everything. But a lot of our purpose is to parent the body through this process. So the body is a separate consciousness, right? The body belongs to Gaia, right? That's the old clay story. Yes, the body belongs to Gaia. So you're you're renting a body vehicle uh, for your consciousness to play in these realms, and it's lovely. But part of uh, the calling to come here um, or part of the ascension process itself is to assist the body consciousness that's having its own experience to start reflecting that higher level of consciousness. And I find the more that we can parent our bodies through this process, you know, the body is completely capable of transforming, right? We've seen many examples of that. But as we do this as a collective, that's the part that um, you really get kind of that higher perspective 
on, you know, kind of seeing from the oversoul or the, or the unified level is, ah, okay, this is going to be, um, a little bit challenging sometimes, but the more higher consciousness you can get flowing through that crystalline stardust, right? Your own little universe. Um, the more of that higher energy you can get flowing through that, the easier it is for the body to keep up with the constant light intelligence that is coming through, telling it to do something else. Right. That. Go ahead. Well, no, I, I'm going to repeat. I said this to you a couple of years ago when we first met. Um, you might remember it, but it did seem to like spark something because when I was doing a rebirthing session out, I was outside somewhere and I got in touch with the earth intelligence, the intelligence mm-hmm. of the earth. And the earth said, it would gr- gladly take back this human body from where it emerged, but its greatest aspiration as the earth is to become a star. Yes. So that's igniting the earth body into star beingness as, as light emanations. So the earth, I think, I don't know, wants is not, maybe not the right word, but the earth's mm, evolution is to become the star, the yes. star. And that's us. In these earth bodies, transmuting it into star beings. Yes. So if you look at that trajectory of Gaia becoming a spiritual sun, right? right? Not an actual star, a spiritual sun. She becomes more solar, probably down the trajectory. She she will go completely solar. But you can see, like her, you know, also as a representation of cosmic divine mother and all of that energy, like kind of parenting her children through a transformation. I'm going to become a star. So all of you need to become solar crystalline beings, period. Right. That's the only way you're going to be able to exist in my realms. Right. So we're living inside the earth. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So I love the the trajectory is, is amazing. It's wonderful for what's happening here. And especially as, uh, you know, as somebody who interacts with stargates, to get all those organic stargate flows reactivated again so all the master crystals can do their their job and the crystalline structures within Gaia herself can start going more solar. You know, it's all that, that solar energy, that star energy coming back. But rather than completely blowing the circuits of the topsiders, <laughs> right, the people on the surface, you know, I'm not, not going to speak for inner earth at all, but uh, for the topsiders, um, those frequencies are not just coming in, but emanating from a planetary consciousness that's turning into a star, right, has to be transformed. And in a relatively tight window, I have to say, you know, it goes very quickly. Like everyone is very aware of the acceleration of time and now loss of time constructs are completely breaking down for a lot of people, right? It takes so much focus to show up at a certain time in a certain window, right? It's just, oh, you know, it's, it causes me anxiety sometimes, you know, because it just, the, the, the loss of time constructs is a very real thing to me. So I'm, you know, when you're in bindi state or flow state, most of your day, you're like, oh, you have to remind yourself to kind of plug into, you know, linear constructs. But you can see like Gaia's trajectory is Christos Sophia doing this beautiful transformation and it's, and it's a done deal now. 
right? That is the trajectory. There are no other secondary timelines or anything that are going to um, prohibit that at all anymore. So that's kind of a, a weight off for a, a lot of gatekeeper, light worker, grid worker types were like, mm, this is a done deal. Okay, now it's migrating these realities to something brand new. And this, the but the transformation of the body can, can only be done through the em, embracing that higher state of consciousness, right? That's kind of like the pass key, right? It's the only, the only way it works is to get into unity consciousness, which is the highest level of technology I've been, ever been exposed to. Well, then how do you, can you give us some tips of how we, you do that, we do that? Um, because I think there is a practice to it. It's not, it, mm. it's, it doesn't happen if you're out at the ball game drinking beer or whatever. <laughs> well, I don't know. For some, for some people, they might find so much joy in that that it would just be wonderful. Oh, there's a snowstorm in Sedona right now. I'm so excited. Um, it just lights me up. I love the snow. The process, uh, you know, the ascension process, while it is unique to the, the individual uh, expression of that path, there is a path laid out for an ascension process as we know it in this now. And it continues to accelerate. So a path that used to take 20 years can now take 10. And I'm sure in a couple more years, it'll only take, you know, moments to, mm-hmm. to go through the purging of old consciousness and the embracement of the new. But when it comes to interpreting the frequencies now, it all begins with choice. So until you sit down and make that actual choice. This is the incarnation where I choose to have this experience and I'm going to go for it and I'm going to do everything within my life stream to embrace a higher state of being and to transform everything that I'm doing and not, uh, you know, you start with a personal choice, but it really has more to do with service than anything else, right? If you're actually going to be in service to the whole, uh, that adds a whole nother layer to your journey. But then you start with, you know, the basics, the groundwork, the platform for you to stand on has to be built on unconditional love or the structure will fall, crumble apart and you'll have dark night of the soul and all the other things that that come with that. There's definitely a little bit of shadow work that comes with any part of the process. Now it's not decades or lifetimes anymore. You fly through it very quickly. And there's definitely a bazillion different ways to get through those levels of consciousness. But the consistency of decreeing your reality, meditating, movement, dealing with things moment by moment as they arise. And then the more advanced you become, the more skilled you become at qualifying all of the light emanations that come from you, from your own consciousness, and really learning how to become a crystalline conduit, that's definitely part of it. And there's there's something that happens when you're very conscious about qualifying your light emanations that means no more distortion, right? You catch yourself, call that energy back, requalify it, and go in the proper direction. And the more that you train that muscle and you train the heart to start creating those fields, there's definitely 
a, a level or a field of the DNA that clicks on and suddenly you're like, oh my gosh, hands off the wheel, right? All of a sudden the Christed state takes command of the journey, just something we've been invoking for all this, all this time, right? Higher levels take command, body vehicles show me over and over again. And in the beginning, it's several times a day and then it's once a day. And then all of a sudden you're on autopilot because you've built completely new pathways for the consciousness to give you a different experience. So right now with all of the bombardment that's hitting the nervous system, and if we remember the nervous system is responsible for crystalline light body, it's responsible for receiving light codes, if you want to call them that, new frequencies, it all lands on the nervous system. And there's been a lot of uh, warning over the last 10 years about uh, concerns about psychological fallout from the shift in consciousness, because it is a lot of energy that, you know, the nervous system is just the delivery system for that. So when people start getting stimulated and they haven't established a way to qualify their own light or to remain calm or to move when the energy is starting to pool or, or overstimulate different parts of the body, um, there's going to be confusion, right? And because they're not operating from the heart, the mind starts to get a, a little overstimulated. So a reminder to everyone, balance, harmony, right? Continue to attempt to access the zero point as much as possible, that still point that that does provide that direct connection to source, to your higher levels, to our star family, and consistently learn how to qualify your own light emanations because that's the frequency that aligns with and matches where we're going. So we don't want to like stay in the same place, right? If you've had the same practices and the same level of consciousness for a while, it's time to level up, right? You got to like st- just embrace that higher path and just try something new. And of course, Gaia is going to provide a lot of what you need, right? It's a lot of solar Gaia connection uh, coming into play with us literally mutating, uh, becoming the anomaly in the collective DNA pool, right? That then emanates new frequencies, new possibilities. And turning other people on. I think you're also referencing the Kundalini awakenings that is happening at some point where people are suddenly getting this rush of energy up the spine, this activation. And we, they have to be prepared to know in some sense what to do with it or to allow it instead of shutting it down. And because it's it's the God Christed consciousness that's infusing the body with awakening, and probably see more and more of that happening. Yeah, and to really embrace those mastery qualities, there's something I had a huge emphasis on divine neutrality a couple of years ago. Now we can see why, of course, but that true non-judgmental state that can't be swayed between this choice and that choice any longer, right? You just embrace infinite possibility and you're not pulled. That level of discernment is is so key to the experiences 
of say like a kundalini rising or an activation or suddenly a, a higher level of your own consciousness wants to deliver information to you or whatever. You know, discernment is key, but divine neutrality teaches us how to just avoid the whole fear construct completely. And rather than deciding if something is good or bad or scary to your personal consciousness or not, you know, it really allows you to kind of step back, get some cosmic perspective and be more of in the witness state of, of what's going on. That has really been a strong part of my journey to maintain stability, not just as a, as a conduit, but just as a person walking through this incredible process. You know, there's been, yeah, it started with a lot of discernment, right? And I was always told, don't listen to narratives, right? Because right. people, people have a lot of stories about what has and hasn't happened on the planet and it is what it is. And it was a beautiful part of our journey. But now that we're coming into higher states of consciousness, it just kind of washes it away. Right. Yeah, and there's a new story. It's not, but it's not a story, you know, and the neutrality of even watching your own story as it comes up and dissolves. It's all that neutrality of watching, of witnessing, of observing. And if we can do that long enough, the next story that's not a story, but the next wave of different types of experiences start to come through that are not of the me, my, personal, but it, it also is intimate. You know, it's, it's that new way of being and what I'm sensing in my own, some of my own experiences. It's, it's, it's something new. The new humanity is arising mm. and it doesn't look like anything like the old humanity. I think. Correct. And that, that emergence, that presence is so, uh, strong, unique, and radically different from anything we've experienced prior to that. You know, we always heard the all this and more story. Um, and here we are in the and more, right? We're starting to become conduits of a brand new experience. And I feel that just to kind of loop it back to uh, star beings and that presence, you know, anyone who's had, let's say, uh, an authentic contact with a benevolent either higher aspect of self or another star race, if you want to call it that. Even the, the term race is just kind of like, woo, just kind of drifting out of my reality right now. I'm like, wow, that isn't what that is at all. You know, it's just different perspectives, right? But to be to be in um in their presence, you know, there's a lot of uh say mastery type consciousness or star being uh consciousness that would show up in your reality vision, right? And there would be just the frequency of that presence would deliver everything that you needed when you when you needed it, right? It just showed up, right? And a lot of it, I'm, I'm finding a lot of uh, the communication um, kind of straying away from words, which is beautiful, right? Because there's a lot more information when you go nonverbal, um, that, that's beautiful, right? But that training, right, of being in the, in the presence of star beings or star consciousness that don't talk, 
or an ancient of days kind of guardian, huge, you know, consciousness that does not communicate in a, in a linear way. I'm starting to feel like that vibrational match with my own consciousness and that level of consciousness getting stronger. Like you could touch it before. Is you that, that it, this, this little placeholder of our personality is, is not us. It's those star, it's those greater beings that we're actually, I feel this little piece is like a branch of the tree. That's the tree. So, mm-hmm. And we're like little shoot. We think we're the tree, but we're really just the branch until you become the tree. You know, it's like, and that's the divine emanations that are, saying to the rest of its being it's we're all of you we're all of us yeah what i'm getting i'm getting that from the star being i'm talking to right now Mm -hmm. (laughs) well it's unity consciousness was the mission right Mm -hmm. it was like let's just bring all the fractals back into unity so that we can transform these realities and provide a new experience and to be able to do that in a as a, an awakened consciousness and in form is quite incredible. I mean, it's the most fascinating thing. You know, when early on in the journey, when you're deciding what do I really want out of this incarnation, right? Which is the primary mastery uh, qualification of your entire journey. You will get asked that. What do you want? What would you like to experience? And when you make a choice. And you can continue to up-level that as you go along, of course. But when you're kind of looking at your incarnation, you know, for me, it came after near-death experiences, just experiences of higher levels of consciousness. And you come back and you form, like, what do I want to do with this journey? Obviously, there's a lot more going on here than uh, than previously thought. And when you make your entire journey, you're like, what's the coolest thing that's that's happening right now? In these realms, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to worry about what's happening in other star systems. I'm not going to, you know, it's care, but don't care. You know, we say, you know, it's like, I care about what's happening in other sectors of the universe or, or fractals of source, but I'm not going to carry their journey. Where, let me put my focus here. What's the most exciting, interesting thing that I could experience? And when you're provided with like the banquet, of infinite possibility that can happen right through this body, living in a body on a planet. Um, that is, is a heart opener in itself, right? And then it gets into. Absolutely. It's what Jesus said. I mean, Jesus as the teacher said, give no thought for tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself, right? It does. It does. You know, and you start to see the blend of moments that create, you know, different realities and everything. It's just a beautiful structure. I have an infinite respect for what's going on here, you know, mm-hmm. regardless of, you know, distortion or alignment or whatever. It's just a deep appreciation, again, from that higher perspective of everything that's unfolding right here. And if you can stay in that state of gratitude uh, for mm-hmm. for everything that's presenting personal as well as collective, um, you change, you change the collective trajectory by embracing that, that state of beingness, right? Can be so simple. Let's embrace it. Let's just, can we just, can we just emanate our star beingness? Yeah. Yeah. 
Everyone, why don't we, have, we have a few minutes here. Yeah, why don't we do that? Let's tap into that. So everyone feel just take the elevator out of the mind, just lower it into the heart and let those doors open, right? Let that stargate open the heart. And just for a moment, just breathe there. Because that's all there is. There's just source and the fractal of sorts that's providing this experience. So you can just tap into that zero point, right? That stillness. Take a breath. Just exhale. Let everything else go. All the agendas and the plans and what you're going to do next moment. Just let it go and let it kind of collapse into zero point. And even though that stillness for some people can feel like a void or empty, take a breath in there and just feel the presence of the infinite creator, one unified consciousness, one unified beingness, having all these different experiences. And just sit for a moment in that level of consciousness, peace, calm, infinite creation. I just let everything go. And you can start to feel what we call the infinite Christ field starting to emanate just by your choice to tap into the source within. And in that stillness, you might feel the spark, the crystalline, maybe a golden ray starting to come forth. As in order to create our experience, we go a little bit solar, and a little bit crystalline, start fractalizing out from the core, from the oneness, into all of this myriad of experiences. So hold your consciousness at zero point, feeling the oneness, and then simultaneously embrace your multidimensionality and start to feel all of creation. That state of unity consciousness, feeling all of the fractals, expressing as stars, universes, unknown realms, planetary consciousness, a soul inhabiting a body on an ascending planet, turning into a solar star-like emanation. Feel it all at once. All that is. I want you to feel the field that holds that all together. The unified field of divine love light intelligence. That's the glue that holds all of this source creation together. 
which is why we say source is unconditional love. Source is infinite love, infinite light. Feel the presence of that frequency that holds everything together. And now in your own fractal of experience, right through the heart, start to feel all of that infinite creation emanating through your heart center. Infinite light, infinite love, infinite crystalline consciousness before it has a chance to personalize the experience. Feel the heart as the true crystalline stargate to all that is. Just take a breath there. Beautiful. Our challenge in this now moment is to open your eyes, come into awareness of these realities, and hold that open crystalline stargate of the heart of pure source emanation in these realms across all the different realities, all the different experiences. They are what they are. It is what it is. We're holding that open door to source in these realms so that source, the infinite creator, the love light intelligence can start creating a new experience. Let the light do the work. Let the love hold the door open and become the presence in these realms. Mm. Just come, just come back into waking consciousness. You can kind of feel the field kind of active with that frequency. And for those of you with open hearts, you're going to feel like this to kind of blows, blows back the consciousness sometimes. It becomes very palpable, right? You can kind of feel the field and work with it and walk around with that emanation and you're going to notice Little miracles, synchronicities, you know, all these things start to autocorrect around you simply because you're holding that frequency. And that is where the ascension is at in this now. Mm, Beautiful. You know, I felt my ego personality starting to slip away Mm. in that, to dissolve the me, the, the story. And part of me wanted to run after and say no don't go but the other Mm -hmm. part just let it go and just I mean became nothing and it's nothing in the sense of story Mm -hmm. and and that's a new experience when we can be trusting that right trust source all of us need to learn how to trust God again right so here we are when you trust that emanation and you allow it to just show me a little bit more a little bit more, a little bit more light, you'll find the natural progression of the ascension is just glorious. But the first part for me is becoming nothing in the sense of mm-hmm. and then trusting, like you say, that there's something that's beyond that. Yeah. And that's the process I'm in, or was until this moment. So Beautiful. nothing, meaning that all the illusions of the mind, the personality, the story, the history, 
it's, it doesn't have to, it, it's got, I mean, it's there if I want to bring it back, but yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a, um, a concretization that happens when you are holding that and when that's let, when you let go of that, then it's just something new is possible. Something new is possible. Right, right. Beautiful brother. Oh, it's been lovely connecting with you. I know we have to roll. I'll visit you in Sedona. We'll we'll have tea and maybe do an interview there. Yeah, would love it. Beautiful. Is, there a reason, is Sedona an acceleration place, you feel, to be in this energy, the ascension energy? It's definitely a node, if you want to call it that. And it's it's transforming. It's transforming right now. I've been here for three years, and I've watched it just level up to a, a more crystalline conductor. So quite beautiful. And so tell people what's coming up for you, not personally, but your organization, what's happening and how they get in touch with you. Oh, just quickly go to ascensionpath.com, sign up for the light letter and, and, uh, you'll find out everything that we have going on. There's all kinds of new things, uh, presenting for next year. Um, September equinox next year is our big event in Sedona. Um, yeah, it's, we do a lot. Sunday unity meditations, all of that, but go and sign up for the light letter and I'll, I'll write you all about it. Thank you. Thanks so much for having this conversation. I've always wanted to have a conversation with you. That was beautiful. I know. I loved it. Thank you. Okay, let's do one more Rama. Let's do the one. We checked it ahead of time. This one's loud enough. It's called Aligning with an Empowered uh, Mindset with Billy Carson and Teresa Bullard. Can you pull that one up, honey? we got just enough time to do that. Uh, what can we say? Oh, my God, what's going on on the TV? Alicia Menendez had Hillary Clinton, the hologram, on... Just a minute ago here, and uh, it was kind of scary. <laughs> um, she she is reflecting outward. Uh, you might say the ugliness inside. It's completely unavoidable. And Shrek can't help her. <laughs> Shrek. I don't Shrek think the older. Shrek would run as fast as he could the other direction. Yeah, he would. <laughs> oh my god! Do you have it, dear? Yes. Okay, let's do this. <laughs> Twenty-eight minutes and about fourteen seconds. Here we go. I wanted a place for people to receive authentic guidance and practical ways to awaken, thought-provoking, paradigm-shifting, and empowering. This is about expanding our human consciousness to create a wave of new possibilities. I'm Dr. Tracy Lord White, and this is Quantum Mind TV. So I wanted to shift the subject because in addition to reaching people who are in positions of influence and leadership, another big thing that we need to reach is the youth. And this is something that you've really been focusing on is how can we reach the youth 
mm-hmm. with these principles of, you know, higher wisdom and uh, waking up to a, a higher level of consciousness. So can we share with us some of what you're doing with uh, to reach the youth with these principles? Definitely. The, lo- the, the, the most grand way that we've used to, to reach the youth has been through music. Um, so I love music. I produce music and uh, been playing instruments since I was a child. And I realized that music, specifically hip hop music, has the capability of transmitting the most volume of information than any other form genre of music, because you have bars, uh, you know, and verses, and you can transmit multiple bars on an album, which means on a single, which means you can transmit a lot of information. And so I started listening to the music and trying to figure out how can I utilize this frequency to reach the kids since it's the number one used frequency on planet Earth is hip-hop music. And so I realized that the first thing you like is the beat. As long as you like the beat, you'll listen to the song. It doesn't even matter what the words are in most cases. People will listen to songs with the most ridiculous, craziest lyrics or even some illegible intelligible lyrics. It's <laughs> beat's good, okay? And this beat is good. And then if they like the hook and the beat, they'll learn the hook. And then eventually they'll learn the words and then they start repeating those words. And they don't really realize that they're casting spells with those words on their own lives and others. And so I said, hmm, what if we could take the same beats they love, the same trap beats that they love, and we can make hooks that they like. And then we can incorporate knowledge and esoteric wisdom and ancient teachings into the actual lyrics Eventually, two things are going to happen. They're going to learn the words, which means they're going to start speaking light. And the second thing is they're going to re- become researchers because they're going to look up. What the heck am I saying? Let me Google what this means. Emerald tablets. Oh, boom. Let me Google what this means. Chakras. Oh, wow. Kundalini. The next thing you know, we've created a spiritual researcher. And so that was my ultimate goal. So I sat down and I created the record label. I reached out to some conscious artists or artists that were kind of borderline. They were trying to figure it out. They, I became their mentor and they learned a lot and they learned it fast and they were then able to start incorporating these spiritual concepts into the music without the main goal was to not sound like we were preaching to anybody, not sound like we were telling you you know, a religious format or what to do and what not to do, but to make it so cool to hear this stuff and to make it so cool to even repeat it by learning the words that eventually you wouldn't realize you're casting positive spells on yourself and other people. And it worked so great. Uh, and we reached a lot of kids. We went public. We, we, we went to, I'm sorry, not public. We went to a billboard in 2018, uh, in, uh, eight, in four categories for eight weeks, four categories on billboard R&B, R&B and rap, Hip hop album and, uh, and hip hop independent artists. And that was for eight weeks straight. And uh, so I would say, you know, so far it's been a very, very big success. Uh, and it's a way to reach your kids through music is one of the biggest ways. And so I continue to focus on that. And to date, I've produced over 340 songs that are all streaming worldwide. And I'm my own personal artist as well. I probably have over a hundred songs uh, streaming on Apple Music and Spotify and everything else as well. So we just continue to reach reach out to them through music. And the other last thing that I do is, you know, I will I'll wear nice clothes because the kids can relate to that. You have to understand how to get into the consciousness. You have to use everything has to become a tool. A nice car, nice house, nice watches, nice clothes. 
I'm, it's relatable. They want to aspire to those things. If I'm walking around looking like I'm wearing a curtain or something like that with holes in it, they're not going to want to listen to me too much. I'm not going to lie. And they're the future. So you have to cast that reel out like you're fishing and with the hook on it. The hook is the lifestyle. And then all of a sudden, I'm reeling them back in. And now I've got a new person that's ready to hear, listen, and understand and try to then also spread the same information back out into the world. And so far, it's been extremely successful. Mm. Well, I love how intentional, but also how strategic you are (laughs) in bringing that to the music field. You know, you really researched, you really studied, like, what creates that success and what, you know, and then the idea that, yeah, I mean, we all know, we've all experienced where we have a song that we really like. And not only are you memorizing the lyrics and you find yourself all of a sudden you haven't listened to it in a while, but you're still singing it. And you might even be having it play in your head while you're sleeping. <laughs> it really gets in. Um, so to bring in positive lyrics, affirmations, words of empowerment, and then to plant the seed for them to go and, and become spiritual researchers yeah. because they're seeing these lyrics and it's like, well, what is that? And then they yeah. go and, and look it up. I think that's, you know, phenomenal. Um, and, and then you, we've also talked about the frequency tuning, not just the beat, but the tuning scale. You know, we, we've talked about solfeggio frequencies and using like instead of a 440 tuning scale, either 444 or 432 hertz. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, finding these tuning scales that help to, you know, elevate at an emotional level, at a resonant level and bring uh, more of a con- higher consciousness type of state. Uh, do you want to say anything about how you've incorporated that into your music as well? Yeah, definitely. All of my songs are 432 hertz, even if it doesn't have it in the title. Sometimes the title can't be too long or you want it to be a real catchy title. But every single song we produce, except for the exception of maybe five, they're at 528 hertz, which is the love frequency. And so you can't do them all at 528 hertz because uh, if you do them all at 528, some songs you do 528, they get a little muddy, what we call it in music, we call it muddy, a little, little uh, blurry in certain areas. Like it's not as crisp. Some of the notes aren't as crisp. So when you can run it through 528 and you can get all the notes to sound right because depending on your A's and everything else, your, your, your notes, it sounds good, you can do it. But uh, 432 is pretty broad. You can do every single song pretty much at 432, which is incredible. So the majority of our songs are 432 hertz, which is a resonant frequency that really harmonizes with the mind, the brain. And some scientific studies have been done that if you listen to music at 432 hertz, 15 to 20 minutes, and while you're studying for an exam or test, you have about a 10% increase in doing better on the test. It's like it's almost reorganizing even your thought patterns. It's good for your cellular energy, your mitochondria, and your body. And also, it's putting you in resonant frequency with planet Earth, we know that the Great Pyramid at Giza in Egypt is a 43,200 scale of the Earth itself. And it also has a resonant frequency inside of 432 hertz. So it's pretty interesting. That was incorporated into the actual architecture of the Great Pyramid, meaning it's really, really important. You know, so this is, this is pretty cool stuff. And we've incorporated that into the music because it's so powerful. And then we have songs even in meditation tracks that we have now, a whole meditation series with the home and uh, which is the primordial sound of the universe. 
And we have, uh, you know, all different types of meditation music that gives you the right self-physical frequencies to uplift you and take you into higher states of consciousness as well. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Now, we're going to take a listen to a sample of one of your tracks and oh, hey. you know, just give people a little bit of an experience. And, you know, I think we all need a little bit of a consciousness break for a moment here. So let's play that now. And I, I absolutely love how you're bringing in the conscious lyrics, you're bringing in planting those seeds for uh, the spiritual, you know, research and so forth. You're bringing in um, the 432 tuning and, you know, it's all of it is coming in at a, at a subconscious level, at a conscious level, at, you know, to bring that awakening and so forth. And, and also we know the power of sound, uh, through cymatics to impact not just the brain and, and so forth and consciousness, but also impact every cell of our body. And, you know, with these proper tuning scales and words of power and empowerment, you're using cymatics in a really positive and conscious way. Uh, so do you want to share a little bit more about your, um, thoughts on cymatics and how that, uh, plays in here? Because it can be used for better or for worse, correct? Oh, cymatic frequency are, are, are totally, they run the entire universe. As a matter of fact, when you're listening to somebody speak, the way that we think we hear somebody is not actually the way we hear somebody. What's happening is a cymatic frequency is coming out of their vocal cords and it's riding over the gases, the atmospheric gases, until it hits the cochlea in your ear and it's translated by the brain into actual verbiage. And what's interesting is it doesn't really matter what language you speak. It's all based on the conscious intent that is in, that is then 
piggybacked on top of that frequency. And they actually sync together and it rides the wave into your mind and then your mind translates it, but it also absorbs the conscious intent, whether you know it or realize it or not. And that's why cymatic frequencies are so important uh, in music and speaking and TV and everything else that you're listening to and even speaking to somebody, somebody speaking to you, because all that's absorbed by the body, it's all transcoded by the brain and your cells absorb all of it and they remember everything. Your DNA remembers everything. And so cymatics are really, really key because depending on the intent behind the cymatic frequency, it can actually have a bad effect. It can create dis-ease in the body or disease. It can also create positivity, upliftment, enlightenment, happiness, joy, and love. So the cymatics are really important. And cymatics, we know, as above, so below, on a galactic scale or a universal scale, we can see the effect of the somatic frequencies that actually jingle life into uh, or mat- the illusion of matter into existence here before our eyes. For example, like uh, the spots on the back of a leopard. That's a pattern based on the frequency rippling through space time that have created those spots or the pattern on the back of a turtle. You know, that pattern is evidence of somatic frequencies. And so we know this now by doing our own experiments with plates and speakers and putting different types of uh, material on the plate and creating vibrations in the plate, we can see different shapes and forms, different geometrical structures create. We know that that is the, uh, like it says in the Bible, in the beginning was the word and the word was God. But that what it's really saying is in the beginning was a frequency and that frequency became the creator. That is what God is. So in my opinion, God, the face of God is not the face of a man or anybody flying through around with a robe on. But to me, the face of God is actually uh, the flower of life. And I believe that that frequency that emanates through the Bessica Pisces that's encoded into the flower of life is the frequency that has gone out and cymatically helped to create our whole uh, reality here on this, on this, not only this planet, but the entire universe. Wow. So you just really talked there about what is ultimately the essence of magic that we're combining the intent, which Mm -hmm. is then expressed through the voice, through words of power um, and at particular frequencies that then that sound as it carries that intent and the meaning of the word, it then can literally sound can shape the physical world. Sound shapes matter. And that is what the original study of cymatics was, is that how sound can can mold and shape and create these sacred geometric patterns and what look like mandalas within the material, whether it's water or clay or sand, and it literally forms it. Um, And so this is this, you know, from the intent to the spoken word Mm -hmm. to the material manifestation and, yeah. and how we direct it with our, our will and our, our actions and so forth. I mean, that is really the essence of, of magic. And yeah. hopefully, as you're saying, that, that, you know, people often think that the words are, you know, just carrying their meaning, but they're not thinking about the intent behind the words. And right. yet, when you're talking to somebody, you can feel when there's an incongruence between <laughs> their words and some other energy that's being sent from them. Yep. And that energy is the thoughts or the ego or whatever, you know, whether it's positive or negative, you feel mm-hmm. that. And, and we, we 
you know, intuitively pick up on when there's an incongruence between yeah. somebody's, um, you know, what's really going on behind the scenes with them and what they're saying. One final thing that I want to talk about, and that is, you know, all ultimately again towards what do we need to shift if there is something really key. And I think you kind of said it um, in a way we, we started with it with the topic of abundance. And then you also mentioned when it comes to the youth and, you know, dressing nice, for example, and having nice things. And, you know, that might appeal to them as a lifestyle, but there's something deeper underneath that. There is a lifting out of mediocrity into, you know, like a sense of what we could call it royalty into a sense of like, I'm really embodying my mastery in this world. And that gives an example for them to aspire to. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest issues that we've really had in this, uh, in, in our modern age is we're, we're almost devolving into more and more mediocrity setting in within yeah. the matrix mindset. Yeah. And that mediocrity, I think, also plays in with the victimhood mindset. Like the, these two things seem to be going hand in hand. There's more people who are, um, you know, trying to create causes around supporting the victim um, yeah. or, you know, being the victim. And then they get more attention for it and then they get maybe more money for it. And um, and, the, and then, you know, the, the more we're a victim, well, the more we have to fall into that, you know, kind of mediocrity state because yeah. we're a victim versus being an empowered and abundant person. Mm-hmm. Um, so this victimhood mindset, what would you say is the biggest way to help people shift out of that victimhood mindset? Because in order to create that new world, we're going to have to really step into our power. We have to. We have to teach people how to step into their power. That's the biggest thing. We have to teach people that they are all powerful, that they are uh, their savior that they've been waiting for, and that accepting the current condition and situation and just being in collusion with it means that uh, they're becoming the victim and they're also the they're, they're, they they become the prisoner and the prison guard, <laughs> you know, and which is weird because they don't realize that they got themselves they've accepted this this level, and then if somebody even that they know or even themselves tries to break past that level, they self sabotage or they sabotage someone else subconsciously, mm-hmm. and making somebody aware of that. See, the biggest problem that we have is bringing awareness to these kind of situations, and there's got to be a specialized technique to bring awareness to these situations. Otherwise, you can offend somebody, and people get very offensive <laughs> these days. So it's got to be done in a very, very nice way, a loving way, in a way where you're giving an example and showing and teaching versus uh, talking down on. And if you can do that and, and enlighten the person to bring awareness to their current condition and then say, but I have a solution for you. The first thing you got to do is I find that all the people that are really becoming uh, this victim mindset, they don't know what their passion is. They don't even understand that they have a passion or that they have a gift. We all have gifts. Just all of us don't open them. Some people just don't never open the gift. And so you have to show them, hey, you've got talents and gifts. You've got things that you're probably passionate about. If you focus on those things, you can rise above all of this. And so I tell people, let's get a piece of paper out. Let's start writing down all the things you're passionate about, all the things you like, all the things you would even like to do potentially if you if you don't know how to do it yet, because anything can be learned. And then let's analyze 
them in order, which are the most important or which are the highest on the list. And then from there, which do you need to learn or which are you already good at? You may already be good at something. Now, okay, let's analyze how that thing that you're good at, that gift, can be utilized in the world. Let's figure out who can use it. And when we find out who can use the gift or what what companies, what people can use that gift to enhance what they're doing, let's now research what it takes to actually put yourself in a position where you're in between those two. In other words, they're going to take your gift and utilize it for their purpose, and the side effect is going to be money in your bank account. It's going to be joy in your heart. You're going to feel like you're not even working because you love this stuff. And when we get to that level, when I can help you get to that level, now you're going to realize what I was talking about, walking in your true power, walking in passion. The side effect is money in your account and a life of your dreams, an abundant life where it doesn't mean you're a trillionaire, but any level that you can achieve and you're working in a passion when you feel like you're not even working, that is abundance in itself. Mm, I love that. So not only is it about taking personal responsibility, right? I mean, because victim mindset often wants to put the blame outside of oneself. And then when they put the blame outside, they put the power outside and then they're giving their power away. It's about saying, okay, I have some level of responsibility here for what I'm going to do with this situation, what I'm going to create in my life. And if I want to change my situation, then I have to change myself. Right. And and one of the key ways to start shifting that changing oneself is, again, shifting away from focusing on the problem to the solution. And you're providing a really beautiful solution here, which is what are you passionate about? What do you love to do? Mm-hmm. What would you you know, if you could live your dream life, yeah. what would you be doing? How would you be, you know, spending your time? And, and but in a way that's not so much about the superficiality of that. Right. The materiality of that, but literally the expression of your gifts. Yeah. The, the, you know, bringing forward what is something that is your own soul wanting to express its uniqueness and the things that it loves and the things that bring it us joy. And yeah. so I think that's brilliant in a way to just start uh, really shifting out of the focusing on the negative into the positive and redirecting. Right. When we take responsibility for ourselves, we are taking responsibility to redirect how we're using our energy, what we're putting our focus on, where we choose to, um, you know, give our attention. And and your attention is um, these days, it's a major commodity in the world. Big data is all about trying to get your attention and, and advertisers and marketers and so forth. But if you, if you start valuing your own, where you put your attention in your own life and, and bring that recognition to the value of that, because where attention goes, energy flows. And that's where we want to then redirect it so that we can put it on things that are going to create better value for us, you know, the things that we love and enjoy. Uh, so. Yeah. Anything else that you want to share with people before we uh, wrap up here? I just want to tell people, look, you have to understand uh, you have to just love everyone. It doesn't mean that you love everyone in a way where, you know, you're giving a thousand percent of yourself and letting them, letting them, letting them suck the energy out of you. But you have to come to some conclusion that all of us are just really one person. There's only one consciousness. And everyone that's out there is just another reflection of you. And so 
you know, you want to love yourself, we well, you got to love the people. If you're loving, if you're truly loving yourself, you're going to love everyone. And if you understand that and you can pass on that love and understanding, people will always remember how you treat them, how you make them feel. That's the biggest thing I learned when I was in, you know, in learning sales. People will remember how you make them feel. And the only reason why you don't close a deal in a sale is because either they don't have the money or they don't like you. There's <laughs> only two reasons. And so if you can start to make people understand that you sincerely, really, truly feel and love them, whether you can deal with them or not on a long-term basis, but people know that, you know, this guy, no matter what, or this woman, no matter what, I understand, like, they're, that's a really good person. That goes a very, very long way because at some point that seed goes into their mind and it grows and they begin to then, you know what? They will duplicate what they saw because the body, I think, always the mind and conscience always wants to go back towards the light. I think that the light will always outdo darkness and no matter what over time. And that, that, that positive light seed you plant on how you treat somebody and then becomes a consciousness positive virus that then spreads and express from one person to the next, to the next, to the next. And just keeping that in mind that every person you deal with, you're talking to yourself. How would you talk to yourself? How would you treat yourself? If you just thought about, thought about it that way, this person is actually me. I'm talking to myself. Wow. Well, let me treat that person how, how I would treat myself. And then the whole paradigm shifts instantaneously. Mm, I love that. Another golden nugget right there. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's beautiful. So, and, and I really see, Billy, that you, uh, you really embody what you're just saying there. I mean, you are a very genuine person in my interactions with you. I've been like, yeah, I really like this guy. I can see this guy <laughs> as a friend. And, and really, you know, just like enjoy, you know, spending time with you. And yeah. so, uh, I just want to thank you for being my guest. And you have a lot of wisdom, a lot of insight to share with everybody. And I love how practical and applied and down to earth and yet forward thinking, uh, you are in, in what you bring to the plate. So it has truly been an honor to have you as my guest. And so that now brings us to the end of this conscious conversation. Uh, and so thank you, Billy, for joining thank us. You. And I look forward to hopefully having you back again on Quantum Minds TV. Yes, that would be great. Anytime, please. We hope you took some golden nuggets out of this session and conversation. And most importantly, that you'll take it, this knowledge that's been gained here and put it into application in your life so that you can truly receive the full benefits from it. Now, as always, thank you for tuning in to Quantum Minds TV. And if you enjoyed it, please rate, review, and subscribe on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and or Spotify. And if you'd like to be the first to receive full access to each conscious conversation as it becomes available, you can register at quantummindstv.com with your name and email. It's completely free to register, and it'll provide you with a secret link where you can then access and watch the entire conversation with each guest at your leisure. Until next time, I'm Dr. Teresa Bullard-Weich, and this is Quantum Minds TV. This Conscious Conversation was created, produced, and recorded by Dr. Teresa Bullard-Wyke in collaboration with Billy Carson and edited by Verse Content. The theme... Dr. Bullard who? Dr. Teresa Bullard. No, she said something else, a last name. Oh, White. White? Yeah. Her last name has a white in it. Yeah. She never told us that before now, right? Yeah. Okay, so Rama, you gotta keep that on your mind.
Mm-hmm. There might be more to access. So before I gotta, we I go, I'm going to read just in preparation for when we come back after the music. We're going to have a little listen to our brother Richard and a look at the stars with Kay Pacha and Tanya Gabrielle. Well, I'm going to read something from Tanya right now. And this, uh, I think it came out earlier this week. What? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, this is titled 2222. 22. That's triple. Well, 22 is double mastery. 11, 11's mastery, and 22 is double mastery. And 22 was the number of the mastery of the office of the Christ that <clears throat> Yeshu exemplified. And the story has been mangled for the Catholic Church to get into everybody's brains, not the way it was. I'm going to say, yes, you never died on the cross. That did not happen. Nope. Nope. <laughs> uh, there's more to that story, but we'll go on here. So 22-22-22, Venus slash Neptune blessings, special treat. Welcome a lovely to a lovely Neptune and Venus magnification this weekend. Neptune enhances spirituality, unconditional love, beauty, music, the mysterious, and your creative imagination. On Sunday, beautiful Venus squares Neptune with both at 22 degrees, creating a triple 22 code. Venus is exalted in Neptune's sign of Pisces. Both Venus and Neptune are aligned with beauty, music, and love. Moment, Tito, we're going to go to the next part of this. Venus activation of Neptune reminds us how much beauty enhances our enjoyment of life. Create time to immense excuse me, to immerse your heart in the healing poetry of music and art. Yes, we're going to have a two-hour piece or an hour and a half after all the commercials are gone of music tonight too, later. Create as you are moved to do, do so from within. Otherwise, you may feel more uncertain or insecure at this time. Venus and Neptune embody the light of life force energy. And now, Neptune is stretching us beyond our limiting beliefs which cover up that light. As Venus squares Neptune, we are motivated to act, all in capital letters, to act decisively from first feeling loving, tender, kind, affectionate, and abundant. These two planets create the ultimate celebration of exquisite beauty, especially 
in music. Feel the soothing, delicate, mystical sounds in your heart. The more we take pleasure in beauty, the greater our appreciation of the divine in everything. To celebrate this Venus-Neptune meeting, here is a musical gift for you. Oh, so you can play it, Rama. Mm-hmm. You can go on this, this uh, little play play place. If you go find it, we can play it. we got a few minutes. It's going to take a little bit before I can get there. Okay, well, we can play it when we come back. Yeah. All right. Uh, anyway, my daughter Clara has adapted an arrangement of Gustav Holst, H-O-L-S-T apostrophe S, quote, The Planets, composed for symphony orchestra. Her rendition of Neptune, the mystic, for solo piano is otherworldly. So we'll listen to this when we come back. I'm sure this is going to be quite profound. As we all know that Tanya Gabrielle is a master pianist. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm sure she had something to do with teaching her daughter. Oh, boy. Enjoy and have a wonderful weekend. Love and blessings, Tanya Gabrielle. So, uh, everything will be unveiled in the ninth annual Ultimate Yearly Forecast virtual event on December 14th. And includes a live Q&A with Tanya. So we'll see what we can do. We uh, call in blessing for all that we need, want, and desire for the moment here to, to carry on. And so one more quick thing. I'll just read the heading here from Aurora Ray. Uh, The 5D has been known to bring about states of euphoria, extreme clarity, and unwavering compassion. This is an extremely powerful state of being because it allows you to be truly present in your life and helps you move toward a deeper degree of understanding, understanding, overstanding with everyone else who comes across our path. The fifth dimension is now. So we'll take a little break at the moment here. And uh, we'll see you 10 or 15 with music and a look at the stars with our brother Richard and Tanya and Kay Pacha. So... Stay tuned for that. We'll see you in a very short while. Namaste. Pass the talking stick to you, Richard. Hello and good evening. Good evening, sir. Yeah. We made it to the 3rd of December. (laughs) Amazing grace. Yeah. The anniversary of my brother's ascension. Mm. 
in 2014. He left the planet. It's Marky's birthday. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> what happened to your brother? Can you be quick and Cancer. Just... Oh. He was an auto mechanic. Yeah. Back in the day when cars had carburetors. Oh, yeah, breathing all that stuff. Yep. And it started in his lungs and whatever. Oh. All right. So uh, the sun is now tonight in 12 Sagittarius with Mercury at 26 and Venus at 23. And all those guys are opposite Mars at 18 Gemini. So by the by five more days, all the, all the major influences will be on one half of the circle of the zodiac. Mm. And this happens uh, periodically every mostly every year for the last few years. But at this time of year, what it means is that sunrise, all the planets are below the horizon. Mm -hmm. And at sunset, all the planets are above the horizon. So ponder on that one. So, what else we got here? Oh, let's see here. Everything else is pretty much in the same position. Uh, what do we got here? Jupiter is at 29 Pisces, and Neptune is at 23 Pisces. Uranus at 16 in retrograde. Saturn at 21 Aquarius. And Pluto with 27 Capricorn. And that pretty much does it, you know, for the situation. Oh, the moon's in Aries. The moon was conjunct Jupiter a day and a half ago. It was a very, it was clear that night and when the when the moon rose, Jupiter was right underneath Jupiter. It was very, it was very pretty. And then, the, and then the rain came. I got three inches of rain, and today I sat in a cloud all day. So that's my that's my world. All right, let's go listen to Kaipacha if we can, sir. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Hola, it's Carpaccio with the weekly Pele report for uh, November 30th of 2022 getting to the end of it here 
We got Venus opposite Mars today as I'm speaking. Venus up there in Sagittarius. Mars retrograde in Gemini. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, the moon is over there in Pisces and she comes up to conjunct Jupiter and Neptune. Right? That's going to be tomorrow. And it's a very interesting week. This is, this is. Because uh, even while she is conjoining with Jupiter and Neptune, Mercury is squaring Neptune exactly tomorrow. And then Venus traveling along with Mercury, okay, is coming into square Neptune on Saturday. And this is the day that Neptune is stationing still in the sky from our perspective. Right? And going direct. It has been at the same degree. I don't know if I'm going to read the Sabian symbol for it, but it has been at the 23rd degree stationing in Pisces from October 29th. And now it stations direct and it will be until January 9th that it leaves that degree. So that's kind of in the background, backdrop. Moon goes into Aries tomorrow, cruises along, trines the sun, and conjuncts Chiron. And we're going to have the sun conjunct Chiron on Saturday. Yeah? So these are the biggies that are happening. I mean, by by Monday, Mercury squares Jupiter, okay? Uh, the moon goes into Taurus on Sunday. And finally, Mercury enters Capricorn next Tuesday. So, and then next Wednesday is the full moon. So, this, we're going this week from the quarter moon today. Okay, moon in Pisces squaring the sun in Sag, first quarter moon, uh, all the way to the full moon where we're going to have a full moon in Gemini. Okay, uh, opposite the sun. So, let me look at the camera and talk about it. All right, I'm going to knock this sucker out. I mean, I'm having a Venus opposite Mars day. <laughs> oh, my God. I went all the way out to the point, all the way out to the point to do the Pele report. And I got out there, and I realized that my phone is charging in the car. Oh my God, like the car is a long ways from here. <laughs> Shit. And the moon, of course, this is a moon, Jupiter, Neptune, okay, in Pisces, which is chaos, confusion, disillusionment, in square, making it like a T square to this. Venus, Mercury, opposite Mars, squaring Jupiter, Neptune. Ow! Whoa! Let's give a little context for this situation, right? I mean, we got Mars in uh, Gemini for like six, seven months. It's there like until March, right? And instead, so it's doing its retrograde thing now. It only takes two years to go all the way around, so six months in one sign for Mars is a lot. 
spending a lot of time in Gemini. And what is Gemini? Curiosity. The eternal youth. The mutable, adaptable, shape-shifting, variety is the spice of life. Do something different every day, if not every hour, every minute. Oh, my God. So here's Mars. Okay, you know, Gemini rules, you know, the, the left brain and Mercury and social media and writing, speaking, teaching, short journeys, traveling. And here's Mars going... Gotta do this, gotta do that, I'm over here, I'm over there, oh, I love, oh, oh, I promised that, oops, I forgot, oh, I'm going to do that, oh, I'm over there, I mean, oh, my word. And then the sun, Venus, Mercury, move into Sagittarius, the philosophical archer. Seeking the grail and the meaning of life, the right brain intuition. And of course, she comes into this opposition with this masculine Mars energy in the sign of Gemini. And she calls him on his stuff. This is this opposition. <laughs> now, we all have a masculine and a feminine. We all have our own Venus and Mars. We all have Sagittarius and Gemini somewhere in our chart. You can look to your own chart to see where your receptive feminine, while in Sagittarius, the wizened, honest, Right, radical honesty, you know, truth seeking feminine nature is right now. What house she's moving through, what aspects she may be making to other planets in your chart. And then you can see where Mars and where Gemini is. And this is your animal vital power. Push, shove, charge, begin. Warrior, Tarzan. Uh, boom. Where this masculine energy is. Because now these two are polarized. And if that wasn't enough, and that's what the mantra is about today, it's like this sun, Venus, Mercury, moving through Sagittarius. Natural law. The rocky shores, the mountaintop, the meditative, you know, being, you know, really in a place of intuitive downloads, receptive, and Mars wanting to be busy with the daily activities and excitement and pleasure and in the now. I always kind of look at Gemini as be here now. And Sagittarius is take the long view. What is really important to get you to your bullseye, archer, arrow to the bullseye, instead of studying everything, learning everything, doing everything, dissipating your energy, becoming distracted, 
or being tempted off into this little nook and cranny or that relationship or that, you know, enterprise or that business deal or, you know, Gemini's just like got their fingers in ten pies. Venus and Sag is saying, only focus on what is true and what will carry you through to your highest path. Now we put these in square to Jupiter and Neptune and today the moon and tomorrow the I mean in Pisces which has no laws, no rules, no boundaries, no ground, no earth, no fire. It is ether. It is nothingness. It is the void. It is emptiness that we fill with sometimes addictions because the empty void is kind of uncomfortable for many, many of us. How many can sit still, like the mantra says, quiet the mind and enter the void? Very few. I'll tell you, I mean, I teach yoga and meditation. I know, I've sat in circles and circles and circles and circles and circles, trying to get the mind to shut up. You know, people go, oh yeah, meditate. How boring. Right? You know, I mean, you just sit there. Well, I'll tell you. Yeah. All your thoughts come up. All your ego, all your fears, all your memories, all your fantasies, all your... The mind, you know, Gemini, Mars and Gemini just wants to rattle, 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 rattle. Da, 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 da. <laughs> and Jupiter, Neptune, Pisces can rattle about anything and everything forever. <laughs> This fantasy, this imagination, this plan, this illusion, this disappointment, this disillusion, this depression, this emptiness, and oh my God, it's the end of everything, and my ship is sinking, and my life is going nowhere, and I'm just absolutely you know, confused, I don't know what's up and what's down, and where I'm going, and who I am, and I <laughs> You know, you know what I'm talking about, especially if you're Pisces or what Virgo or Gemini or Sag. This is the mute, mutable cross. Yeah. Yeah. So very, very interesting. In looking through all the Sabian symbols that I could read for you today, looking at the moon square the sun, looking at Neptune stationing direct at that 23rd degree. That's a good one for you to check out on your own. But of all of them, I chose Venus. Venus is moving faster than Mars. She's only coming into this opposition today, Wednesday. But it really sets the tone. Okay, you know, Venus doesn't oppose Mars very often. I mean, because they both move relatively quickly, right? So anyway, she is at 
the 19th degree of Sagittarius. Mars is at the 19th degree of Gemini, retrograde. Of course, this is 18 degrees and any number of minutes up to 60 is the 19th degree of a sign. Yeah. And it's so amazing because I'm laying here on the beach and what happens, man? A pelican flies right over my head. A singular pelican. A lot of times they're in flocks. But a pelican by himself came to visit me. So I said, you know, I got to read this. Pelicans menaced by the behavior and refuse of men seek safer areas for bringing up their young. The keynote is the need for people concerned with the future to discover a new way of living and more wholesome surroundings. Sagittarius, nature and natural law. But listen to the rest of this. And as I read it, I want you to remember this book was copyrighted in 1973. Elsie Wheeler and Mark Jones, Mark Edmund Jones, who actually came through with the Sabian symbols, was back in the early 1900s. So, you know, listen, listen to this. This is such a trip, right? I mean, this is over 50 years ago. The evident reason for using pelicans at this stage of the process is that tradition tells us that these birds are so concerned with their young that they give their own blood and flesh to feed their progeny. Whether this is fact or symbol, the meaning of this picture refers to a situation that lately, lately, like 1973, (laughs) has acquired great urgency. Our technological society is polluting not only our global environment, but the mind and feeling responses of new generations as well. This is before video games. But the mind and feeling responses of new generations as well. The search for a new way of life is seen by many people to be imperative. In this sequence, we are told that the races, the human, the survival of the human race has become a matter of extreme importance. Whole animal species may be destroyed by our civilization. Mankind itself is in danger. And here's what, this really tripped me out. Going to distant planets is hardly the answer. (laughs) This is 1973, this is long before SpaceX, all right? (laughs) 
going to distant planets is hardly the answer. And here's a big one. A generation may have to sacrifice itself for the sake of its descendants. These words are very appropriate for right now, aren't they? Aren't they? They're burning down the Amazon forest, okay? The, the birth rate, speaking of infants and future generations, the birth rate is plummeting, okay? The death rate is rising. It's true. We are being called, yeah? The future of mankind is really very much at stake right now. The future generations, and even those that do survive, okay, what's coming up here for these next few years, are still going to have their minds and their emotions, their feeling responses and their thoughts so highly impacted by you know, logarithms, algorithms that are being written by, uh, you know, for-profit, profiteering corporate monsters. So, yeah, it's, it's important. You know I've been saying to get back to nature for many years, and I'm just going to keep on repeating that call, but particularly when the sun... Venus and Mercury, okay, are in Sagittarius. And I'll tell you, this is not so much a time to be talking about it. Mercury square Neptune is not the clearest time for communication. I want to suggest, like I do in the mantra, that this is an inward time and that the quest of Sagittarius Okay, you know, is really to reach an intuitive comprehension, you know, and connect to the positive elements of Jupiter and Neptune, not the chaos, not the addictions, okay, you know, not the alcohol, drugs, and sex, and relationships, and movies, and books, and, you know, everything that, you know, can just like fill our emptiness, but no. To actually sit in the emptiness, to meditate, to, to, to draw in, to pray, to believe. I talked about, you know, last week, you know, Sagittarius, faith, hope, belief, love in the subtle, invisible, spiritual realms. This week is more of it. Only the, the temptations and the distractions can be even stronger if you reach a state of hopelessness or helplessness or despair or depression at the, you know, because of, of the confusion that you really don't know where your life is going or where the future of humanity is headed. This is a very, you know, this is our challenge as a generation. I want to encourage you been really thinking about this. Of course, I have the South Node in Taurus, but you know, this is about surrendering. Pisces, Jupiter, Neptune is surrender. Surrender what? I think so much of it is our comfort. 
our comfort. It's time to be uncomfortable and maybe speak things that are uncomfortable. Do things that are uncomfortable. Revolt or rebel or reject or call a lie a lie or challenge a mandate or really step out of our passive comfort zone as Neptune goes direct Jupiter is already direct Jupiter is going to enter Aries baby and even this week the sun is trying Chiron in Aries healing the wound of the warrior within so I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling like this is a time of preparation. I don't want to say for battle, but I want to say really time to receive the directions, receive the instructions from the divine intelligence. And they will be different for each one of us. But let's get ready to mobilize. 2023 is going to be a year where we will need to mobilize our forces. Yeah? So, maybe tighten up your ship and get it ready to sail so that, you know, when called upon, you are prepared. Yeah? So, for now, the time I feel like this week Rather than, you know, get staying busy and distracted and really take some time and effort. If I can't, you know, if I can, (laughs) Freudian slip, (laughs) you know, all these reports, I'm talking to myself. (laughs) Oh, God. If I can sit still and be quiet. I will hear guidance from on high and not be distracted or tempted to stray off the path I am on to the light. (laughs) I like this one, man. Yeah? You know. You know. And maybe you do, maybe you don't. But I'll read it one more time. Ready? If I can sit still and be quiet, I will hear guidance from on high and not be distracted or tempted to stray off the path I am on to the light. Let us be Sagittarian trailblazers to the light, holding the torch that others may follow on the quest for the grail, for the ultimate truths of existence. May you have a wonderful week. Namaste. Aloha. So much Light.
Richard. All right. So looking at next Saturday's chart, the moon will be in Cancer. So we're in very late Aries tonight, and we'll do uh, Taurus, Gemini, and Cancer in the next seven days. And the moon will make a finger of God that day with the sextile between Saturn and the sun. And uh, Venus will be in two Capricorn. And Mars will be in, Mercury will be in seven Capricorn. And they'll be squaring that Jupiter-Neptune thing. So, uh, this week's going to be a little uncomfortable. Uh, emotional, magnetic-wise. Let me put it that way. So, that's enough of that. Uh, da, 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 da. Yep, everything else, you know, slow-moving stuff doesn't move very fast. And uh, the sun will be more exactly opposite Mars. Next Saturday, Mars will be at Mars will be at 16, and the sun will be at 19. So that sun exactly opposite Mars happens this week. And what he didn't say about Gemini, I'm not disagreeing with all that Gemini information and rulership and all that stuff. But Mars retrograde in Gemini is disagreement. And oh. Yes, an extreme disagreement is a definition of war. Oh. And the last I checked, or the last I heard, besides Russia-Ukraine... And the ladies in Iran, and uh, what's his name, uh, Turkey and the Kurds, don't yep. forget them. Erdogan. Erdogan, oh, yeah. Those poor Kurds, they haven't got a homeland yet. Nope. Nope. they still still fussing with the Iranians and the Iraqis. What a place to live between the Iraqis the Iranians and the Turks. Yep. I visited Kurdistan when it was a country, and the people were very nice there. Right. It was a nice place back then. That was yep. 1970, dear. Yeah. Yes. Well, like I had, a, I had a friend in college who, uh, when he got out of the army in about 71... He, he spent some time in Lebanon, and it, he said it was really nice, you know. And he traveled around the Middle East there for a few months before he came back to the States. And now Lebanon is a wreck, you know. It's bad. It's bad and it's sad. Yes. Anyway, all right, enough, enough of this Debbie Downer stuff. Don't yeah. think it's Debbie Downer. Yeah. All right. Let's see. 
uh, Tanya is usually more uplifting. Here we go. <laughs> Wealth Astrometrologist, welcome to Star Codes. This is the podcast where we're looking at upcoming astronomerology event. We do both the stars and numbers, both divination arts, because they actually are sister divination arts. And today we're going to look at the upcoming Gemini full moon. Very exciting, very deep, because the moon is exactly conjunct, meaning merged with Mars retrograde. They're at 16 degrees Gemini, opposite the sun at 16 degrees in Sagittarius. Now, Gemini is all about facts and information and communication and conversation, speaking and thinking and fun and humor. And of course, Gemini is the twins, so it looks, it sees two sides of an issue similar to Libra. They're both air signs, by the way. And then Sagittarius is a fire sign, and it governs higher knowledge, higher wisdom, and, of course, joy and expansion and justice ruled by Jupiter. That's where the sun is at 16 degrees. So those themes will really be weaving through our life at this time. Now, with Mars retrograde exactly merged with the moon, there's a lot of impulsive energy and initiative. Mars is the energy planet. It is our libido, courage, forward momentum. It shows initiative and confidence. And so you want to use this passionate energy constructively. Now, because Mars is in retrograde, it is going within with all that energy. So in order to be in touch with that awakening that Mars is inevitably creating through your intuition and instinct going within, you want to exercise. You want to get outside. You want to move, be in nature if you can. Physical movement is always important when there is a Mars activation. Now, the sun and moon create a gorgeous triangle with Saturn. The moon is trying to Saturn and the sun is sextile to Saturn. And Saturn is all about taking full responsibility for everything that happens to you and just being really aware that you are the one who is the leader in your life in terms of everything that you experience it comes back to you energetically and that's why in ancient astrology Saturn was called the the planet of karma but karma has gotten sort of a a negative connotation it is actually not negative it's purely about frequency and energy so what you put out comes back so in this case because it is a very harmonious connection to Saturn a trine and a sextile are easy and flowing energy. There's a wonderful invitation to wake up. Wake up through communication, through your words, through your thoughts, through what you are partaking in regarding media, which, which Gemini also rules, and any skills and information that you partake in, how you assimilate thoughts, how you 
assimilate information, the nature of your words, what words you choose to use, the nature of the tone of your conversations. Gemini also rules curiosity and movement. And with the twins, you're invited to see two sides of every issue. So bringing them into harmony, not ever losing sight of wholeness. So how will this unfold? Well, Mars conjunct the moon will attract experiences that stir up feelings. And so if you cannot react to what is presented that is triggering you, so if something triggers you and you actually really go into whatever that trigger is, that will be extremely helpful because not only does it allow you to release what the emotion behind whatever triggered you is, but it brings it to the surface. It brings it to the light. And of course, the full moon is all about light. So what is the light? Well, what comes to the surface, meaning the external, is your mirror. It is lighting up what it is that is important for you to see at any given moment. So all the information you need is then contained in whatever feeling you are having. Whatever is triggered, go into that feeling. If feelings come up, learn to allow the information to present itself rather than trying to figure it out with your mind. Go to your heart and feel out what the energy is. So Saturn trying the moon is helping you to observe all of that, to stay neutral and take responsibility as a result. Because when you're not neutral and emotional, it's you're blind. You can't actually have that common sense and that ability to have the bird's eye view. So Saturn is giving us the observation energy. And so what you really want to observe closely is where you label any energy or frequency that comes up for you, where you, for example, come into contact with somebody and you automatically label them as good or bad, or there's always some kind of labeling that goes on when we operate from the mind without the heart. So this ability to see where you're labeling things is going to set you free of judgment. So Saturn can in especially ancient astrology where karma was seen as a negative can come across as passing judgment, right? You're leading a bad life or, you know, oh, good, you're, you're doing good deeds, that kind of thing. But creator source, the universe does not pass judgment. Creator source, the universe is just observing and allowing us to experience source and creator within us. So we need to let our individual belief systems die away about labeling and defining and instead become a unique expression of source, of all that we are. So not to be different, to set yourself apart, but to understand that, yes, you are a unique spark that works in the whole. And this is really the whole 
understanding of Gemini as well, because when you accept the whole, you accept both the light and the dark. You don't label them. So we all have the same consciousness. There is no imbalance, and it's through that God consciousness that we allow the gift of life to flower within us. And then we see each trial as a way to see the truth, and each truth, as it awakens, allows us to trust more. So if you think of the words trial, leads to truth, leads to trust. And I'm bringing up the T words because T is the 20th letter of the alphabet. Now going into numerology a little bit here too. The 20th letter reduces to two. Gemini is two, the twins. And so T words connect to that energy as well. Now, what we want to always remember is that we are conduits of energy. That's all we are. We are temporarily in our bodies. We've taken on our physical bodies, but essentially we are always conduits. And the more we shift our frequency into spiritual consciousness, God consciousness, the more we can be that empty container, that empty vessel, that conduit that keeps consistently transmuting and sharing and expressing quantum field energies. So always remember that, again, we're talking about the number two, right? Two sides. The universe is always in balance. We are the only ones that can create imbalance through choosing something that is of a lower vibrational frequency. And so with that awareness, that observation, we can refocus our energy on what is creating that imbalance. And that's really the key. So whatever you believe always comes back to you to prove to you that you created, you made that belief real. You made your energy real. And now you have to embody it. Now you, now that the energy has returned to you that you put out there, most likely unconsciously, you need to embody it. You have to experience what you put out, and that experience brings awareness, which in turn brings your energy into balance. And that awareness is what we want to really hone in on in this Gemini full moon with the sun in Sagittarius, because those two signs really help with that. So the universe will always give us clarity that supports both sides of the coin, represented by the twins. So if something is going to have challenged you, impacted you, source is going to support you to feel that challenge. Source is going to bring you situations that are challenging, that are not going to necessarily elevate you. At the same time, source is going to prove to you what is good about the challenge itself since you are awakening. So this truly leaves you in a space where you have all information from every single angle to choose from or not to choose from or to go to a completely different direction. The point is you have the data, you have the info, which is represented by Gemini. And that's how powerful you are. So this Gemini full moon is asking you to start holding yourself accountable for every word you speak, 
for every thought that you think and notice that when you see people or see situations in front of you, that your soul only feels energy. Your soul doesn't see colors, make definitions, right? Your soul literally is not engaged in the moments that we have where we have to give something a judgment or a definition, right? When we see something, visibly see. So when we do that, when we judge somebody or something, the soul only experiences you judging yourself. And this is really important because when you use words, for example, if I said to somebody out of spite, oh, that's being really stupid, you're being stupid, all my soul hears is that the soul is stupid. You're being stupid. That is actually, I'm saying that frequency. So it is only about me. The soul does not see the other person or soul. The soul only experiences you through your own actions, through your own words. So your soul hears you telling creator, spirit, source, the universe, that it is stupid. And in true Gemini fashion, it doesn't matter if you speak it or think it. So you're not let off the hook if you think it and don't say it. It really is just a frequency. It's all energy. And that also goes for any white lies, any half-truths that you might tell yourself in order to avoid a confrontation, whatever the case may be. So really the key is to bless each one of those experiences, especially experiences that bring people into your life that annoy you or seek to hurt you. It is really important not to create those definitions, but to feel the feeling, the moon conjunct Mars retrograde. If you see how vital it is to hold yourself accountable for every one of your choices, to not blame or shame yourself or others ever. Just to say and acknowledge, I chose to do that. I chose to think that. I chose to say that. It was me. And then you will move away from looking to the past for why you're acting this way, right? Holding it against others as a result, like not trusting others, for example, or doing something hurtful just because somebody else did it to you, right? So this full moon is a wonderful opportunity to look at how you might make others accountable for your own pain. And that Mars retrograde in Gemini that continues through March, the retrograde ends January 12th, but Mars will be in Gemini through March. So we have sort of this, this big culmination now with the Gemini full moon. This period of time awakens your basic instincts, your feelings, because we don't want to feel a lot of these things. We don't want to feel what triggers us, right? We'd rather just talk it out of our system and have justifications for it and, you know, seek answers here as opposed to going through the feeling. So the only thing that brings you to the light is taking responsibility for your life. 
Blaming others doesn't bring you peace. The only thing is to take accountability for your life, and that will change your life. The taking of accountability part is the journey to the light itself. Look at all the choices that brought you to where you are now, whatever you're looking at in terms of whatever topic area of your life. Look at the choices that brought you to this place now. And when you take responsibility for those choices, instead of blaming your parents, the world, the government, education, culture, whatever the case may be, and you only hold you accountable, then you will really discover how the external is going to shift with you. Your internal shift, Mars retrograde, internal shift, your internal shift about how you think, the words you choose, how you speak, will absolutely shift the external that you experience. Because everything is frequency, everything is energy, codes, numbers, planets, your chart, it's all energy, it's all frequency. It's every breath that you breathe is energy. So that's the only path to living a life of joy is to take accountability of every moment. And of course, we're going to be diving into this very topic in the upcoming 2023 Ultimate Yearly Forecast. Why? Because we are about to enter a seven universal year. And this full moon is at 16 degrees and 16 reduced to seven. And seven is a very profound number. That's why we have seven days in a week. Seven is bringing heaven to earth, bringing heaven into your heart because that's where heaven resides. And so there's going to be so much awakening in 2023, also because 23 is the royal star of the lion number, the strongest number in numerology, the number of confidence. And there's so much to this code that we're going to look at. And of course, all the astrology, the eclipses, your personal year, your your forecast for your ascendant, your moon, your sun, and so much more. But the whole thing will be focused on that shift that's inevitable in 2023. It's really going to ramp up. So if you want to join me for that live stream, go to 2023forecast.com. That's where you can sign up. And it's just such an incredible time to come together and for us to support each other through the awakening process that is so full in force now for us on earth and for earth itself. So I look forward to sharing that amazing forecast with you. So if you want to watch a short video about 2023 and the 2023 Ultimate Early Forecast, just go to 2023forecast.com. Have a beautiful Gemini full moon. And a wonderful week, and I'll see you in next week's Star Codes podcast. Lots of love.
picking up from last week from the book Death the Great Adventure by the Master DK. I had only read uh, up to uh, part 13. I read you a little bit of that see if I could get you interested in purchasing the book for yourself to study. But anyway, I had about ten more pages to go, and I found this in part 13. This is uh, section 12 on page 123, and I quote, dot, 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 the rising sign indicates the remoter possibilities and the spiritual goal and purpose of the immediate incarnation and of the immediate succeeding incarnations. This sign concerns itself with the struggle of the spiritual man to carry on from the point achieved so that when the life energy is temporarily exhausted and the death of the personality takes place, the man finds himself nearer the center of his life, closer to the center of his group, and approaching the center of divine life, as the ageless wisdom expresses it. This particular phase, death of the personality, has two definite connotations. It may mean the death of the physical body, which is inevitably followed by the two stages of the death of the emotional vehicle and the subsequent dissipation of the temporary and ever-changing form which the quota of mental energy has assumed during incarnation. B, the subjective and mystical death of the personality. This is a phrase indicating the transfer of the focus for the distribution of energy from the personality to the soul. These are definite centers of force. Number 13, the birth month indicates the day of opportunity. The door stands open. The particular month in which a soul comes into incarnation is indicated to that soul by the month in which it passed out of incarnation in a previous life cycle. If it, for instance, died in the month governed by the sign Leo, it will return into incarnation in the same sign, picking up the thread of experience where it left it, and starting with the same type of energy and the peculiar equipment with which it passed away from Earth life, plus the gain of thought and conscious onlooking. The quality of the energy and the nature of the forces to be manipulated 
during life are indicated to the soul in this way. 14. Therefore, the use of the term immortality infers timelessness and teaches that this timelessness exists for that which is not perishable or conditioned by time. This is a statement requiring careful consideration. Man reincarnates under no time urge. He incarnates under under the demands of karmic liability, under the pull of that which he, as a soul, has initiated, and because of a sense need to fulfill instituted obligations. He indicates he incarnates also from a sense of responsibility and to meet requirements which an earlier breaking of the laws governing right human relations have imposed upon him. When these requirements, soul necessities, experiences and responsibilities have all been met, he enters permanently into the clear, cold light of love and life and no longer needs the nursery stage of soul experience on earth. He is free from karmic impositions in the three worlds, but is still under the impulse of karmic necessity, which exacts from him the last possible ounce of service that he is in a position to render to those still under the law of karmic liability. You have, therefore, three aspects of the law of karma as it affects the principle of rebirth. The law of karmic liability, governing life in the three worlds of human evolution, and which has ended altogether at the fourth initiation. The law of karmic necessity. This governs the life of the advanced disciple and the initiate. From the time of the second initiation until a certain initiation higher than the fourth, these initiations enable him to pass on to the way of the higher evolution. And number three, the law of karmic transformation, a mysterious phrase governing the processes undergone upon the higher way. These fit the initiate to pass off the cosmic physical plane altogether and to function upon the cosmic mental plane. This concern with the release of those like Sanat Kamara 
and his associates in the council chamber of Shambhala from the imposition of cosmic desire which demonstrates upon our cosmic physical plane as spiritual will. This should be to you an arresting thought. It will be obvious, however, that there is little that I can say upon the subject. The knowledge involved is not yet mine. And that's what DK has to say about the rising sign and the birth month. And this last part is from... uh, Esoteric healing. The first part was from esoteric astrology, and the middle part was from. Let's see. A treatise on white magic. A treatise on white magic. So there you go. There's there's some good good hints and temptations for for you to get this little paperback book and study it. And okay, Richard it's repeat brought it. me it's brought me it's brought it's brought a lot of my studies together, you know, over the years. This little hundred and twenty five page book. You have so a question Richard, here? Give the name of the book again and the author. Death, colon, The Great Adventure. All right. <laughs> Compiled by two students from the writings of Alice A. Bailey and the Tibetan master, Jual Cool. And that's spelled... D-J-W-H-A-L-K-H-U-L. Lucis Publishing Company. Right. Lucis Press. Yes. Or Lucis Press Limited in London. So they got two printing houses, one in New York, New York, and the other in London. At least they did back back in that. This, This one was... First printing was 1985, mm-hmm. and in this reference page of all all these editions, the last one that he did was 1960, the, the fifth volume of the Treatise on the Seven Rays. That one came out in 1960. And his first two came out in 1922. So he worked on he worked on this project of his to enlighten humanity. Put the first one out in 1922. So for 48 years he served us. So and he's still working. I'm sure. He's still alive and well and amongst the living? Well, sure, but he might not have a body at this time. But he is amongst the living. (laughs) Yes, I see. You see? Yes, sir. 
Okay. <laughs> Thank you. That was a good one. All right. Namaste, <laughs> my friends. Thank you for listening to our little astrology hour. Thank you, Richard. Until Thank we meet you. again. And we will we'll get together again next Saturday. Yes, we will. All right. Peace out. Stop Peace the war. Stop. Stop the war. War is over. <laughs>
wrote the songs of blue whales and humpback whales. Wow, were they in the same uh, area singing to each other, huh? Yeah. Okay, we've got something, one more here? One more. All right. That was that it ended so abruptly. Yeah. Welcome back everyone. Okay. Ram Ram Hari Ram. <laughs> yes. Um, Peace to all, love to all, light to all. The sun shines on everyone. It does not make choices. Okay. Good words. Okay. This is called The Mystery of the Maya. And our wonderful friend, Freddie Silva, Silva is the uh, instructor host. Who were the Maya? The Maya appeared in Yucatan, seemingly out of nowhere, in 3100 B.C. Yet recent underwater artifacts tell a different story. A culture was already established where six thousand, uh, established there six thousand years earlier. This is their story. How their progeny became known as Maya and how the temples of Yucatan and Guatemala today are the final expression of a project 9,000 years in the making. Mm -hmm. Filmed on location in Chichen Itza, Edzna, Izamal, Ushmal, Oxkintok, Labna, Kaba, Tulum, Jaina, Ekbalam, Mayapan, Belam Kanchi, Palenque, Yaxchilan, Chilan, and Tikal. I've been mm. to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of those places, and Micah was with us and his father. We spent a whole year down there. This documentary also explores the elements and purpose behind each temple. And so we go on here. It's You got it, huh, Ron? Mm -hmm. Okay, this is one hour, eight minutes. Let's do it. Civilizations, the Maya appeared in Yucatan seemingly out of nowhere when a star in the Pleiades by the same name was seen rising before the sun around 3100 BC. 
But a number of recent underwater discoveries tell a very different story. Around the coast, mile after mile of tunnels reveals a world submerged by rising seas at the end of the Ice Age. In these tunnels were found human remains and Maya artifacts, proving that a culture was already established here 6,000 years earlier. The name Maya means water people. Perhaps it is a clue to their true origin. According to the sacred book Chilambalam, the ancestors of the Maya arrived by boat in 9600 BC from a large island to the east called Atl or Atitlan, where it is said the waters swallowed the source of wisdom. A catastrophe destroyed their island home, forcing its divine survivors to sail west. The Chilambalam refers to these first inhabitants as Kanul, the people of the serpent. They were led by three godmen, Kukulkan, Quetzalcoatl, and Itzamna, each of whom led seven sages, all charged with the rebuilding of civilization. When they arrived in Yucatan, they called it Mayab, the land of the few, probably in honor of the survivors who found themselves here. It is said that Itzamna and his crew brought the understanding of mathematics and the stars, of jade carving, agriculture, architecture, and sacred knowledge, thus explaining how the Maya appeared with a pre-packaged civilization and a fully developed cosmology. What's more astonishing is that hardly anyone has ever heard of Itzamna and his sages, the Its, the water wizards, people who came from the sea with knowledge of the laws of nature and how to bend them. This is their story, how their progeny became known as Maya, and how the temples of Yucatan and Guatemala today are the final expression of a project 9,000 years in the making. unambiguously described as a fair and ruddy complexioned man with a long beard, a white man with strong body, broad forehead, large eyes, who came from across the ocean in a boat that moved itself without paddles. The cult of Itzamna was based on non-violence, compassion and humility. It was such a cornerstone of Maya cosmology that the image of these gods riding a canoe was still used in ceremonial art up until the historic era. Collectively known as the Paddler Gods, 
It was sometimes represented as zoomorphic figures riding a canoe that sailed along the Milky Way towards Orion, which itself was considered the origin of the gods, not to mention the half of creation itself. After arriving in Yucatan, Itzamna and his water wizards established a town that still bears their name, Izamal. While visitors flock to more popular locations, few are aware that the largest pyramid in this corner of Central America is found here. Even though mostly destroyed and used as a quarry by incoming Spanish Catholic priests, the scale of the Sun Pyramid is still impressive. Walking up, it is possible to see the exposed megalithic core. Nine levels once spread over two acres, followed by a curved mound of a further nine levels. According to folklore, the head of its summer is buried here. But there's a lot more to its amal. Among its gardens and plazas lie hints of its past grandeur. A vast temple city that once comprised seven pyramids and temples covering 20 square miles. Six raised sacred roads, or Sakbe, linked its amal to other Maya cult centers, making this a focal point of Yucatan. In the western section of what used to be the central plaza lies a second impressive pyramid, Itzamatul, claimed to be the resting place of Itzamna's heart. When the explorer Arthur Catherwood came across a third pyramid in 1915, he noted how it was still covered with stucco masks and elaborate symbols, along with the seven-foot-tall head of Itzamna himself. The southern section was once marked by another colossal structure, Paphol Shuk. Faced with the superhuman task of destroying the largest temple complex in Yucatan, the arriving Spaniards simply leveled the pyramid and used its masonry to build a Franciscan monastery and other buildings. Part of its original stonework can still be seen throughout the monastery. The fact that the Spanish made this the most important of Catholic bishoprics as well as the center of pilgrimage reveals the importance of Itzamna's teachings, his temple city, and why both had to be convincingly subjugated. But in doing so, it left a major clue as to the origin of Itzamal. As a rule, Catholic churches must face east-west. Whenever they deviate, it is a sure sign they conceal an original structure. Here, the Franciscan church sits above a cenote, a Maya ceremonial cave, over which the original site was built. Since ancient temples memorialized their date of construction by facing the rising of a particular star, the church's unusual alignment gives away the date of the temple, the winter solstice in 9600 BC, the very date given in Maya texts for the arrival of Itzamna and his magicians. In the west of the Yucatan Peninsula lies another major temple complex, Itzna, the House of Itza, today known as Enzna. 
enormous structures and staircases frame a central courtyard, marking the arrival of two sacbe. One links to the Gulf of Mexico and continues under the sea, demonstrating the truly ancient foundation of this empire. A huge elevated structure with broad central stairway forms a dramatic entrance to the Grand Plaza, a restricted section for those who observed the rules and customs of sacred space. The plaza served as a focal point for honoring the traditions established by the Itz and the Maya, with festivities held to coincide with specific stellar events, such as the solar return of Venus every 52 years. The divine bloodline of the Itz continued here until the 7th century with Lady Jude Shanek. Her title, Serpent Star, identifies her as a progenitor of the original Kanul, the people of the serpent. Towering over the plaza is a five-step pyramid. Its 40-degree elevation reflects the angle of the nonagon, the nine-sided geometric figure symbolizing utmost perfection. The building was designed to serve as an academy where teachings concerned with enlightenment were conducted, each chamber dedicated to individual topics. Mayan glyphs set into the staircase remind initiates of their responsibilities. Among other buildings is the Temple of Masks. It features the sun god Ahal whose face is illuminated by the sun in May and August, marking the festivals of fertility and harvest, known to the Celts as Beltane and Lamas. Ahau is an unusual Maya name because it is the nickname given to the flood gods of Egypt, the Shining Ones, followers of Horus, demonstrating how two distinct cultures once share the common point of origin. Despite the impressive temple culture of the Maya, their sacred rituals begin elsewhere. Yucatan is filled with cenotes, created from the impact of meteorites that took its rivers underground. Practically all pyramids were built over a cenote, illustrating how the womb of the feminine supports the phallic masculine temple above it. Every teaching, every ritual starts with ceremony inside the ritual cave. The Maya spatial model was organized horizontally by the cardinal directions representing the material world and vertically by three tiers, a creative underworld housing the forces of creation, a middle world represented by the temple and an upper world, the sky. At the core is the cosmic hearth the Orion constellation, so much so that the symbol of Orion is even painted on the roof of the ceremonial cave. The other world of the Maya is called Shibalba, and one of its most important places of access is the sacred cave Balam Kaanche. Perhaps this cave system was chosen above a thousand others because its layout so resembles a uterus. One figuratively engages with a divine womb. 
At the bottom of the subterranean world lies a waterway representing the river of forgetfulness, the stream every initiate must cross to reach the other world. In the main chamber, a tall limestone column rises like the world tree connecting the lower, middle and upper worlds. The umbilical cord that takes the soul on its journey along the celestial river. This tree is Wakachan, meaning raised up sky. Scattered among its roots lie incense burners and containers for the narcotic used by initiates to elicit a near-death experience whereby the soul temporarily leaves the body. The traditional concoction is called Balche, a fermented honey drink brewed inside a canoe hollowed from a sacred tree, the vessel to take the soul to the heart of the sky. In Egyptian tradition, a similar celestial boat was used by its famous initiate, Osiris, the earthly representative of Orion. The ritual that took place inside Balamkanche is memorialized in the local legend of a boy who was forbidden to marry his beloved, so he ran away with his intended bride and hid her in the cave, hence the nickname Shtakumbi, the hidden lady. But there's a hidden meaning to this story. Every initiate who undertook the journey to the other world did so to discover the source of wisdom, which was embodied in a divine woman. If the initiate returns successfully from this out-of-body journey, they married the cosmic bride. Even in a state of ruin, the temple cities originally constructed by the Itch and expanded by the Maya were beautiful. Every building was encoded with a vocabulary of sacred knowledge by people with an unerring understanding of universal laws, producing a logical and harmonious conceptualization of the universe. And Ushmal is a perfect example. Ushmal means built three times, and indeed the site as a whole follows three distinct axes, each defining a period of thousands of years before the stars moved and new temples realigned to mirror the sky. The original site is described as an invisible city, with the distinction of having been built in one night by the magic of a dwarf king. Sakbe's link Ushmal with Chichen Itza on the other side of Yucatan, and hundreds of miles further with Shunantunish in Belize and Tikal in Guatemala. One such road arrives at the main quadrangle of Ushmal, where it aligns with Venus through an entrance arch. The arch defines a type of activity taking place inside the courtyard. With a pitch of 52 degrees, the angle of the Great Pyramid of Giza, the buildings lining the courtyard are concerned with the transformation of the soul. This area once served as a cosmic university, where priestess Ishkukulkan, she who teaches the path of wisdom, transmitted knowledge to astronomers, architects, artists and scribes, many of whom traveled across Central America to receive the knowledge of the gods. There was a focus on the application of integrative medicine so healers were also made their way here. 
At the center of the courtyard once stood the half of the temple complex, where stood three stones commemorating the bell stars of Orion in honor of the original teachers. X's mark the faces of the buildings, defining them as restricted spaces. There are exactly 584 X's, the cycle of Venus, the Maya symbol of rebirth. It seems one came here to be reborn. The lower building is called Itzamna, the shaman house. Its cardinal position in the south defines it as a place where the element of fire is lit within the initiate, so they come into their personal power. Along the upper molding are flowers called its, the magic substance, indicating a place where narcotics were studied and probably ingested as part of the initiatory process. Above each doorway, a stone window complete with a zoomorphic creature represents the transformational cycle of birth, death and rebirth. This can only be possible when the individual experiences the paradisial world while they live. Interestingly, this name of this window into another reality is Shanilna, which is uncannily similar to Yana, the window into paradise in Persian mysticism. For the journey to be accomplished successfully, the initiate must enter in a balanced state. So eight chambers reflect the teachings of the four material and four spiritual forces, with the night, the entrance, defining the stage of completion. In this building, initiates began and finished their inner journey. Across the way is Nikterilna, the assembly house. Located in the north, the temple concerns itself with understanding the laws of magnetism and gravity that allow the soul passage through the field of reeds leading to Shibalba. Hence why a house of reeds appears above each room. These are Kanna, serpent houses, where one comes to work with the serpentine flow of energy. Eleven chambers plus two side chambers make eleven over thirteen, the solar and lunar numbers the mark of the masculine and feminine intertwined in harmony. Scrolls spreading across the face of the building indicate clouds, emphasizing the ascent to the sky. But the prominent feature is the mask of chalk. The ring eyes of a young person cover an old face. The old ego comes here to die, to be reborn with a new and younger way of looking at the world. Members of the Chok society walk in the footsteps of the divine lineage of the Kanul. We are reminded of this in the effigies of Itzamna, who is depicted with his breath extending from his mouth, from which came the knowledge taught here. In the direction of the rising sun, the East House is concerned with healing and rebirth. Epitomized by the pentagram, the building comes with five chambers. Its flowers identify the blessed substance, the application of plant medicine, which included narcotics for shamanic travel. The its magicians themselves are depicted with their tongues extended like a green man, from whose breath nature is periodically rejuvenated. When the sun descends, it marks the journey into the other world. So in the West House, 
one becomes fully aware of the laws of nature, which in sacred teachings are symbolized by the seven colors of light and the seven notes of the music scale. These laws were once taught in each of these seven chambers. Cloud and lattice motifs indicate a cloud house, a place from where one travels to another reality, and hopefully returns transformed, like the initiate emerging from the mouth of a snake. Not only has he been indoctrinated into the teachings of the people of the serpent, he no longer associates with his soil alone, but rises like a bird above the material world and sees the bigger picture. The individual has become a feathered serpent, the path once taken by Quetzalcoatl. Across the way, a massive artificial platform rises above Ushmal and supports a group of buildings. The main one forms a huge rectangle in the ratio A to 1, a triple octave in music. It is covered with no less than 20,000 sculptures. Images of the rain god Chuck suggest this may have been erected when the regional weather changed radically to a drier climate around 2500 BC. Each mask is assembled from exactly 19 limestone blocks reflecting the 18.6-year cycle when the lunar and solar calendars synchronize. Doorways conform to the ratio of the octave and the golden ratio. Above the central chamber, a large emblem of a feathered itzamna is supported by seven its in the form of serpents. Nothing in these buildings is by chance. Everything conveys a piece of information, like a book made of stone. Two spear arches link the building's three elements. The first is curiously angled at 19.5 degrees, the angle of energy upwelling, reflected in the latitude where the most energetically active spot manifests on a planet. On Earth, it is Manakir Volcano. The other spear door is angled at 33 degrees. It reflects the most secret teaching of the mysteries, the conscious manipulation of gravity, which on Earth brings materials to rest at the angle of 32.72 degrees, or 33 for convenience. Even sculptures are functional. In the adjacent courtyard, a dual jaguar is aligned to the central door to mark the sudden rising of Venus over hills three miles away. But there's more to it. Such sculptures were cut from magnetically charged stone and induced specific effects. Here, a person facing one jaguar is able to transmit a thought or image to a person facing the other. How life appeared on Earth and who taught it to humans was the focus of the House of Turtles, so-called because of a line of turtles crawling around its perimeter. In my cosmology, Orion is a cosmic turtle, whose back was cracked by lightning, allowing the god of maize to rise through the crack and fertilize the earth. From the house of turtles, the pyramid of the magician rises above the canopy of trees. It's an elegant structure concealing a long, long history. Like all temples, 
It has grown organically to reflect the ages and the movement of the sky across long periods of time. The present building incorporates four older temples. At the foot of its western face is a restricted courtyard that once saw its share of ceremonies. A phallic stone pillar marks the crossing of Tellurid currents. It is the spot where offerings and prayers were made and where one prepared mentally before approaching the pyramid. Effigies of Chuck line the steep staircase. They lead to a room into which the light of the descending equinox sun is swallowed by the massive mouth of the pyramid's protective monster. By contrast, the eastern side is covered by a wide staircase leading to the portal of an older structure. Like a womb, it receives the light of the rising equinox sun, now slightly offset due to the gradual movement of the sky. The correct alignment took place in 7000 BC. The equinox sun is a highly celebrated time of year since it marks the moment when light and dark are in perfect equilibrium. Thus, it reflects the ideal of a balanced society. This ideal was not only marked by pyramids and temples, it was also calculated to influence the entire Yucatan Peninsula. On the east coast, the Temple of Tulum marks the entry point of the rising equinox sun. Its setting on the west coast is marked on the island of Jaina. The island represents the descent into Shibalba, so not surprisingly, over 20,000 Maya came to be buried here, along with their totem figurines. Coincidentally, a Jain is a Persian term for a spirit, and it defines Jainism, one of the most ancient religious traditions of India, which teaches a path to spiritual purity and enlightenment through non-violence ethics that are oddly identical to those introduced in Yucatan by Zamna over 11,000 years ago. Were all these people borrowing from the same instruction manual? teachings of Itzamna and Quetzalcoatl sought nothing less than spiritual transfiguration. This was achieved through mental tests and an ascetic lifestyle aimed at removing oneself from physical attachments, a flaying of the self, so to speak, so that this precious stone and rich feather, as the Maya referred to the soul, could access a finer level of being. The process required the initiate to undergo a symbolic death and rebirth, just as Quetzalcoatl and Kukulkan once did for four days inside a stone box, after which they rose and appeared as bright as the morning star Venus. The Maya associated spiritual teachings with three stellar objects, Sirius, Orion, and Pleiades. They refer to them as suns, which brings us to the temple complex of Oshkintok, meaning where the three suns burn. 
Its most inconspicuous yet most important building is Zat Sun Tat. Writing about it, a visiting Spanish priest misunderstood its purpose. To quote, It is a place where they tossed those who committed great offenses, so there they may die. He believed this to be a jail, when in fact, it is a labyrinth. The entrance marks the equinox sunset, the entry into Shibalba. A low ceiling forces a person to bend in humility and into a dark maze. Turning left takes you to a dead end. Turning right also takes you to a wall, but with a difference. The ceiling slab pivots, allowing entry into a second level. The process is repeated into a third and progressively taller level. Walking the maze simulates the disoriented soul in the other world, which one can only navigate by using the intuitive or right side of the brain. Upon ascending the three levels, the initiate finally reappears to face Venus at the equinox sunrise. In the world of Maya, there is physical death and there's metaphoric death, a concept clearly lost on that priest. A sakbe from the temple city of Tikal takes you to Lavna, a journey of 200 miles. A visitor in 1840 would have been greeted by the ruined observatory on its artificial hill that featured a monolithic statue of Ezzamna's consort, Yishel. There's an Asian feel to the architecture here, as though one is in a Cambodian temple. And indeed, there was much cultural exchange between Asian cultures and the Maya. The entrance arch marks the end of the second Sakbe and commemorates the original site, which aligns to the rising of Sirius on the winter solstice in 6000 BC. Inside the courtyard, two Shanil Na define this as another place of access into Shibalba. The beehive-shaped arch indicates one came here to collect the metaphoric honey, the very knowledge of the gods, which is why deities are always associated with this substance. A close look at the foundations of Lautna's sacred buildings reveal images of Pawatuns, nature gods, whose purpose is to provide protection to sacred abodes. Protruding from one temple, the sculpture of a risen Kukulkan emerges from the mouth of the serpent. An arch at the temple city of Kaaba marks the arrival of a royal road from the arch at Ushmal, 11.060606 miles away, the exact numerical value of the sunspot cycle in years. In one corner of the complex, the pyramid still awaits excavation. Kaaba is an odd word in Yucatan because it is the name of the Egyptian esoteric soul body teaching Kaaba, better known by its full title, Kaaba Allah. As a complex, Kaaba represents the strong hand of the creator, Ahal, the nickname of the Egyptian sages. Indeed, Egyptian and Maya languages share many words. The central feature is the temple Kotspup, whose walls calculate 2,000 years of conjunction cycles between Earth and Venus. 
Venus was central to Maya cosmology because it was a transitional marker from one age to the next. It also calculates a 260-day calendar or nine cycles of the moon, a celestial body that regulates the human gestation cycle. Each day is represented by a mask of the rain god Shak. Nearby, two its magicians watch over the site like protective sentinels. Probably the best known Maya text is the Popol Vuh. It tells how four prophets and their wives descended from the Pleiades to share the mysteries of hidden knowledge at the temple complex of Ekbalam. The name means Jaguar Star. Like so many temple complexes, Ekbalam has been rebuilt and expanded over a long period of time. A nucleus comprising twin temples, an observational tower, and a small ball court form a newer group dated to 1300 BC, while a huge platform featuring larger masonry sits on the site commemorating a far more distant era. An entrance arch on the platform designed according to the golden ratio marks the crossing of two Sakbe along cardinal points. The remains of sweat lodges testify to shamanic work that took place here possibly in preparation to access the most prominent structure. 100 foot high, this series of rectangular platforms form a kind of step pyramid. One by one, its chambers are being excavated, revealing a litany of stucco figures and over 40 sacred texts in a good state of preservation. One of the rooms is still electromagnetically active and shuts down electrical devices whenever they pass beyond its threshold. The imposing staircase and exterior of the building are juxtaposed at different angles to the structure beneath, demonstrating how the sky changed by the time the new ruler remodeled the site, as he describes on a stella at the base of the building. The double serpent identifies his Kanul heritage. Pyramid-type buildings represent wits, the sacred mound upon which the knowledge of the gods was originally deposited. Here, the most elaborate chamber is the Jaguar Room. It is shaped like the mouth of a witch monster, the protective beast of the sacred mountain, whose 33 teeth serve to metaphorically deflesh the initiate so as to lighten the physical body before undertaking the journey into Shibaba. Seven its teachers hover around the entrance, some depicted with symbolic wings the teachers of the sky. They are referred to as Anhel, a being of creation. One it is shown with fingers in an Indian mudra position. One sits in a yoga pose, while another demonstrates the jaguar grip, the jaguar being the guide into Shibaba. The images around the entrance depict the sky world. The chamber is the middle world, and below the platform, the lower world with its rivers and currents of creation and its protective nature spirits. Adjacent to the chamber is the reading room. Above the entrance, a reed house in the shape of a T represents Tao, the breath of God, from where the most profound knowledge emerges.
leaving little doubt as to the kind of material that was read in this chamber. Such visual clues identify this area where the candidate was taught the deeper mysteries, after which they undertook an out-of-body journey to gain first-hand experience. Ekbalam was clearly a site where restricted knowledge about the forces of nature was conveyed. Information that in the wrong hands could be used and misused. No wonder the Maya carefully concealed the site with rubble until it resembled a natural hill, fooling the invading Spanish who simply walked past, oblivious to its importance. In its heyday, the ancient city of Mayapan was the place that united the wisdom teachings of other sites throughout the Yucatan. Its Zamna's counterpart, Kukulkan, once lived here, teaching the structure of the cosmos and the art of uniting the three forces of creation. Like every other flood god, he too was supported by seven sages, one of whom was his wife and sister. It's often been debated how the Maya were able to maintain a population large enough to build and maintain the largest civilization in the Americas. The answer is, they designed their step pyramids in such a way as to allow electromagnetism to rise to the top platform, upon which seeds were placed. The build-up of electrical current fertilized the seeds, allowing for as many as five harvests during the growing season. One of these telluric currents is still active today. It flows along the row of stone pillars before impregnating the pyramid. There is also an obligatory observatory where complex Maya calendars were studied and implemented. There was a long count calendar spanning 26,000 years and a great cycle spanning 2,160 years. Others track the motions of Mercury, Mars and Jupiter along with eclipse cycles. There was a 266-day female gestation calendar, a general 365-day solar calendar, a supplemental 819-day count, and a 584-day Venus transit that calibrates with the Earth and Sun. Such calculations could only be the product of a culture that observed, calculated, and marked these transits over tens of thousands of years. In other words, the calendars were inherited from an earlier civilization and expanded upon by the Maya. At the entrance to the town of Chichen Itza, an old church sits on the site of a pyramid in which was found a 10-foot-tall human skeleton a good omen for the cultural roots of this enormous temple city. Over 2,000 temples and pyramids interpret the universe, acting as focal points for human interaction with the divine. It is a cosmic university to which candidates flocked from all over Central America to be educated to the highest levels of mathematics, astrology, astronomy, science, philosophy, and the mysteries. 
Each discipline shared in individual temples, which embody the teachings by mere virtue of measures and decorations hardwired into the fabric of the buildings. Chichen Itza means mouth or well of the water wizard. As the name implies, it was founded by Itzavna and his crew. And ever since, people have been coming here in search of enlightenment. Its supplemental title, Yuk Yipnal, the Seven Great House, honors the seven its, as well as the star cluster most associated with great teachers, the Pleiades. On the summit of the Temple of the Tables, there once stood a series of altars supported by 19 figures called Atlantes, a reminder from where the knowledge originated. One building features an elaborate mask representing its Zavna and his divine breath. Beehives mark this restricted abode as a place where symbolic honey was dispensed to adepts. The adjacent building is a mask in itself, covered with images of its Zavna. And of Chok, the old face overlaid with a young person's eyes, indicating teachings that focused on personal renewal. Above the entrance, a man seated in meditation is clothed below the waist and naked above, because in the lower world things are hidden, whereas in the world above everything is laid bare. He is a resurrected hero originally painted blue, just like other rejuvenating heroes, Shiva and Osiris. At Chichen Itza, the understanding of the sky and a person's place in the cosmic scheme of things was paramount. A large observatory with a spiral staircase stands on a platform in the ratio 4 to 3, the orbital proportion between Earth and Venus. The round structure is oddly placed on the platform, suggesting a later adaptation to a constantly changing sky. The corners aligned to solstices, and carefully placed windows marked astronomical events. The cycles of the Moon, Venus, Sirius, Orion and Pleiades were calculated here. One of the main functions of Chichen Itza involves the rite of initiation, and it took place at three interconnected sites. The first is the Temple of the Jaguar, a small room by the main bowl court. It is presided by an eroded image of Itzamna as a wizened old man with Caucasian features and a beard. Protected by a feather serpent on each column, the room is in the proportion of the golden ratio. A weathered panel depicts a ceremonial dance once enacted over five days around November the 1st, presided by an its magician who works the life force while a group of participants walks behind him. A panel depicts a kind of battle scene where the soul overcomes the physical world, while mountains and crevices emit the life force in the form of serpents who support the nature gods. The feathered serpent serves the entourage and protects a magician holding a mirror that enables him to see into the other world. The chamber is aligned to the winter solstice in 5500 BC.
Having been advised on the mysteries of life, the individual was then led to the second location, a small pyramid that few take much interest in. Built over a cenote, it is constructed with seven tiers, marking it as a place where one comes to interact the formative laws of nature. Stairways decorated with intertwined serpents, representing electrical and magnetic currents, feature eyes inside each coil, a reminder that harnessing these forces allows one to peer into other levels of reality. Once prepared, the individual entered from the cave underneath, made their way into the pyramid by way of an umbilical shaft, and spent a few days inside the womb-like environment. Upon returning from their journey, they climbed up another shaft to reappear on the summit. To complete the initiation, the initiate would be taken to the third location, opposite the first temple of the jaguar, a large step mound called Temple of the Warriors. At the top of the grand staircase, they would gaze at the seated figure of Shark Mool. At the same moment, Venus rose before the equinox sunrise and appeared above the plate on his belly. Together, the three sides form a triptych in the form of a perfect right-angle triangle. Historians have led us to believe that a gruesome blood sport was conducted in Maya ball courts. Or was it? To begin with, the playing area is composed of two inverted T's, representing Tao, the breath of God. And access is via a staircase whose balustrades are carved with Wakichan, the world tree linking the three levels of reality, upon which is perched the bird Itsamye, representing the elevated soul. And if the arena was meant for a public sporting activity, there is a remarkable absence of seating for spectators. Clearly, a better explanation is in order. The steep walls of the court illustrate Maya cosmology of how life emerged from a crack in the mouth of creation. Hence why the bowl court is referred to as Om, a crevice. The court itself is acoustically tuned. A vocal sound or a clap of hands echoes exactly seven times, an homage to sound as a causative element in creation. High up on the inner walls, stone rings are carved with intertwined feathered serpents. Eyes fill the gaps between the coils, so that when the ball penetrated the ring, it became the object with which to see into Shibalba, hence the nickname by which the ball court was known Shlashni, the looking place. So far it seems the purpose of the game was one of instructive or spiritual value. But the most telling clues are the intricately carved panels running the length of the court in which players are depicted in the most unusual game. The central player has no head and seven wriggling snakes rise out of his severed neck. Each represent a law of creation but to embody this knowledge, the player must first decapitate his ego, depicted at the player's feet as a large skull inside the halo. It is called Wei, the soul. Altogether, this portion of the panel depicts an initiate on his path to wisdom, 
supported either side by the seven sages. The entire scene depicts a cylindrical projection of the planes around the zodiac, tracing a path of planets above and below the celestial horizon. In other words, the game played here was a figurative ball game of the gods. The idea of the game was to amass enough points to reach the center of the field, Teokali. The aim was for players to learn and interact with the laws of nature and learn the greatest game of all, the game of life. The ball game was a metaphor of the regenerative cycle of creation, and the person who understood its mechanics overcame the repetitive cycle of fate. Thus, it was a game of symbolic warfare. All in all, the ball court enabled people to visualize the mechanics of a spiritual drama and how to embody them, and it is encapsulated in the upper temple overlooking the court, where a large mural depicts a metaphoric scene, the battle between the laws of nature and the incarnate itself. Like all things, the loss of the original meaning over time led to misunderstanding and the game degenerated into a literal game of life and death in northern Mexico, with the Aztec reenacted each year with gruesome barbarity. The dominant feature of Chichen Itza is undoubtedly the Pyramid of Kukulkan, a masterpiece of geodetic, numeric and astronomical information. The floor of the plaza from which it rises was once painted in red cinnabar and forms the top of several underground levels built by the original astronomer priest Nohosh Itzab. There may be as many as nine underground levels to reflect the Maya underworld. All of this too was built above a cenote and originally accessed by canoe using a network of underground waterways. The pyramid's general slope of 52 degrees is the same as the Great Pyramid of Giza. Its terrace walls slant at 72 degrees, the root number to calculate the Earth's precession and the houses of the zodiac. Each large step features 52 panels, the cycle of the Pleiades, which equals one Maya century. Stairways inclined at 45 degrees represent the square, the material world, and four staircases of 91 steps equal 364, with the top platform making 365, the solar year. The pyramid's shape tracks the equinoxes, solstices, and the zenith of the sun. At the equinox sunrise, the pyramid's shadow forms the head and wings of a quetzal bird on the ground while the clap of hands imitates the bird's sound. At sunset, the light casts shadows in seven isosceles triangles against the western balustrade that evoke a wriggling serpent. By contrast, the winter solstice sunset projects a serpent descending into and fertilizing the earth. Strategically situated on the seventh course, the inner chamber of the pyramid is referred to as the Chamber of Alchemy. Painted in red cinnabar and decorated with 72 jade spots, the Jaguar throne represents the bridge between the two worlds. In an induced catatonic state, 
the initiate would leave the body and enter the dwelling place of the gods. The ideal of the Maya was the overcoming of gravity and the ascent of the soul. The more an individual worked with the concepts embodied in this building, the more they became aligned to cosmic order, and the more likely they returned transformed and enlightened as an Aku, an illuminated one. The risen initiate was then draped with a leopard skin, just as in ancient Egypt, where Osiris himself was depicted as a crouching leopard, and the priest of Amenti, who served his ideals, wore leopard skin. According to the Maya, the temple tradition of Yucatan is a continuation of Atitlan, in what is described as the rebuilding of the former world of the gods. Just how old the lineage of the Its might have been is revealed in the Maya Serpent Dynasty that covers 16,000 years, and most likely originated in Atitlan until a catastrophe at the end of the Ice Age forced them to resettle in Yucatan. Whatever happened to these sages, of whom the Maya wrote, were endowed with intelligence. They saw and instantly they could see far. They succeeded in knowing all that there is in the world. The things hidden in the distance, they saw without first having to move. Great was their wisdom. Their sight reached to the forests, the rocks, the lakes, the seas, the mountains and the valleys. In truth, they were admirable men. They were able to know all, and they examined the four corners, the four points of the arch of the sky, and the round face of the earth. Under various names, the Its migrated into the interior and the highlands of Guatemala, settling on an island in a lake named after their sunken island home, Atitlan. Here, they built a city called Utatlan, a replica of the one they'd lost. Ironically, the island also sank, leaving the Its to rebuild Utatlan on the lake shore. Another of their island cities, Innoch Peten, on a lake that still bears their name, Peten Itza. Here, the Its erected no less than 21 temples and a nine-step pyramid. There's no trace of the buildings today, all destroyed by the Spanish who used the temples as a quarry for their own homes, then renamed the island Flores. But the main church, misaligned to the southeast, marks the spot where the pyramid once stood aligned to the winter solstice in 7,600 BC, 2,000 years after the Its first landed on the coast of Yucatan to establish one of the greatest civilizations ever seen, much of it yet to be reclaimed from the jungle. Beside the crocodile-infested river, Yashilan is the city of the first prophets. My tradition speaks of rituals conducted here that allowed initiates to travel through time and space and returned with specialized information. They were referred to as architects of the sky. Versed in the mysteries, teachers such as Itzamna Balam II and Lady Sakbiyayan 
journey to parallel universes and the knowledge they gained there was recorded on lintels throughout the site. slowly being rescued from the jungle is Ba'ak, the house of the infinite serpent, a Maya ceremonial center filled with sacred architecture and possessing one of the highest spiritual frequencies. It was later named Palenque. The figures responsible for its renaissance in the 7th century were the ruler Kinish Pakal and his priestesses. Their ancient teachings taught the path to self-realization that led to the highest grade of Maya master, Ik, the breath of the gods, the breath of life. Graphically, it took the form of a T, the cross to which high initiates have been symbolically attached to throughout history, long, long before the advent of Christianity. The Maya defined the physical world as a manifestation of the spiritual, and the spiritual as the essence of the material. The two were inextricably linked. Action and interaction with other world beings influences the fate of the world. The opposite is also true, and the Maya exploited patterns of energy in time and space using ritual to control the forces they released. Hence, rulers functioned as shamans, operating in both dimensions and maintaining a balance between the two by the application of ritual. The main stair pyramid in Palenque stands at the foot of the sacred mountain on the west side of the river, the cardinal direction of Shibalba. It faces the rising of Venus at the equinox, the mark of the enlightened initiate who transitions from ignorance to awareness. At this time, in 3100 BC, Draco also appeared vertically above it, at once commemorating the people of the serpent, as well as the beginning of the age when the people began referring to themselves as Maya. Nine stages rise at 40 degrees, the angle of the nonagon, geometry of utmost perfection, offering a hint as to the level of teaching performed here. The ratio of its foundation is equal to the note F. The summit temple and its doors, the note E. It seems the building is a music box. It is referred to as the Temple of Inscriptions after an extensive hieroglyphic panel describing Bacal's period-ending rituals. The inner chambers were used for restricted ritual, but once it had reached the end of its functional life, the building was finally sealed and Pakal lay to rest inside. That Pakal was a high initiate of the esoteric arts is revealed in the iconography of the sarcophagus lid, in which he is depicted in fetal position on the trunk of the world tree. Below him are the roots and creative forces of nature. Above, the fruit of the tree and the branches holding up the Milky Way. The keepers of the sacred books are portrayed along the edges, along with astronomical data. From beyond the grave, Akal whispers to us how he led the life of the true adept and became a mediator between the two worlds. Akal's son, Chambalan, 
followed his father's tradition by erecting a set of three graceful temples east of the river, replicating the establishment of celestial order by the creator god Ahau. Each building features elaborately carved reliefs depicting father and son standing east and west of the axis of heaven and earth, represented by a cross, the tree of life. Real and mythical history is recorded, along with instructional paths into Shibalba, used by the king to bring back gifts of life and prosperity to his people. At the Temple of the Cross, a god guides Chambalam out of Shibalba and back to the physical world. The king has become a physical manifestation of the axis of heaven, emphasizing his role as the source of magical power. He was not just a practitioner of ritual connecting the two worlds, he represented the path itself, what the Maya called the Way. In the third temple, Pakal hands his son the scepter of power, while the tree of life rises from Orion, the place of creation. The scene demonstrates how the rituals continued by the son provide for the rebirth of the father. Just as in Egypt, Horus represents a reborn Osiris, who is himself the earthly representation of Orion. Both father and son wear the ritual white apron worn by Egyptian pharaohs and later adopted in Freemasonry. Deeper into Guatemala lies Mutul, known to the Maya as the place of prognostication, a university reflecting the architecture of the cosmos, a ceremonial center where ancient teachers captured sounds from other realities. Today, it is known as Tikal. Tikal is home to the tallest Maya pyramid. Seven steep levels take you to a summit enclosure with walls 40 feet thick. Standing outside it and facing the jungle, the voice is amplified from behind and projected over the canopy of trees, in total violation of the known laws of sound. And no wonder, here the architects of the sky built one of the finest examples of sacred architecture. They are said to have come from the stars and spoke Hesuya Thao, the language of light. Teachers such as Kinish Muwaj, Shak Tok Ishak, and Ish Kalomte made Tikal a temple city that united science, art, philosophy, and religion as one, giving rise to its other title, the place with the sacred voices. word for pyramid is Naku, house of the god, which also happens to be the name of the Egyptian gods, the Aku, the shining ones. Coincidentally, the angle of slope of pyramid 4 is the same angle used in the interior passage of the Great Pyramid of Giza. The pyramid shape acts like a needle, collecting earth's telluric currents, acupuncturing the ground and the human body, then linking with currents flowing beyond the atmosphere and into space. Along with the understanding of sacred geometry and mathematics, such buildings transmitted myths explaining how the universe works. 
The symbolism confirmed a divine order juxtaposed on social structure. Plazas and pyramids replicated in symbolic form the sacred language originally designed by the gods. Thus there were also places where communication between people and the gods took place. The design of courtyards, entrances and stairways spoke to the individual of where they were allowed to go and where they were not. And this was taught from childhood. The most restricted ritual temples and residences are reflected in their names. Pibna, the underground house. Consul, the conjuring place. And Kun, the sacred seat. While the historical buildings of Tikal date from around 1300 BC, they stand upon layers of previous structures thousands of years older. The temple of the Jaguar priest, for example, faces Orion in 3100 BC. The central court of Tikal is the main gathering place. It's a raised platform representing the mound of creation, while the pyramid at each end represents the division of elements and the elevation of life. One represents the feminine moon, the other the masculine sun. The two different heights reflect the difference between the solar and lunar calendars. The two are connected by up to nine underground levels beneath the courtyard. There, initiates would learn the mystery's teachings before appearing, like magic, at the top of either pyramid. One underground chamber features the bust of Itzamna, along with a frieze telling the story of the Its and how they escaped their sinking homeland in the Atlantic Ocean and their arrival in Central America. As for the rest of their story, it remains protected beneath a sea of jungle. I just wanted to mention that Rama will send this. You can send this to Penny, right? Yeah. And then you can watch it and you can see the temples. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, in Tikal, there are five temples all in one place. And the stones that are like steps 
to go way to the top of those temples and the view is just like whew. and Micah insisted I mean the stairs were oh a foot and a half or so tall and he was two and a half <laughs> and he didn't want me to help him and he climbed up them by himself I mean, he climbed up about 20 stairs like that. And then, of course, we hung on to him and we got to the top. I'm just saying there was a connection there with 9,000 years of a civilization that um, I guess you might say it was it's in his bones now. Um, but we're going to make another shift now. We're going to play a piece. It's from PBS. And it's about our sister Buffy Saint Buffy Saint Marie. It's called Carry It On. And indigenous artist Buffy Saint Marie rises to prominence in New York's Greenwich Village folk music scene, becoming an Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, um, social activist, and educator. So that's what we're going to do now. So this is a big change, and we're going to do it now. This is, uh, you know, it's going to end up being about... He went from thinking that he was just lazy or a bad person to someone who had a medical issue. It turned out that they had... I'm sorry, but that that's that's something else I have to move over to here before I put the sound up. Uh, I'm just going to say that I got to see Buffy St. Germain, Buffy St. Marie, <laughs> she's definitely related to St. Germain, uh, perform in Taos. And I don't think that place is there anymore, but... I got three hours of um, interacting with her and there's something very magical about Buffy St. Marie. So here we go. We're going to get started now. Provided by Telegram Canada. Canada Media Fund, Ontario Creates, Rogers Documentary Fund, and by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. All right. Okay, Jim, this is Guitar One, and uh, this will be our first song. <laughs> Let's Show it. Be proud of it. When she played it, it was hers. Mm-hmm. 
timing was off. In the early 60s, you know, people would just be flabbergasted that I would dare to use the word genocide regarding the North American Holocaust. And um, it, it took another over 50 years before Truth and Reconciliation brought the facts to light and it vindicated my music. I learned that sometimes you have to carry the medicine for a long time before it's time to administer it. that kind of should have ruined me. And the two things are, you can't be a musician. You can't read music. You cannot tell me I can't be a musician just because you don't recognize natural music. And the other thing that I was told is you can't be an Indian. There aren't any more. Oh, there may be a few in Arizona, but no. There aren't any around here. So you must not be one. And they're all dead and vanished anyway. From a really young age, I was dealing with other people's ignorance about things I really cared about. People I loved who just didn't know the fact about indigenous people or natural musicians. I knew things intimately from daily experience that never even crossed their minds. Things like that probably should have ruined me, but they did not. Because I knew so definitely that the world sometimes is either wrong or they're not there yet. Tonight from Toronto, the music of the Indian Republic. Dr. St. Marie joins me. I read a quote that you said that the town you were brought up in Maine was Javex City, USA, <laughs> and that they tried to turn you white. <laughs> Is that a misquotation? <laughs> no, it's in that. <laughs> I grew up in Maine and Massachusetts, you know, in, in places where there weren't any Indians. They didn't believe in Indians. They thought we were either all dead and stuffed in museums or never had existed in the first place because they had wiped out their Indians in the 1600s. And then I go back to school and they try and tell me Columbus discovered America, right? Yeah. And I knew darn well, right? What had happened, yeah? We know, we know how it really happened, you know, like in 1492 on October 12th, that's when the Native North American people discovered Columbus. <laughs> he was lost, he got in an Indian flipping. <laughs> I'm a doctor child. I was born in Canada and grew up in um, Massachusetts in Maine. And uh, I didn't play with the other kids in in games. I really felt like an observer. There was only one indigenous person besides me in the town. He was the mailman. <laughs> and he also had a trading post. And he used to do beautiful beadwork for the movies. I'd ride my bike about four miles around the lake and go and visit with them. And, you know, he was about the only one I could talk to. 
my mom, she did know that it bothered me that I didn't know what kind of Indian or if I couldn't be one, what was I? So she, what she said to me was, when you grow up, you can find out for yourself. And that's pretty darn good. So I did. have a career. I didn't think I was a singer. I didn't think I was a very good singer, but I knew I was a writer. I knew I was a songwriter. So I went to Greenwich Village to try my luck at singing in the coffee houses of the time. When I arrived, it was kind of just at the end of the beatniks. Nobody had heard of a hippie yet. There were many um, artists called folk singers who were doing different things. Odetta, Pete Seeger, Bob Dylan was still playing in the village. And it was all mixed up and it was so exciting. The first time I went there, I, I was stunned because, you know, in New York, you always see people in luxurious penthouses, you know, in the movies, you know. When I got to New York, it was garbage in the streets, and it was so funky. I, I was really amazed, you know. Oh, there was a lot of people. You know, it was happening. New York was happening. The village was. It was. It was. It was smoking. Yeah, Buffy. Things started moving forward. I think the first place I probably went to was Gertie's Folk City. I met Bob Dylan there. He heard me play. He liked it. Little wheels spin and spin, big wheel turn around and around. He said, you know, go and see Sam at the Gaslight Cafe. So I went over and very, very quickly, like probably within a week or two, the journalist from the New York Times, Robert Shelton, came down and he gave me a review, a spectacular review. One in the devils in the hell hearts, they shrink, buckets swell. And the people at the Gaslight Coffee House, they, uh, they blew it up into a huge vertical billboard and put it outside the club. And the place was just full of people. Blame the angels, blame the fates, blame the Jews or your sister Kate. Oh, I was very impressed with her. I was always amazed that she could stand on one foot with her leg cocked up and sing and never bang her nose on the microphone. <laughs> then Time Magazine also called her one of the most intriguing new talents to emerge in many a moon. It was just like a very kind of over-the-top quote, but the kind that gets you all the attention. And those positive reviews had record labels knocking on her door. There are so many facets to your particular dome that it's hard to know exactly where to start. But I think we'll confine ourselves to the musical topic. When did you begin to be aware that you were musically inclined? Well, the first time I saw an instrument was when I was four, when my parents brought a piano to the house. They had somebody's old beat-up piano that was given to them. And I sat down and began to play with it, which is what I think children should do with music. I played with it as a toy. And within a couple of days, I was playing my own music. I was an isolated child. 
And so music for me was my playmate. That was my big playmate. Anything I heard on the radio, I could play it on the piano. You know, you play Tchaikovsky or Mozart on a, on a record, and I can sit down and, you know, come up with the chords. And <laughs> I felt a real freedom in college. I got a single room in a dorm, and my house mother uh, uh, was British. And she appreciated my music, and I used to sing to the girls in the dorm, and um, I I discovered philosophy as a sophomore, and so that's how I wound up um, with a philosophy major with a teaching minor. The time that I was going to the University of Massachusetts is when I met uh, our lovely sister Buffy. Taj saw me, he says, coming out of. This listening library, we wouldn't put on actual headphones. She had a big coat and a book bag and a guitar. And so I helped her, I helped her up the stairs with the book bag. And he told me he was intimidated. <laughs> Which is really a laugh. He's huge, you know what I'm <laughs> so She said, have you got a guitar here? And I said, yeah. So I go get my guitar and we sit down in, the, in, in this hallway and one of us drums an E chord, one drums a D chord, and we're absolutely in tune, in two different keys. That's serious. Okay, so I knew I had a friend. Can you remember the times that you have held your head high? Bobby really was pretty, she was represented, and I'm deeply committed to um, indigenous people and, and indigenous rights. Oh, it's all in the past, you can say, but it's still going on here today. She was like pretty much the first person that I knew that was like speaking it out. And I, I still, I can see it while I'm talking to you. I can see Bobby standing in the doorway and the guitar was tilted up and she was throwing down. She was who she was. No two ways apart. When I went to sign my record contract with Vanguard, um, you know, I had Blue Note was interested in me too, and they were jazz label. When I signed with Vanguard, the day I went up there, they said, "Okay, well, who, you know, where's your lawyer?" And I said, "I don't have one of those." And they said, well, that's okay. You can use ours. So I signed up for seven years. I'm cutting my own way through my own day. Those first albums starting out, there was this, you know, really powerful female voice, you know, Indian voice, you know, having understood that the history was a lot deeper than anything had been presented to us and that folk music contained this too. She was on the cover of Broadside magazine and you couldn't miss her. I mean, really. You wanted to very much alive if you missed her coverage. Buffy's first album 
Well, it, it just floored me because it's my way. That that song itself, which was sort of take it or leave it, this is who I am, this is my way, you know. I was just really astounded by the intensity and the passion. And you realize that those young singer-songwriters, they reflected the concerns we had. All music was a soundtrack of that whole time. It's like what was on our minds was being was coming back to us through music. And you know, Bobby stuff Bobby stuff like cut right through it. She was already a young woman with so much power and so much uh, history. As such a young person, how she understood life, how she understood what was happening in the world, not just for us, but for war, for where we were at. I had to spend the night in San Francisco airport because I was trying to get to Toronto. And in the middle of the night, a group of medics came in and they were wheeling wounded soldiers. And uh, I got to talking to one of the medics and, you know, they explained to me that, yes, indeed, there's a horrible war going on in Vietnam because we were being told that there was no war. And I just got to thinking, who is it who's responsible for war? He's five foot two and he's six feet four. These are these poor wounded soldiers who, you know, they're lying there, and in a way, there's some responsibility right there. He's only Then I got to thinking about what about career military officers who spend their whole lives learning how to make war better. So there's some responsibility there, I'm thinking. But who is it who actually makes the phone call to actually start a war? And now I thought I had it. Oh, let's blame the politicians. But what would it? How would Hitler have condemned him at the house? Without him, Caesar would have stumbled. But in this world that we're living in in North America, who is it who elects the politicians? It's us. It's you and me. It's about individual responsibility for the world we're living in. He's a universal soldier. And he really is to blame. But his orders come from far away, no more. They come from him. And you and me. And brothers can't just see this is not the way we put an end to war. And I got into Toronto. I finished the song off at the Purple Onion. And I performed Universal Soldier that same night. And uh, that song, uh, had it just had an immediate effect. He's five foot two and he's six feet four. And people started, other artists started singing it too. You know, it became pretty well known quite fast. 
Do you, do you get great pleasure in hearing other people perform your songs? Because they are such a personal part of you, aren't they? Well, yeah, I do. I mean, I'm flattered, you know. And uh, the way I feel about songs is that once I've sung them, then uh, it doesn't do to keep your hands on it and try to hold it back. You have to let people have it and, and do what they want with the song. In the beginning, that was my favorite of the songs. Then later, I played in Fort Bragg, you know, for the soldiers coming back from the war. And then I ended up with a different opinion, you know. He's a universal soldier, he really is to blame. I thought, you know, it's a shame these guys are coming back from the war to encounter such hostility. And I began to kind of disagree with the premise of the song. Universal Soldier was always about our collective responsibility for war. Not just the military, it's all of us. When I hooked up with Bob Dylan, he said, oh, man, you got to hear Buffy St. Marie. And he went over to the record collection there, and he pulled out an album, and it had Universal Soldier and Codeine on it. And Codeine, I thought, well, you know, Codeine... You know, and in Canada, codeine was available in drugstores. I mean, you could just buy it like people buy aspirins with 222s. And, uh, um, and I guess, you know, there was a certain naivety that they didn't realize it could be dangerous and very addictive. And my belly is craving. I go to shaking in my head. I found out the hard way, very young, about opioids and doctors. I mean, I was in my early 20s and a doctor, you know, overprescribed me opiates. I had a bronchial infection and a doctor in Florida gave me shots and pills that I thought were vitamin B12 and antibiotics. A few weeks later, I was driving through Atlanta with some friends, and I was feeling worse than ever. I stopped at a drugstore to get a refill. The pharmacist looked at the prescription. He told me he didn't think my problem was bronchitis at all. He said I was strung out and going through opiate withdrawal, and it was going to get a whole lot worse. And, of course, he wouldn't refill the codeine prescription. I was stunned. This Florida doctor had prescribed me huge amounts of codeine, which is like opium, morphine, heroin, and I went through withdrawal. It's unimaginable hell. But see, I learned a lesson. Some things are bigger than me. And I'm afraid of things that are bigger than me. This is a song that's written in 1964, and, and we've been in a, you know, opioid crisis for the last 10 years, if not longer. So I think it really shows just how much Buffy was ahead of her time. I've always really connected with her song, Cody, being displaced from my own community. Drugs and alcohol and addiction and mental health is something that I struggled with for a long, long time. You know, that's a fight that I'm still fighting today and I fight every day. 
you know, and having that song Cobain is almost like, you know, it's this moment where Buffy's speaking about these issues directly. So it's like, that just meant a lot to me to kind of relate to her on that level. see a seismic shift in the 60s in the music business. All of a sudden, there's big money there, right? Show business changed. The drug went from coffee and a little pot to alcohol and a little cocaine. And a lot of coffee houses went out of business. They couldn't compete. It just went from a time of innocence to a time of goose it is where the money is. These managers and record companies realized that they could make a lot of money. So they created a model that maximized profit, but it was all at the expense of artistic expression. So when Buffy's first record came out, Alice had only been on the radio for what, eight years? Like rock and roll was, by the industry standards, brand new. It was brand new. So they could have built it right. They just chose money in chart position. Fine, you're allowed to do that. But let's not pretend that's not what you did. Let's go. Somebody count it. In those days, you didn't have any power. The record company had all the power. Here, let's, let's make one more, please. I would go in to record, um, and, you know, there'd be a bunch of guys I had never met, you know, adult businessmen and, you know, an engineer and um, nobody I knew. And I'd start singing, and then I left. And then the album came out. So I had nothing to do with choosing which take or pointing out what was right or wrong. I just didn't have control over my own music and I wish that I had had. How was that? Was that cool? Yeah, right. After seeing the pressure Vanguard put on me, Tony decided against signing with them. Yeah, they, they wanted me to deliver a ridiculous number of albums per year. You know, and, and writing your own music, like the workload was, it was impossible. I, I, I turned them down. I have no interest in politics, no office, no nothing. I wanted to play music and I wanted to get it out to people. Of course, the industry tried to, you know, cash in on it, but, you know, really that's your job. The hard problem is that they, they give us the playbook and we're reading the playbook. And they're playing dirty. <laughs> when I arrived in Greenwich Village, I had never met a businessman. I had never met a lawyer. I didn't drink. And an awful lot of stars started going down to drugs and alcohol. Big managers and lawyers, they were all into it. They were all into it. But 
when you don't drink in show business, that means that after the show, you don't go out to the bars, which is a very bad move in show business because that's where you make deals, and I wasn't there. So I really wasn't very good at faking it socially. I just didn't know how, so I made some mistakes. Because I was so green, people took advantage. I wanted the message of Universal Soldier to spread. The Highwaymen were a vocal group coming off a huge hit. Michael rode the boat ashore. One night they came to the gas line. They heard me sing Universal Soldier and told me they wanted to record it immediately. And they asked me who was the publisher. My manager, Herb Gart, knew this guy at the next table, Elmer Jared Gordon, who said he was a publisher. And so I signed away the publishing rights to him for one dollar. And then later people started crediting the song to Donovan. I made a lot of that kind of career mistake, and uh, kind of, I was kind of a social boob in that way. But the rights to Universal Soldier, it took me 10 years, but I bought it back. I bought part of the publishing back. For $25,000, it cost me to buy back part of my own song. But I never did it again. I learned my lesson. I learned not to do that. I think the people who think Buffy made terrible career moves are looking at it from an industry perspective and that their only way of assigning the successful tag is if you do it this way. Did she make the right career moves to play that capitalist game? No, but I bet she knew that. I bet those people who say that about her now, oh, she should have done this. Well, where were you? writer and they said that they had been flooded with more letters that they ever had in the history of their magazine letters letting them know it was not an unknown person who had written those lines most of them said it was me it was Buffy who wrote those lines but a lot of them said it was Donovan <laughs> let's see dear editor the free verse poetry attributed to Robert Simpson in 1967, was actually taken from none other than the 1960s era folk singer Donovan. Oh, <laughs> you're wrong. Um, oh, here's somebody who knew I wrote it. Yes. 
was actually written by Cree folk singer Bunty St. Marie as part of her war protest song, The Universal Soldier. Yes. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Roger Jacobs. <laughs> There's a very strong back-to-the-land movement that great many people are interested in this so. decentralization. Uh-huh. In contract. That was, that stubs Turkle, everybody. Here we go. The increasing travels of urban life. Here are you, a country girl. Right? <laughs> oh, yes, I, I am really at heart. You see, I, I, I'm very close to this way of life that, uh, that's different from the city way of life. I find I get very rattled and I don't produce anything in my own mind. Even now, being on the road with a band is hard. But when I first started, I was always by myself, traveling in Europe and Australia and Asia with only suitcases and guitars and no helpers. Uh, you know, I was in show business all of a sudden, and then, oh, how do I get out? You know, everybody's else trying to, how do I get into show business? I was trying to get out. And so I had a concert in Honolulu, the only one I ever did. <laughs> and... I asked the travel agent, I said, I want to go early, I want to get out of L.A., um, where should I go? And she sent me to this island that nobody cared about, and I bought my place four days later. Everybody wants to what? I mean, I, 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 know, I have always hold my judgment, what do I know? What do I know? And boy, we were so trouble. Hey. She knew what time it was. I live on a farm in nowhere in the country, you say. The one I love in loves me. He loves me, love me, loves me. Everybody said that's the worst career move you could make. And that's okay. Talk of the way, the way down. never strategic about building a career so I'm kind of um, pulled back from um, what everybody else was doing I gotta tell you uh, Rainbird she had about 15 goats sitting there with her She's having a good old time. Yeah, I think that's Kauai. Pretty sure. Oh my god, it's gorgeous. Until it's time for you to go is on. into my head, you know, I, I had a crush on somebody for sure. You're not a dream, you're not an angel, you're a man. Stuff that they won't get somewhere else. We laughed and played at the 
Michelle was saying, um, this is so wonderful and I, and you know, we'll make it happen until it's time for you to go. And it doesn't say why you have to go, but it allows, it allows your, uh, your loved one to leave the room. <laughs> first feminist anthem it's sung from the perspective of a woman who is basically like we will love each other right now and we're not asking for forever that's not the kind of messaging we're hearing from women's perspectives in pop music until it's time for you to go the way she performs it and and the mood that is expressed there's just uh, an honesty uh, in it. See you again. Still I'll stay until it's time for you to go. All that. I'm in Nashville and I'm recording and the phone rings and it's this um, associate of Elvis's business people. His name's Berlin. So Hi, Berlin, how you doing? Buffy Elvis just recorded your song. We're going to have to have some of that publishing money, honey. <laughs> so I said, oh, oh, oh. no. <laughs> no. I said, no. No. It, this, this was Elvis recording my song. I was genuinely flattered, thrilled, and grateful. But no, he didn't write the song. I did. And having given away the publishing for Universal Soldier for one dollar, I didn't want to do that again. We'll have to play at the start of the game. Elvis recorded that song nine times. Because my little song was apparently Elvis and his wife Priscilla's love song together. Gosh, I recorded that song. Barbara Streisand, Francoise Hardy, Sonny and Cher, Cher by herself. This is a lot of wonderful people. I'm very happy that that song arrived in my head, not somebody else's. And here we stay until it's time for you to go. In the early 60s, I go to Toronto to play in Yorkville. And I hung out at the Friendship Center on Spadina. I made some friends and mentioned my adoption story. And they suggested I come to this powwow at Wakwemakon Reserve on Manitoulin Island the next weekend. And to that powwow came a group of Crees, and Amel Pipot was one of them. And we just enjoyed our conversations and enjoyed each other's presence. And um, he invited me to come to uh, the reserve which is north of Regina, Saskatchewan, and uh, I did. When she came to Pipe Pot, my cooker remembers there was people, like they were rushing around and trying to make her a bed, and they didn't have any like mattresses or beds, so they made her they made like a bed out of out of coats. She was super down to earth, everyone said, and she just kind of like, like she does today, just kind of plops herself on the ground and just sits down and talks to you, right? There are 
is a very um, kind person, loving. She was um, an auntie, and she taught me how to uh, eat skinny. <laughs> <laughs> Being around them, they were so sweet. They were super traditional. And actually, Emil Pipard told me that he had talked to his wife, Clara, who we always call Coco, which means grandmother. He told me that um, they had lost two daughters and that they wanted me to be their daughter. Pre-adoption means when you adopt somebody in the family, they, they're not adopted. They're, they become real members of the family. And, and it's a very serious undertaking. We have the wahko uh, daheu means uh, she adopts someone, but the wahko it refers to family. So you bring somebody into the family. Wahko daheu. A lot of us do this with the uh, people that we connect with. It was a real love affair of family, and that kind of experience. It's definitely healed something in me from my childhood that was um, needy or, um, if not broken, at least busted up a little. <laughs> more and more, you see people, they go back. They want to be part of the past. Or what does it, does it mean to be a human being, to be a mother? To be a father, to be a, a, to have a relation, they realize that the healing comes from inside, from the past, not from the future, not from other people who say we're going to heal you. We have to heal ourselves. I made a lot of money in this in the sixties. I mean, I. I I never meant to, but I did. Somebody was always running off with large, you know, scans of money. But I wasn't paying too much attention because there was always enough to eat. And I started a scholarship foundation, and I found out what that was like. I found out the great reward of having the luxury to give away money. In the 70s, I was on the road a lot. So I had the additional advantages of, you know, airplane tickets to concerts, which got me there, and then, oh, a week off to go and spend with the indigenous people of that area. Freedom for the stallion. Freedom for America. You know, there would be opportunities presented to come to this preserve or to do this show, and I would say yes. When Buffy comes to a community, she says, you matter. Your community matters. I'm here because you're here and we're here. And that's so important. I was 17 when I met her. So impressionable and a brown girl looking at a brown woman saying things that I believe. I just want to back that up just a second. So impressionable and a brown girl looking. Her name is Sunny Marino and she is, gotta wait a second, 
Amaya Apache and Yaki, original San Francisco cast member of Hair, co-founding member of Ulau, Ulau. That's what it said. Here we go. And a brown woman saying things that I believed in that gave me the strength to say, I do this. We're still alive. We're not extinct. We're not dinosaurs. We're, we're Indians. We're, we're native people. The majority of the people's impression of the Indian uh, is what we see on the motion picture screen or television. Yeah. It is really two versions, I think, of who the American Indians are. One version says that they're ignorant savages, and the other one pictures them sort of standing on a cliff, you know, proud, noble. <laughs> <laughs> There's literally thousands of Indian and cowboy movies. This Indian is no Indian. He's no Indian. Why is he wearing a chicken for a hat? A lot of the time, it was indigenous people were played by. It could be anybody. You could you could have blonde hair and blue eyes and wear a wig and and uh, you're on your way. So Buffy Saint Marie. She gets asked to play a lead role in The Virginian. The Virginian was a popular TV show that ran from 1962 to 1971. So I told him that if you want me to do it, all of the indigenous parts be played by indigenous people. And, of course, they said, oh, that's asking too much. You know, there are, I forget, like... 36 extras, but our makeup people are fantastic. They can turn a dog into a cat. And I said, no, it's not just about makeup and fooling white people. These people will bring their entire culture to your, to your film. I really can't imagine she is this 28 year old woman. And she says, well, you have to hire indigenous people to play indigenous parts. And I mean, that's, that's a conversation we're having in 2021 that people are still pushing back against. They didn't know that I was already working with Jay Silverheels and with my friend Lois Red Elk. They were already running the Indian Actors Workshop. So I knew that I had the goods. Try to imagine the Sopranos without Italians. Regarding indigenous actors, I wanted to show who they were and where to find them. So that comes back to something that I say a lot. You don't have to go in and tear everything down. I mean, it'll take you forever and it's impossible. No, just cook it up yourself. And once people get a whiff of the real deal, a lot of them are going to just say, oh, I see. The argument is over. You've given them a gift that they didn't even know they wanted. Sometimes people wonder why Indian people had it so hard over a hundred years ago, or even more recently. People wonder, what happened in the American Indian movement in 1973, a hundred years later, at the same place? A hundred years ago, it was gold. So what happened. Now it's uranium, coal, natural gas. I wrote a song about these things 
Nothing in the song is new. But when they're strung together, they tell a deeper story. Indian legislation's on the desk of the do right congressman. Now he don't know much about the issues, so he picks up the phone and he asks advice of the senators out in Indian country. There was such an incredible movement going on in the 60s. You know, you had the American Indian movement. You know, you had John Trudell out there. You had uh, Willie Dunn and Bucky St. Marie front and center as, as, as one of those voices. We are not even trying to overthrow the government. What we're trying to do is to force the white man to live up to his own existing laws. So I started supporting their work, and I would show up at their benefits and stuff to spotlight the issue. An Indian no longer is victim, but the Indian triumphant. Yeah? Do you feel that personally? I certainly do. But I think it was important for other people to get used to that idea. She had notoriety and she had fame. And she was using her influence to help lend visibility. And it was all to create momentum, to create confluence you know, to bring all of the issues of our of our rights as just human rights, you know, to the forefront. She was using her platform to speak truth to power, and she didn't shy away from some of the topics that, you know, many people are like, you know, we may not want to bring that up, or, you know, perhaps don't approach this that way, and she really laid it on the table. When I did talk shows, I told the truth about what U.S. politicians were trying to do to indigenous people. Jack Cunningham. Good Morning America, with millions of viewers, was an opportunity to educate ignorant politicians like Jack Cunningham, who was trying to abolish all treaties with Native American tribes. Why would you abolish all the treaties? Well, I think, first of all, if you're really interested in helping the Native American Indians come to the full capabilities that they're capable of, you have to stop relegating them through these treaties and the way they're administered into being second-class citizens. Well, I certainly hope the people who are interested in Panama treaties or the people in China who are interested in Taiwan or anywhere else in the world are listening to this kind of legislation. Because whether you know it or not, all U.S. treaties are the same, whether it's with an Indian nation or with any other nation. What I think is the most amazing thing about your bill is that you dare to call it the Native Americans Equal Opportunity Act when actually you have to call it the Native Americans Rip-Off Act. It's only one more of the same in a history of such bills. Now that your big eyes are finally open. Now that you're wondering how must they feel, meaning them that you've chased across America's movie screens. Now that you're wondering how can it be real But the ones you've called colorful, noble, and proud in your school propaganda? They starve in their splendor. 
movement to something that was really different. The publicity that you would see in those days was aimed to make us look bad. And the American Indian movement had been infiltrated by Doug Durham of the FBI, who was a plant, and there was a, under, an undercurrent of violence. So things changed. show that the late J. Edgar Hoover ordered a nationwide campaign to disrupt the activities of the new left. I had no idea J. Edgar Hoover considered me a security threat. He ordered his agents not only to expose new left groups, but to take action against them to neutralize them. To have your music suppressed is to have official government stationery arrive you know, to radio programmers, radio owners, and encourage them strongly to not play your artist. Radio was vital in the 60s and 70s and 80s, frankly. There weren't a lot of other spaces. You know, it, charts are built on radio play, and you have to get your music out there. Otherwise, you are, you just don't exist. And that's really what happened in Buffy. that I was um, uh, blacklisted or my music was suppressed. Or, I didn't know that. I just thought singers come, singers go. God, that was fun. You know, fun while it lasted. And then many years later, when my, when my lawyer said, well, look at your FBI files. I said, what FBI files? FBI didn't care about me. And I had no idea that there was any strategy to it by someone in Nigeria or Military power in the world, and I think 
you know, I know the United States owes her a big apology. I think this country owes her a really big apology and she should be getting all kinds of awards because she would have broken through in the U.S. had she not been prevented by the government. She sacrificed a lot by bringing out truths. She sacrificed a lot to make sure the Indigenous reality, the Indigenous truth was known. You know, that's part of her legacy. That needs to be honored. That needs to be recognized. What she did was uh, very selfless. Will you buy a used continent from this woman? This way to the Buffy car. Okay. Oh, I like this better. Oh, there's, there's me. And there's Muhammad Ali. Floyd Westerman. Stevie Wonder. Marlon Brando. Richie Haven's right there. What really bothered me about being blacklisted wasn't so much that Buffy's career had been, you know, ditched. It wasn't that. It's that I thought that if only people knew about the content of what these songs were about, I thought I could have been more effective. I think I could have done a lot if there hadn't been people deliberately um, opposing either what I was singing about or who I was, or, you know, if, if I had some different breaks. Even though, you know, she was blacklisted, she found other ways to continue to, you know, manifest in different forms and shapes and influences. Even, you know, around the world that still kind of permeated within the United States. I didn't want this blacklisted. I just thought my music career was slowing down. And then came Sesame Street. That was recording in Nashville. But the phone rang and Sesame Street was asking me, did I want to go on and say the alphabet and count from one to five or something like everybody else did? And I said, no, I, I don't really want to do that. But have you ever considered doing any Native American programming? So the first thing that we did, we went to Taos Pueblo and Big Bird's like, he's all antsy. And I said, what is a big bird? You know, and he said, I heard there were Indians around here. <laughs> oh, I'm an Indian. I'm an Indian. You're an Indian? Sure, I am. I'm an Indian. Are you an Indian? I am. Are you an Indian? Oh, wait a minute. You're not a fool, big bird. I can tell you my first impression of her, and I believe that that we were on a reservation, and everybody knew about Buffy St. Marie because she was an icon of the 60s, and Buffy did expand my understanding and humanized indigenous people, Native Americans, in a personal way that was organic. Yeah, they only go with 
And I remember she wrote a song and the lyric was, and I am real and I can feel that I'd like to take your hand. So, hey, I know, hey, I know. Wow, an indigenous person. It's not Sesame Street. Like that, that's, that's like, that's like a, a rocket being launched to the moon for, for indigenous kids seeing that on, on the screen. I remember my mom was like freaking out and she just yelled at me to come and watch her on TV, you know, because this was my only connection to my culture was Buffy St. Marie. All of a sudden I was reaching little kids and their caregivers in 72 countries of the world three times a day. Essentially, I was giving the same message. I just wanted little kids to understand that Indians exist. Suddenly, she ends up becoming a part-time cast member for those five years and is helping to write different scenes and scenarios from lived experience. Well, all your kids live here in Hawaii, huh? Yeah. I had been doing Sesame Street for about a year, and uh, I, I discovered that I was pregnant. And I thought, well, I'll just have to tell Sesame Street. And instead of sending me away, my sweetheart at the time, your Sheldon Wolfchild, who I'd known through the American Indian Movement, and eventually our baby, Cody, we became the first family on Sesame Street. <laughs> Puffy. When I was a kid growing up and growing up in, you know, poverty and a very tense family situation, I would dream of, of not wealth, of not opportunity, but a family. I would sometimes, you know, think of like, what if Buffy St. Marie was my mother? She is What you doing, Buffy? I'm feeding the baby. She's drinking milk for my breast. Oh, Buffy St. Marie nursing Cody on Sesame Street is a story that will live on in perpetuity. That's a funny way to feed a baby. Lots of mothers feed their babies this way. Not all mothers, but lots of mothers do. She was the first woman to nurse on television. And I think uh, everybody was very thrilled and excited to see that. Huh. And it's good for him. And I get to hug him when I do it, see. Uh-huh. People sometimes ask me, they say, well, you know, was it, oh, it must have been really controversial at the time. And it wasn't. It wasn't controversial at all. We, to my knowledge, we didn't get any nasty mail about it, but we do now. You know, it's up on YouTube and somebody takes it down and somebody puts it up and somebody takes it down. So in more contemporary times, people have objected to it. But at the time, it was not controversial. It was just wonderful. And again, it gave me a chance to reach 72 countries of the world with that message. You know, that's nice. I've been living in Hawaii a long time. And by 1981... My marriage with Sheldon Wolfchild was over. And my friend Jack Nietzsche, who I had known 
uh, in the 60s. He couldn't come up with a theme for this movie that he was scoring called An Officer and a Gentleman. And so I play him the melody for Up Where We Belong. And the doggone thing, um, it, it just had a life of its own. Just being a, people seeing her as a protest or, you know, some sort of writer like that. She was a musician, you know, creative on any front that could work. When I heard that song, I recognized Joe Cocker doing Buffy's phrasing. I could hear through him Buffy's writing on that song and I thought wow you have this moment where there's this enormous smash hit that gets all kinds of recognition wins an Oscar you knew she was a force she was a different kind of artist. By that time, Jack and I were married, and I totally respected Jack as a... He's just a musical genius. He really is. He's, he was quite different from everybody else. But troubled and troublesome. And he knew that he was troublesome. The first time I met Jack, I could feel... This energy go up my back. It was like I had a physical reaction to him. I didn't understand then that it was probably the heroin. When he was mad at me, you know, he came down on the show business side of me. I was I was getting beat up in the car on the way to the Oscars. I would say just really verbally tweaked. <laughs> he had a real problem with um, separation anxiety. And if I were four inches away from him, it'd be a, a, there'd be serious trouble. Even on stage at the Oscars, Jack was feeling really needy. I just was not allowed to be in show business after I got married. It, it was kind of over for almost eight years. I just kind of, uh, I was there, but I didn't want to be there. Years later, the final straw came one morning when I was still asleep. He did assault me. He skin popped me with heroin. Put a tiny needle of heroin just under my skin. My body recognized the same feeling I had when that doctor addicted me to coding. Heroin's little sister. While I was in it, um, I thought, oh, I'm strong enough. <laughs> or I can be so good, it'll stabilize him. And um, it wasn't good for me. He was loving it, but I was hating it. Now, this bruise is in the bed, now, needles in the door. 
Actually, I escaped at four in the morning, thanks to my friend Katie. I just remember her calling me in the middle of the night and saying, it's time. I had packed up a little suitcase for me and Colby, and we went to the airport, and it was over. That, that was just the end of that. Real bad self-identity problems. Although in those times when I was a kid, I mean, nobody had ever heard the, the phrase child abuse. You know, people didn't talk about child molesting. Were you molested as a child? Yes. I saw some really uh, extreme things as a child. There was abuse at home. I was afraid to go home. And there were pedophiles and bullies all over the place. And I was a little girl. And um, they were doing what they do. You know, in secret. And a lot of them did it. To one little girl or another. And I also grew up with a brother with an absolute horror. He was a sexual abuser. A brute. He even used to torture my toys. My mom told me that someday I could have my own life, and then I could find out things for myself. I could cut my own path, find my own way. And she made it possible for me to go to college. She always pointed to the light at the end of the tunnel. Buffy, is it, is it challenging for you to talk about our early trauma, intimate partner trauma? Um, are these hard things to relive? No, it, it wasn't hard to relive, but the one thing I think I may have learned is that throughout my life, I think that I um, have lacked a sense of when there is a predator around. I think that was something that I was not allowed to learn because when a child is being abused and traumatized, the word no only makes it worse. So I think that's something that I may be starting to learn, the sense of a predator. I took 16 years off in the middle of my career to be a mom and raise my son, Cody. He's now my neighbor. He's real active online, makes his own music, away from the spotlight. And so I was kind of persona non grata in a lot of corners of show business. They'd forgotten about me. And I started doing digital art. This is called Force. She was forced to dance. And it comes from a story that I wrote about this woman who was being manipulated by the boys in the group. And you see, her hands are tied behind her back. She's looking away. And here um, is Spider Woman. 
when I look back on some of my paintings, um, you know, some of them are as emotional as my songs. And these things that I was doing by myself as an artist, I remember every bit of how personal it was, how many people are involved in that one painting. So Spider-Woman represents the sacred feminine that can undo things if you if you allow it. You know, you can be like this, but eventually you have your potential and your agency again. In those days, it was revolutionary. You know, swapping files by internet. Me and Buffy were the pioneers in in uh, digital communication. What? Folks were doing that, and it worked perfectly. Way ahead of its time. Way ahead of its time. And that's the kind of fearlessness that I think most people couldn't do. Most people couldn't do. It was Buffy's re-emergence into being a creative player again. Jane Black, an artist, 
um, she came up with the idea of red dresses hanging in the trees in, in photographs and, you know, imagery, uh, helping to carry that idea forward and letting people know about missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. were reported missing to the FBI in 2021. That is two and a half times higher than any other race in the report that violence against indigenous women and girls amounts to what the commissioners call a Canadian genocide. Many We know that one in three uh, Native women in North America will be raped, abused, an act of violence committed against them, one in three, by a non-native perpetrator at that. It's not even a PTSD, it's an ongoing stress in the community, you know, because you see what happens. This isn't a new problem. This has been going on for 500 years. It's part slavery, part prostitution, all all that. It's not voluntary. And it all originates with this damn doctrine of discovery. The doctrine of discovery is a bulletin from the Pope that lets you know what God really wants. And they declared that if explorers may come across an inhabited land, if they're not Christians, you're supposed to kill them or enslave them. You can enslave them if they promise to become Christians. Otherwise, you kill them. And you take the land, you know, for us. In Canada, in the U.S., those laws are still in place now. They took me from my Indian nation. They put me on a reservation, denied me any hope. I'm on the bottom of the pile in my own country. But you know how the way I feel about it, um, it it's really hard for non-Indigenous people to be dealing with, even dealing with truth and reconciliation about the residential schools. So I hesitate to bring up slavery um, until the time is right. I mean, maybe the time is now. I keep talking about it, but um, I do have hopes that the doctrine of discovery will be just make it go away. I do have hope. I think about our future generations babies yet unborn I hope that the world will be able to will have the palate to hear the message because I don't think it's a, a message of trying to invoke any sense of guilt you know but I think too many people are afraid that we want retribution and that is just is such a short-sighted view of, of 
any kind of indigenous value or knowledge. Walking Because what it was a comeback to, it was like come back to the bank. <laughs> and people really liked it. It wound up winning the Polaris Prize. No time for spin doctors' medicine. Corporation government selling his own cover up. Drake was up for the award as well, and some other people. But she really didn't. I don't think she expected to get the prize, and so she was just overwhelmed. Orange Lounge. It's a studio in Toronto, and it's up maybe five, six flights of steps, and <laughs> kind of bolts up the steps, not out of breath at all, and just has this incredible burst of sunshine energy just beaming at you, and that energy did not end. It was amazing coming out with this album. You know that is still relevant and and like crushing everything that year. You know, like it was just your day's not over until you say it is. Like that first ripple in the water, the rest of us become these echoes. My proudest moment wasn't what I did when I received my award. It was when I found out years later that one of my very early scholarship recipients went on to be the the founder and president of a tribal college. I mean, to do some little thing as an individual and to to see some little thing that you do, you give to somebody else. In the grassroots, and they maximize it to a degree that I never even would have imagined. I've always cared a lot about young people in education. Visiting so many reservations, I saw that most Indigenous high school students didn't know how to negotiate the path to college. So I created the Nihiwan Foundation for Native American Education. I did receive scholarships, but by the 1980s, I expanded to create an entirely new curriculum through Indigenous eyes, and I shared it with Indian and non-Indian schools in 18 states and two provinces. This was called the Cradle Board Teaching Project. You're on the way. My newest project, Creative Native, is designed to teach students in reservation communities the skills needed to have a career in the arts. My whole life, I wish there was somebody in the world like me, interested in this stuff, music, indigeneity, art. So I tried to build one, and now there is. So again, that circles back to something I say a lot. Someone tell you what you really want ain't on the menu. Don't believe them. Cook it up yourself. 
and then prepare to serve them. I'm pretty happy with my life. You know, I've had some hard times, but a lot of my personal and artistic dreams have come true. And to be able to look backwards at how it braids together, you know, it's like a sweetgrass braid. She's this Renaissance woman. She is just, you can't just say she's one thing. And her focus on really breaking the colonial cycle and really deconstructing that, like before decolonization was a word, she was doing it in practice. I think Buffy's legacy is generation to generation to generation to generation and beyond. And uh, it's going to take us to places that we need to be. And it's going to be taking us to places that uh, um, we, we will be thankful that we are there. And I think that comes to each person in their own way. personally it's a thrill but I've been lonesome I mean for all these years I've been the only indigenous person to win an Oscar and that felt funny and you're saying wait a minute yeah I've got this but it's really about being effective and I was just thrilled um, and have used the fact that I have an Oscar in ways to try and make something happen to speak truth to power has given all of us the presence of mind that we can do this. Buffy is in every chord that I play and embodied in every note that I sing. She's helped so many other artists. My legacy will be her albums, you know. I don't think it's so important to remember us as it is to remember the work. Keep on keeping on. <laughs> Let me say it would be to promote self-awareness, pride in our own cleanness. That would be her legacy. Buffy's career wasn't just about Buffy. If you can go down history as you're successful, people still remember you as fighting for them. That's maybe the greatest thing you can ever be. My sister, I will always and forever love you. 
and they can't take that away. Witnessing Buffy's work, not only as an artist, musician, mother, but activist, I think it's just, it's quite profound. I can be happy person, she is. <laughs> Um, what else? Stay tuned in the making of Ojibwe artist Jonathan Thunder and the native Hawaiian poet Tumika Osorio. Major support for American Master. Okay, we did it. Holy cow. Um, there she is. Yup, yup, Rainbow's on live. <laughs> I have, I don't have any words. <laughs> we heard it all. I passed this talking stick with the sound of, the sound of up where we belong. Yeah? Oh, that song. We gotta play some of that next week. Where the eagle flies on the mountain high. That's where Rainbird lives. Pass this talking stick to you, Rainbird. <laughs> okay, I got it. I got that talking stick. Oh my gosh, what a night. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. What fun. Um, yeah. It was also good. And here we all are. Let's make music together. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So inspired. So. Lots of gratitude. I know I speak for all of us. It was good to see you. Thank you. <laughs> so with that, here comes Rama. Here comes that talking stick. Have you got anything for us? Yeah, this is Alan Watts, The Consciousness of a Baby. Oh, God. Good one, Rama. The consciousness of a baby. Here we go. I mean, Buffy said it all. Holy moly. Wow. I was making a basic comparison between the state of consciousness of a baby and that of a so-called mature adult. Respectively, what we would call undifferentiated and differentiated. The adult consciousness being highly selective and the baby consciousness being very open and hardly selective at all therefore unable to distinguish what adults consider to be the important things. And I went on to show that in the case of the baby who hasn't been trained or told about the difference between himself and all that is defined as other than himself, doesn't distinguish between voluntary behavior and involuntary occurrence. And of course, we think this is a very fundamental 
effect. But if we go back, you see, to a principle that underlies the whole universe with a kind of mathematical exactitude, we see that if we reduce things to the situation of primal simplicity, and we have a primordial self and other situation, that is to say, two balls in space, there is absolutely no way of telling when they move which one of them is moving or which one is still. They must necessarily appear to move mutually. There's no point of reference except each other to determine which is moving and which is still. Now, everything that goes on in the universe is simply a complication of that principle. Because the same thing holds true if you multiply the number of balls, you'll see that that primordial principle, that all movement is mutual, still applies. And therefore, the baby's failure to distinguish between the voluntary and the involuntary, the I and the other, is in a way correct. Psychologists, psychoanalysts in particular, make a great deal of this contrast and consider that the baby's view is inferior to the adult's. And if an adult should acquire that view in psychoanalysis, this would be called regression. The point that is missed is that the two ways of looking at things need each other to balance out. And that one needs the baby's view as a basis for the adult view, because if you don't have it, you take the adult view too seriously. Get completely carried away by it. And that would be analogous to a person who in playing poker loses his nerve because he doesn't realize it's only a game. So he becomes a very bad player. Exactly the same way we in life are only playing a game. But because we didn't keep the baby view, we can't see it. So what we would call a Buddha view is one that knows both. And therefore is not taken in by the adult games, although perfectly capable of playing, is not captivated by them. Okay, what have we got next? This is Enya. Enya. Dreams are more precious. Dreams. Dreams are more precious. Here we go. Here's some music. I hear some water. Rainbird, are we hear the water where you are? Is that what I'm hearing? No, I'm muted. What? Oh. I said I'm muted. Oh, there you go. Now, now the, it's all quiet. <laughs> okay. I was going to say, let the music take you there. Yeah. Uh, and, um, Sweet dreams, everyone, and uh, 
We'll see you tomorrow at Cheryl's. I don't have the number in front of me. I know you'll, you, if you know it, you'll be there. And inshallah, everyone. Sat Nam. Sat Nam D. Ah, homie takuyasin. 13 thank yous, honey in the heart, no evil, live long and prosper. And I'll see you in your dreams. Namaste. Mahalo nui loa.